It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome. Thank you. What a what a great crowd of anti-vaxxers we have here in the studio audience today. Welcome to the mop-up for September 13th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 66 degrees and cloudy. Coming up in a little while, Dave Cyrus, Emmy-nominated comedy writer. Dave Cyrus, thank you for the coffee. Leslie, we'll be talking about the infrastructure bill, the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. I think the mice are tap dancing somewhere in my apartment. I thought they all drowned. There was an article on NPR, their website, saying that a lot of rodents were drowned during last week's hurricane. And I thought they all died, but I think a couple of them have made it into my apartment. The $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill that Bernie Sanders is trying to marshal through reconciliation will be, they say, one of the most uh, sweeping pieces of legislation since Lyndon Johnson's uh, great society program. Of course, Joe Manchin, the criminal from West Virginia, is holding it up. He gave an interview saying he will not go with $3.5 trillion. This is a man, a Democrat, who represents West Virginia, who has constituents that are among the poorest, if not the poorest, citizens in our country. His daughter, we've talked about this on the show countless times, has made tens of millions of dollars gouging people on the EpiPen. He has a $750,000 yacht where he entertains Republicans. He does not represent the Democratic Party. He does not represent the people of West Virginia. A little later on, I'm going to give you his phone number. It's time to call Joe Manchin, because if the Democrats 
do not pass this infrastructure bill, we're we're doomed. Bernie Sanders was asked on CNN on Sunday what he thought of Joe Manchin, saying the most he's willing to accept is a trillion and change. Here's what Bernie said. No, it is absolutely not acceptable to me. I don't think it's acceptable to the president, to the American people, or to the overwhelming majority of the people in the Democratic caucus. Look, uh, we worked with Senator Manchin to pass the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which was enormously consequential and helpful to working class families in getting us out of the economic uh, disaster that, that befell us as a result of COVID. I believe we're going to all sit down and work together and come up with a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. I love you. I love you, Bernie. I do. This is an opportunity to show us what you've got. I think you have it all. I don't know if this country has what it's got. We've fantasized. What would it be like if Bernie Sanders were president? How would he move the Senate to pass all his legislation? He's the chairman of the banking committee right now. There's no doubt in my mind that when he endorsed Joe Biden last year, he got an agreement that he would be made chairman of the banking committee and that he would usher in landmark legislation that poured trillions into a Green New Deal infrastructure Otherwise, he was going to take his voters, his socialists, and go home. This is the deal, I believe, that Biden and Bernie worked out, this reconciliation bill. And this is an opportunity to see what kind of deal maker Bernie is. It's in his, it's in his ballpark right now. Can he make the deal? Biden is supporting him. Schumer is supporting him, we think. Can Bernie make a deal with Manchin and Cinema and get this passed through reconciliation? If it fails, it's not Bernie's fault. But if this gets passed, it will be Bernie demonstrating that he wasn't a loner, that he could make deals and he would have been a much better president than Joe Biden. This is something that is very important to keep track of because the future of our democracy, I believe, uh, is determined, will be determined by this infrastructure bill. And I mean that as an intellectual exercise, we'll be curious to see what Bernie is capable of, of uh, pulling off in the next two or three weeks. The bills are being marked up right now as we speak. Well, Lancet reports some good news for people like Bill Maher who don't want boosters, booster shots. I try to be even handed here. I know that I'm pushing vaccines on everybody and masks. I've said in the past that the only reason you shouldn't get a booster shot is because the vaccines are so effective, it obviates the need for a booster shot. It's overkill. I've said that perhaps, just like people shouldn't be taking ivermectin because kids in third world countries need it to combat intestinal parasites. There's a shortage of it right now. I've said that if we want to defeat COVID, make sure the, the third world countries other than the United States are also 
being vaccinated. So maybe instead of boosters, we might want to think about giving that third jab, as they call it, and fourth jab to people overseas. Lancet is reporting, and this is a reliable, very reliable British medical journal. In their new review published in The Lancet, experts now say that whatever advantage booster shots for COVID would provide, they would not outweigh the benefit of using those doses to protect the billions of people who remain unvaccinated worldwide. This is the New York Times reporting on Lancet's story. Uh, The New York Times writes, boosters may be useful in some people with weak immune systems, they said, they being Lancet, but are not yet needed for the general population. Now, the story, according to the New York Times, is that Lancet, the medical journal, is reporting that vaccines are effective enough at preventing severe COVID-19 that there is no current need for the general population to be given third doses. This runs counter to what Joe Biden is pushing for, what Fauci seems to be pushing for. Some countries, including Israel, the New York Times goes on to write, have started offering booster shots over fears about the much more contagious Delta variant, causing the World Health Organization to call for a moratorium on third shots amid concerns about vaccine supplies to poorer nations where millions have yet to receive their first. But the Lancet report concludes that even with the threat of Delta, this is important, quote, booster doses for the general population are not appropriate at this stage of the pandemic. See, this is what we're doing here. We're turning to reliable medical journals and sources like the New York Times reporting on Lancet. This is the best way to get your information about booster shots and whether or not it's overkill. And by overkill, I don't mean it'll kill you. I mean, they they will be very effective, from what I've been reading from reliable sources, in preventing a breakthrough case. But it's kind of piggish to hoard these vaccines, uh, these booster shots, when third world nations haven't even gotten their first. This is a responsible conversation where you challenge the president and his recommendations using facts and science. And so uh, this is the headline from the New York Times. In a new review, some FDA scientists and others say boosters aren't needed for the general population. So there's been some trouble over at the FDA, a disagreement. The Biden administration, the New York Times writes, has proposed administering vaccine boosters eight months after we all got our shots. But according to the New York Times, many scientists are now opposing this plan, saying the vaccines continue to be powerfully protective against severe illness and hospitalization. You understand this? Many scientists oppose the booster 
saying that the two vaccines you already got continue to be powerfully protective against severe illness and hospitalization. 18 authors, including Dr. Philip Cross and Dr. Marion Gruber from the FDA, who authored this study, they're scientists who announced last month that they will be leaving the FDA partly because they disagree with the Biden administration's push for boosters before federal scientists could review the evidence and make recommendations. Okay, that's how you make an informed decision as to whether or not you should get the booster shot. Here's the bottom line from what I understand from reliable sources. If you've already been vaccinated, if you're fully vaccinated, Lancet and several people over at the FDA believe that those vaccinations are so strong and so powerful, you don't need a booster because you're hoarding the vaccines that should be going to third world nations. From what I'm reading from reliable sources, the vaccines are not dangerous. They're just incredibly powerful and successful. We don't need the booster shots. We don't think quite yet. That's what the scientific community has to say. So get the vaccine. Don't get ivermectin. It's when you get ivermectin, you are killing children in third world nations who need ivermectin to destroy the river blindness. And the Center for Digital Hate, which looks into these people who are scamming you on ivermectin, all of them are running some kind of grift. They're all selling supplements like Alex Jones sells supplements. Joe Rogan endorses supplements. I know that Joe Rogan has some kind of deal where he either makes his own supplements or endorses supplements. It's in the best interest of certain people who present themselves as yoga teachers and natural healers to push their line of vitamins, their their health foods on you by challenging or raising questions about vaccines because they want you to buy their products that they claim boosts your immunity. If the vaccine works, then there's no need to buy these pills that they're selling you. I know Alex Jones sells boner pills and brain pills. I've seen and I think I've read that Joe Rogan either invested in or owns a supplement company. So it's in his best interest financially to make you doubt the CDC and Lancet and turn to alternative immunity boosters that he's selling. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who has a column in the New York Times has been writing about snake oil salesmen and their relationship to the right. Uh, Perlstein, who I want to have on this show, he's a historian of Republican politics. There's a long history of people with mailing lists who sell 
snake oil and Republican ideology. If you look at the National Review, if you look at right wing publications like Town Hall, they're always running ads for colloidal silver. They're always running ads for alternative medicine. And and this has been pointed out by Paul Krugman, as well as other people who've studied this. They're the right wing Republicans and snake oil salesmen are inextricably linked. What funds Ben Shapiro's radio show and his podcast and his website are advertisements for alternative medicine. So be very wary of these right-wingers who are pushing uh, alternatives to to the vaccine. They're, They're trying to to cash in on uh, your ignorance and your your fear of modern medicine. Some uh, interesting news. The Washington Post, I believe this is the Washington Post. I may be wrong. The Washington Post reports that the Supreme Court will be deciding in the next session whether or not uh, Congress can ban cockfighting in Puerto Rico. Congress has outlawed, finally, cockfighting nationwide. But Puerto Rico, as we all know, is a territory. And the question is, does Congress have the standing to tell a territory like uh, Puerto Rico, a colony, that you can no longer have cockfighting going on? I remember an article in The New Yorker about 20 years ago when Oklahoma finally outlawed cockfighting. And I'm not making this up. There was a state legislator who was pro-cockfighting. And in on the floor of the Oklahoma Senate, he said, and I quote, when Hitler came to power, the first thing he did was outlaw cockfighting. I'm not making that up. This is This is a meme that the right wing uses all the time. When Hitler came to power, the very first thing he did was make it legal for men and women to kiss. So what's the story here with cockfighting? We, uh, in Congress, we passed a a law, Section 12616, which eliminated the exemption of outlawing cockfighting in territories or colonies. Uh, Congress said, no, we're banning cockfighting uh, everywhere, including Guam, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands. The Washington Post reports animal rights groups view cockfighting as a cruel blood sport, and they applauded Congress's decision. But Puerto Rico's leaders, then Governor Ricardo Rossello, were furious, and Ricardo Rossello flew to Washington in a last-minute bid to lobby personally against this law that outlaws cockfighting. Governor Rossello said since Puerto Rico is not a state, Puerto Rico does not have voting members in Congress, that Congress cannot rule that cockfighting is uh, illegal in Puerto Rico since essentially doesn't violate the Commerce Clause. Uh, 
the Congress, according to the Constitution, can rule on what kind of interstate commerce can take place among the states. But because the argument goes Puerto Rico is not a state and because cockfighting only exists in America, in Puerto Rico, Congress does not have standing according to the Commerce Clause, to rule as to whether or not cockfighting uh, should or should not be legal. According to the Washington Post, cockfighting is a multi-million dollar industry in Puerto Rico (laughs) that reportedly employs around 20,000 people through direct and indirect means. So the Supreme Court will be taking up the issue of cockfighting uh, next month when their new session begins. It's all so maddening. It's just, there's so much going on. It's hard to keep track of all the news. That's why I watched Larry Kudlow. He was Donald Trump's economic advisor. Before that, he had several shows on CNBC and Fox News. Larry is... uh, a a stockbroker turned pundit. He stopped trading stocks when his cocaine and drinking problem got the best of him. He is an ex, so he claims, coke addict. He admits to no longer doing coke. He says he no longer drinks, although there were a couple of press conferences he held while he was advising the Trump administration, while he was working in the Trump administration that looked like he had been drinking. Here's what he said on his show yesterday. I agree with him. When I say that I yearn for the calmness of Donald Trump, I'm being actually quite serious here. I'm not worried about tweets and whatever. Yes, he yearns for the calmness of Donald Trump the same way he yearns for the calmness of trying to score cocaine at four in the morning, driving up to Harlem in his limousine, trying to buy cocaine. It's very calm. This is a man who yearns for calmness. We should listen to uh, people like Larry Kudlow. Well, all right. U.S. Capitol Police are requesting more fencing in response to a planned right wing rally this Saturday outside our nation's capital. Today's police, uh, today police arrested a California man parked outside the Democratic National Headquarters. He was sitting inside a truck that had some Nazi swastikas on it and knives, including a bayonet and machete. Bayonets and machete are illegal to carry in Washington, D.C. If you remember, on January 6th, there was a bomb planted outside the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. Thankfully, it uh, did not go off. We'll be keeping an eye on Saturday's rally, right-wing rally, in Washington, D.C. It's been 20 years since the brutal attacks on our nation's soil. Luckily, we are a heavily armed country. We're way more armed now than we've ever been. And I feel safer since 9-11 because it's not just the police. We also have heavily armed civilians, vigilantes, if you will, who are trained to combat the next 
act of terrorism on our homeland, no matter which form it confronts us. Take a look at these brave men who are training for a terrorist attack. This is, uh, watch how he, oh, he shot his cap off. But the point is, I feel safe with men uh, getting guns and spending their weekends uh, training out in the open to make sure that, yeah, uh, yeah, but he needs to do a little, little better. But uh, it's important that our citizens are well armed. It's important that our police are well armed. And we have a lot, a lot of new weapons. And the cops have everything. They have everything. Our police have never been more ready to protect us from violent extremists as they are now. For 20 years, they've been given all the equipment they need and all the equipment they don't need. For 20 years, they've been given tanks and bazookas. They need this stuff, but they've also been given smart weapons like tasers. And a story is coming to us from Arizona. The headline reads, cop accused of tasing man in the testicles in front of his wife and kids. Uh, That's always good. It's not easy being a cop. That's the point I'm making. And sometimes you just need to tase a man in the testicles in front of his wife and kids, even though he didn't really do anything other than piss you off. And uh, our cops need tasers. They need bazookas. They need tanks. You need guns because sometimes it's impossible to stop these suspects, especially when it's eight in the morning and you and your buddies, your cop buddies, just ate a very large breakfast at Denny's. Would you want to chase this guy? Look at these these cops trying to apprehend a suspect who looks to me like he's a super predator. These are three cops doing their best to chase, uh, I believe is an African-American man in Dallas, Texas, and he's making a run for it. And look at these three cops who are in such great shape. Such, look at, look at, and they're just sprinting after this African-American man who's now walking very slowly and the cops are now walking. And this is why cops need tasers and guns. They are morbidly obese and out of shape. And they're too lazy. Our cops are too lazy to chase unarmed suspects. Look at them. They're exhausted. That's why they need guns. That's why they shoot unarmed black men who haven't really done anything uh, because they're all overweight or a good number of our cops are overweight. So they have to shoot. The only way they can stop a suspect is by shooting them in the, in the, in the back. And some cops are very smart, like this cop in Texas. There was someone standing to the side of the road. Oh, there he goes over, over the railing there. A, a cop... Uh, was trying to stop traffic to, uh, I don't know, maybe arrest some undocumented workers. Who knows? And whoa, he, very smart cop there. And he was actually injured, so we wish him well. But uh, not too bright 
to just hold up a pen flashlight and try to get people to stop. Well, okay, we love our cops. We do. On Saturday, America remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11, a day when 3,000 innocent Americans who never harmed anyone were taken from us. Why? Why? Because Condoleezza Rice never acted on a national security memo entitled Osama bin Laden intent on flying airplanes into buildings. That's why she got the memo in August and she figured it could wait till December of next year. It was horrible. We didn't deserve this and it shouldn't have happened. We didn't. Those 3000 Americans didn't do anything other than some of them voting for a president who, when he first took office, decided to cut funding for counterterrorism. So in the months leading up to the attacks, he never once held a meeting before 9-11 and how to prevent an attack on American soil. We didn't deserve this. And, you know, what's really upsetting about 9-11, it's been 20 years and a lot of the people in the media try to convince us that we never avenged the attacks that occurred on our homeland. Well, I've got good news, some good news. The Guardian is now reporting that since George W. Bush's war on terror began, Americans have killed at least 22,000 innocent civilians overseas in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. So let's check the score here because I'm trying to do the math here. Yes, I'm doing the math. America wins. Here we go. We won this. America beats the rest of the world by a score of 22,000 innocent civilians to 3,000 American civilians. That's a 19,000 point margin, according to the, the Guardian. So I am so sick of these left wingers, these anti-war prima donnas claiming that we never avenged 9-11. Look at that. We won by 19,000 innocent civilians. That's a landslide, and we should be proud of ourselves. We won. Wait. Oh, hang on for one second. Those are my numbers. Those are the Guardian's numbers. That is not America's. That's Air War's numbers. They keep track of civilians killed by American drone strikes and American smart weapons. Uh, I'm being told that the Pentagon doesn't trust those numbers. This may this this may not be a victory. Hang on for one second. According to the Guardian, an email reply to Air Wars. Air Wars was asking the Pentagon to comment on uh, civilian deaths, and the Guardian writes. Uh, an email reply to Air Wars from the Pentagon Central Command, otherwise known as CENTCOM, said that it did not have information available on the total number of civilian deaths from airstrikes. Hmm. So we don't know what the real numbers are here. CENTCOM said, quote, the information you request is not immediately on hand in our office 
as it spans between multiple operations and campaigns with a span of between 18 and 20 years. Hmm. So the Pentagon, you know how the FBI doesn't keep track of Americans killed by cops? They don't have a database. The Washington Post had to create the database. They're beginning, the Justice Department now is starting to keep track of American citizens killed by the police. The Pentagon doesn't keep score of innocent civilians who they kill overseas. I I don't understand this because I remember after those 13 soldiers died at the airport two weeks ago, we were told we were going to avenge their deaths. And now we're getting reports that the drone strike, the over the horizon strike done by an unmanned drone killed maybe an entire family of innocent civilians. And the Pentagon last week said it takes civilian casualties very seriously. And yet they don't, I mean, I keep score here. I, I, you know, I thought we had a 19,000 point win over Al-Qaeda. And now we find out that the Pentagon isn't keeping score. They can't tell us. They don't keep track of all the the civilians we get to kill uh, that you would think with all the money we Americans spend on smart drones and smart weapons that the Pentagon of all people, and they are a people, would be proud of all the civilians they killed. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. The, the Pentagon does keep track And here are the latest scores on America's war on terror. So according to The Guardian and Air Wars, we're winning by 19,000 innocent civilians. The terrorists killed 3,000 innocent American civilians on 9-11. And look at that. We beat them exponentially. That's a 19,000 point margin. But those are... You can't trust those statistics. Let's go to the FBI, the FBI, the uh, what is it? The Pentagon, the Pentagon. And let's check with their let's check their numbers. These are the official scores from uh, uh, the Pentagon. Civilian deaths, America's war on terror, according to Pentagon. So in Iraq, they score it. Don't know. Oh, because they don't keep track of civilian deaths. In Afghanistan, they score it, don't know. In Somalia, they score it, don't care. Okay. In Syria, the Pentagon scores it, Arabs. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know why they would just say Arabs with no number of innocent civilians. That doesn't make sense. Yemen. Uh, We've armed Saudi Arabia with the barrel bombs they need to kill innocent Houthis and innocent children in Yemen. There's a cholera epidemic going on there right now. They say that our climate czar, John Kerry, may not 
uh, may not be safe for him to travel in certain European countries because he authorized weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, and that's a war crime. They're saying that theoretically, climate czar John Kerry could be brought before the International Criminal Court on war crimes charges. And so the Pentagon scores Yemen, how many civilians? Who? Okay. And in the Horn of Africa, where the War of Ontario also takes place, the Pentagon scores it. Is that a real country? All right. So that was premature. We, uh, I stand corrected. I thought we, I thought we won. I thought we avenged 9/11 by 19,000 civilian deaths. But uh, that's the Pentagon for you. They don't keep score, and it's kind of like being a comedy writer. You shouldn't keep track of the jokes you get into a script. You should just enjoy killing innocent civilians for the sake of killing innocent civilians. Don't keep score. That's not why you do it. It's, it's not a competition. That's what the Pentagon is teaching us. You should just kill innocent civilians because you are there to kill innocent civilians. Don't make it a competition. That's a good message from our Pentagon. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump scolded George W. Bush, who on September 11th gave a speech in Pennsylvania warning that domestic terrorism poses as big or perhaps an even bigger threat to our national security as foreign terrorism. In a statement issued by Trump's Save America PAC, which everybody should give to, because that money, you know it's going to be well spent. In a statement issued by Trump's Save America PAC, the con artist hit the nail right on the head. Donald Trump reminded me why he's so popular, why he remains popular, because he's willing to speak the truth. This is the country we live in. Only in America can a congenital liar be the only truth teller when it comes to 9-11. This is what Trump said about George W. Bush's speech. And he's absolutely right. I don't know why they allowed George W. Bush to speak at 9-11 memorials. It's like asking Sirhan Sirhan to speak at Robert F. Kennedy's funeral, right? You, you know, he, it, it happened on his watch and only Donald J. Trump has the courage to say that. And this is why people voted for him, especially lifelong Republicans. This is what Trump said. So interesting to watch former President Bush, who was responsible for getting us into the quicksand of the Middle East and then not winning, as he lectures us that terrorists on the right are a bigger problem than those from foreign countries that hate America and that are pouring into our country right now. Okay, those are lies, but... I'll get to that in a second. If that is so, Trump went on to say, why was he willing to spend trillions of dollars 
and be responsible for the death of perhaps millions of people. He shouldn't be lecturing us about anything. Well, this is why the Republicans, why Trump, why the fascists are so dangerous, because you have somebody like Donald Trump who is willing to speak a half-truth about 9-11 and Democrats not willing to speak any truth about 9-11. A half-truth, well, for some people is better than no truth whatsoever, and it's activating the dangerous gun nuts, the insurrectionists in this country, because Donald Trump is speaking some truth to people who haven't heard any truth coming from their leaders when it comes to 9-11. Instead of apologizing to our soldiers, we perpetuate the myth that the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq were noble efforts. But our soldiers are too smart. They know, once again, they're being lied to. They were lied to in the startup of this war on terror. They were lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They were lied to when they were told that the Taliban was responsible for 9-11. Taliban didn't come up with 9-11. We think it was Osama bin Laden, but more and more evidence after 20 years is coming to us that it was Saudi Arabian princes, which we knew back when it first happened, but they're, that we were lied to. They wouldn't give us all that information. But the truth is that we don't really know who funded 9-11. Maybe it was Osama bin Laden. He took credit for it. But I'm from Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood. And lots of people take credit for things that... They had nothing to do with. And you can't take credit for a project unless somebody bankrolls it. Maybe Osama bin Laden was the director, but it's starting to look like Saudi Arabia produced, was the studio that produced 9-11. So when you say to the soldiers, your cause was just, you're hurting them. You're lying to them. And you're creating future soldiers forced to go fight another lie. Why don't we nip it in the bud and apologize for the war in Iraq and apologize for the war in Afghanistan? Why don't we save soldiers' lives by treating them like adults, don't infantilize them, and tell them the truth? that this war was a mistake. And if George W. Bush really loved America, instead of speaking Saturday about the war on terror and that tragic day, 9-11, he would apologize for 9-11. That's what I would do if it happened on my watch. And I would apologize for Iraq, for invading the wrong country for thinking that you could bomb terrorists and not create more terrorists in Afghanistan. What about an apology? 
to our soldiers, to the American citizens. That's an act of patriotism. But George W. Bush, he's haunted by all this, but he's not patriotic enough. He doesn't love America enough to prevent another 20-year debacle like Afghanistan. He won't tell us, give us the signposts that a commander-in-chief should be able to recognize when generals, the military-industrial complex, hucksters from Halliburton like Dick Cheney are pushing a war because it's in their best financial interests. If George W. Bush really loved America, he would give a speech saying, this is what happened to me. Let me show you. Let me show you the blueprint and, and tr show our next generation of leaders how to keep out of unnecessary wars that only benefit mercenaries like Eric Prince and Raytheon and Boeing. But he doesn't love America. That's why he has to keep reminding us that he loves America. He wears that American flag lapel because you have to wear the flag on your chest to convince people you love this country. You need symbols instead of actions. George W. Bush doesn't love this country. That's why he was a draft dodger in, in Vietnam. He believed that kids should be off fighting in Vietnam, but his dad pulled some strings and got him into the Champagne unit, the Air National Guard in Texas, where he ultimately went AWOL. He doesn't love this country. He doesn't love this country. So uh, anyway, Trump, uh, half right on 9-11, half right about George W. Bush lecturing anybody about anything. The only thing George W. Bush should say is guilty as charged. That's what he should be doing. Meanwhile, Donald Trump spent 9-11 bonding with his namesake, Don Jr. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend. It cheered me up. They provided together color commentary for the heavyweight fight between 58-year-old Evander Holyfield and 44-year-old mixed martial artist Vider Belfour. Mixed martial Mixed martial artists, they're artists, kind of like uh, George W. Bush is an artist. I guess having blood on your hands makes you an artist. And that's what people who engage in mixed martial arts are. Have you ever seen mixed martial arts? Uh, so the Trumps, Don Jr. and Don Sr., reportedly were paid a lot of money by Triller. They're a social media app to spend 9-11 serving as live commentators. The fight was stopped in the first round by the referee after it became apparent that Hollyfield was in no condition to continue. Well, if you had to hear Don Jr. commenting on your boxing prowess, you wouldn't be any, in any condition to continue 
either. I'm sure he heard Don Jr. talking and whipped out his cell phone and begged Tyson to bite off both his ears. Uh, boxing, that would have been funny if I had uh, maybe prepared that before I did it. That is some good coffee. But <laughs> there's not enough caffeine in it to make me clever. Boxing, like me, is dying a slow-motion death. HBO stopped promoting boxing three years ago. They're done with boxing because more and more evidence suggests that boxing promotes permanent brain damage. Much like football promotes permanent brain damage. And I think in a few years... Football will meet the same fate as boxing. And by that, I mean being subjected to color commentary from Don Jr. and his father, who find nothing more pleasant than watching people of color trying to kill each other. Well, yes, boxing causes brain damage, as does football. As I said, football has been proven incontrovertibly to cause severe brain damage, resulting in violent impulses off the field, not just from the fans, but from the uh, players. We're seeing it constantly. It's become prosaic to read about a football player arrested for beating up his loved ones or pulling a gun on somebody. It's no longer news when you read of an ex-football player or, or a current football player getting arrested. And uh, so it causes brain damage. And that's why Republicans are finding the NFL is serving as a deep bench for future candidates, such as former Dallas Cowboy running back Herschel Walker, who is running for the Republican nomination for Senate in Georgia. That seat is currently held by Democratic Senator Raphael Warnick, a minister who speaks from the same pulpit as Dr. Martin Luther King. If you'll recall, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock won this seat earlier this year in a special election. Well, next year, there's another election, and we have to get out the vote for Raphael Warnick. And it's going to be tough because Herschel Walker looks like we'll be running against him on the Republican ticket. And according to a new poll, Herschel Walker, who is endorsed by Donald Trump, Herschel Walker is leading the rest of the Republican field by 70 points. Now, he played for the Dallas Cowboys. He's running in Georgia because Walker got his start in football playing for the University of Georgia, where he is beloved except by women, which, of course, makes him an even more perfect Republican candidate. Women don't like Herschel Walker. According to the Associated Press, cancel culture Herschel Walker's ex-wife, Cindy DeAngelis Grossman, filed for divorce 
claiming Herschel Walker was, quote, physically abusive and extremely threatening. He used to whip out razors and hold them against her throat. Cancel culture. What about his First Amendment rights? Uh, no, he's not entitled to any First Amendment rights. No freedom of speech to hold a razor to his wife's throat and threaten to slit it. A judge, you would think a judge of all people would be familiar with freedom of speech. Well, a judge ordered Walker to surrender his guns, violated his second right, Second Amendment rights because he was using his First Amendment rights, threatening to blow his wife's, quote unquote, effing brains out. Well, I'm not that's not actually the uh, full quote I'm saying effing. But he Herschel Walker, this is the cancel culture is like throw the Constitution out. First Amendment rights you, according to Herschel Walker's ex-wife, he would exercise his Second Amendment right to put a pistol to her head and then exercise his First Amendment right by saying, I'm going to blow your effing brains out. I mean, where are our civil liberties? Walker, Herschel Walker, he is running for Senate. He's probably going to get the Republican nomination because Trump has endorsed him. Walker also liked to threaten his uh, wife with knives and guns and uh, again exercised his First Amendment rights by calling his ex-wife's sister and telling her that he was going to shoot his ex-wife and her new boyfriend in the head. So the judge took away his guns. So he's perfect for the GOP. He's aggrieved. He's a victim of the cancel culture. His wife left him because he was just exercising his constitutional right to put a gun, Second Amendment, to her head and then say, First Amendment, I'm going to blow your effing brains out. When does it end? It's a slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, first it starts with not being able to put a gun to your wife's head and threaten to blow her effing brains out. It starts there. They take that right away from us. What's next? Quarantine camps, forced vaccinations. This guy, Herschel Walker, is going to make such a great candidate for the GOP in Georgia next year. Plus, here's the added benefit. He's an African-American. Herschel Walker is African-American. He's a gun nut, literally. He abuses women. And he's a violent, out of control. This is why he's perfect for the, for the GOP. Herschel Walker is a violent, out of control black man, which reconfirms every stereotype Republicans hold so dear to their hearts. He reminds Republicans of what they think of all black men because he's violent and he's out of control. He is perfect for the Republican Party and he's a loyal Republican. Walker believes the 2020 election 
was stolen from Trump. That's perfect if you want to be a Republican because you're a credible source. If Herschel Walker says the election was stolen, Republicans are going to believe it's true because according to Republicans, there is no bigger authority on stealing than a black man. And he supported the insurrection. He, he called on, quote unquote, the true patriots to carry out a total cleansing. Uh, that's, he is perfect. Walker says, Herschel Walker says the January 6th insurrection was, quote, a well-orchestrated, unquote, false flag operation committed by Democrats uh, trying to distract from election fraud. He sees things that aren't there. He sees things that aren't there, that only he can see. That, that the insurrection, it was the Democrats playing three-dimensional chess, trying to distract from an election that they stole. He's, he's mentally ill, is what he is. Uh, and that may be what ultimately gets the Republicans to sour on Herschel Walker. He's mentally ill. That's not the that's not what. Let me explain. See, Herschel Walker suf, suffers from dissociative identity disorder. That's not the problem for the GOP. Because there could be there would be no current iteration of the Republican Party without people suffering from undiagnosed dissociative identity disorder. Here's the problem. Walker knows he suffers from dissociative identity disorder. Big problem. You, you can't have Republicans who know that they're suffering from dissociative identity disorder. And he's been very open about his mental illness. Can't do that. See, that's going to be a problem with Republican voters. You, you cannot be self-aware. You cannot acknowledge your own disassociative identity disorder, which is a mental illness that creates at least, at the very least, two distinct and separate personalities resulting in severe memory loss and self-harm as well as harm for others. This is what the Republicans all suffer from, but it's undiagnosed. Uh, medical authorities, psychiatrists, say dissociative identity disorder is caused by some sort of childhood trauma, something like 90% of people who have dissociative identity disorder had some kind of childhood uh, disorder and uh, trauma, I mean, some kind of childhood trauma. And that is the entire Republican Party. Childhood trauma, unresolved childhood trauma that is undiagnosed. There can be no Republican Party without a, a, a large segment of the American population being in total denial 
about their dissociative identity disorder. Now, we are all traumatized. The minute we come out of the womb, we are all traumatized. But some of us recognize the trauma and deal with it and become, uh, well, some people refuse, they, they tamp it down. They tamp the trauma down and we see it come out in separate personalities that are, are not identical. They're completely different. And Walker says he has several identities and I believe him. He has several identities. For example, he's African-American and that is an identity. It shouldn't be, but in America, if you're not African-American, about a thousand times a day, somebody will remind you that you're African-American. So that's his one identity. And that's one of the traumas he endured as a child. It's very traumatic for many African-Americans to uh, grow up as uh, African-Americans. I don't know, I think it has something to do with police arresting you and shooting you. I think that might have, that might be partly the cause of the trauma. So he's got one identity as an African-American, and then he has this other identity, and that is he's a Republican. And as is the case with associative identity disorder, two distinctly polar opposite personalities, which require a loss of memory. That's also what comes with uh, dissociative identity disorder. You have to conveniently forget the truth. Otherwise, you can't reconcile the two or more personalities, your multitudes. And one of the things he has to forget if he's an African-American who is a Republican, it is essential that his African-American personality forgets, or I'm sorry, his Republican personality must forget that Republicans hate African-Americans, and he must also forget that he's African-American. But uh, look, without, uh, without this mental illness, without dissociative identity disorder, there would be no, no Republicans, and especially no black Republicans whatsoever. Whatsoever, like uh, like this guy, uh, Larry Elder. On Tuesday, this Tuesday, California's recall election takes place. Now, for a while, it looked like California's manorexic governor, Tommy Newsom. I know it's Gavin Newsom, but there are a lot of baby boomers who want me to call him Tommy Newsom. And I'm going to call him Tommy Newsom. Our, our manorexic California Democratic governor, Tommy Newsom, it looked for a while like he was going to be sent home and replaced by African-American radio talk show host and ultra-right conservative lawyer, Larry Elder, who believes there is nothing the government should do to help African-Americans. He is an African-American also suffering 
from dissociative identity disorder. He has allegedly uh, pointed guns at uh, old girlfriends who worked as prostitutes. These are allegations. And uh, so he believes, Larry Elder believes that the government should do nothing to help African-Americans. He opposes welfare against the minimum wage. He's against paid family leave. These are all things that would not just benefit all Americans, but they would benefit African-Americans too. He prefers private schools over public schools. Uh, Here's something that would benefit African-Americans, outlawing uh, the use of chokeholds by our police officers. Our police kill unarmed black men every year with uh, chokeholds. Larry Elder is all for chokeholds. like I said, dissociative identity disorder. He wants to lock up more young people for misdemeanors, including low-level drug crimes. Something like, I read 400,000 Americans are behind bars because of nonviolent drug offenses. He's for that. They tend to be people of color who get locked up. And he says, this is really interesting, that systemic racism in America is a lie and that Black Lives Matter is one of the leading causes of crime. Like I said, Larry Elder is suffering from dissociative identity disorder. Uh, He's got one personality, and that would be uh, Larry Elder, the African-American son of a Democratic mother. And uh, he's a male. And he was traumatized growing up in racist America. Then he's got the other personality, and that is Larry Elder, who can't remember he's an African-American. Now, this is why if you're a Republican, you should listen to me. I have a lot of credibility on dissociative identity disorder because I am not a psychiatrist. This is why you should listen to me if you're on the right wing. Uh, The fact that I'm not a doctor, the fact that I know nothing about dissociative identity disorder gives me the right wing credentials to comment on Larry Elder's mental health issues. So you should listen to me because I am not an expert. And I know that Republicans only listen to people who don't know what the F they're talking about, like Joe Rogan talking about uh, vaccines, not a doctor college dropout, hawking supplements. He should be the person you get all your medical advice from. So is it possible to be a conservative African-American? Absolutely. Absolutely. White people, 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 white people like me living in a bubble, uh, we uh, were kind of shocked last year during the South Carolina primary when African-Americans chose the conservative Joe Biden over the socialist 
Bernie Sanders, we were we were somewhat shocked. And it speaks volumes to what's wrong with white socialists in America. African-Americans can be many things, right? They can be complex, just like everybody else. There are African-Americans who are pro-business. A lot of them are pro-business. So it makes sense for them to be on the right. Uh, They are pro-personal responsibility. They, like any other American, can be religious. The black churches are very important and can be somewhat conservative on some issues. You can be an African-American who believes that government creates more problems than it can solve. Also, interestingly enough, some African-Americans can be for stricter sentencing for drug crimes. Now, crack is more illegal than cocaine. They're kind of fixing that law. But uh, a lot of people think that one of the reasons crack is or was more illegal than cocaine is because crack was smoked mostly by African-Americans. And a lot of people think that African-American leaders in the city lobbied to make it more illegal in order to clean up their neighborhoods. There are stories of African-American leaders who went to Congress and asked for stricter sentencing on crack because they wanted it out of the neighborhood. So that's conservative. You can be African-American and right-wing. You can be African-American and before the war on terror, you can be a right-wing African-American conservative. But here's what you can't be if you're African-American. You can't hate African-Americans. And I think Larry Elder, I think he's got a problem with African-Americans or at least one of his personalities does. I think Larry Elder, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist, which is why if you're a Republican, you should be listening to me. I think uh, Larry Elder has dissociative identity disorder. And again, uh, I'm not a psychiatrist. I have no idea what I'm talking about. All I really have to back up my claim that Larry Elder is suffering from dissociative personality disorder, all I have to back that up is uh, I think I read or hear, heard or, or saw something about dissociative personality disorder about 20 years ago. Uh, I don't know where I read it. or I think it might have been a movie, a TV movie. Uh, starring Sally Field. I don't know. This is why Republicans should listen to me. I don't know. I really don't know what dissociative identity disorder means. So you should be hanging on my every word if you're right wing. Uh, Because it may not be dissociative identity disorder. It might be some other mental illness. But here's the important thing, and this is why Republicans should listen to me. 
I like saying Larry Elder is suffering from dissociative identity disorder because this is a fresh, hot take on Tuesday's California recall. So that's why you should trust me. It's fresh. It's hot. It's different. It's new. And that's all that's important when you're trying to arrive at the truth. It can only be true if it's something you've never heard before. That's how things work on podcasts. That's how things work on The Joe Rogan Show. If you've never heard it before, then it hasn't been compromised. So this is why the right wing should believe me when I say Larry Elder is suffering from dissociative identity disorder. Nobody else is saying this, so it's got to be true. It's wise because nobody else is saying it, not even a psychiatrist. So it's got to be brilliant. And it's why you should trust me. So, you know what? I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing this absolutely wrong. I, I, I apologize. I should be saying, why are we looking into whether or not Larry Elder or Candace Owens, whether or not the two of them are suffering from dissociative identity disorder? People are saying that Candace Owens and Larry Elder are suffering from dissociative identity disorder. People are saying that. I'm saying it, and I've been called a person. I'm just raising the question as to whether or not they have dissociative identity disorder. I'm not saying they suffer from it. I'm just saying Herschel Walker, who is African-American, openly admits he's suffering from dissociative identity disorder. So don't we owe it to Larry Elder, who's African-American, and Candace Owens, who's African-American? They're just like Herschel Walker. Don't we owe it to find out if they, too, are suffering from dissociative identity disorder? I mean, it's just circumstantial evidence like the Wuhan lab leak theory, but, you know, all three of them come down pretty hard on African-Americans. That feels like it could be a dissociative identity disorder. Half of them are African-American and half of them are Republicans who hate African-Americans. So take reparations, okay? Here is Larry Elder literally doing my act. And I mean this 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I did a bit on stage and I asked my African-American fellow comedians whether or not the bit was offensive. And they said, some of them said, some of them said, yes, it's offensive. So I, I immediately stopped doing it. Some of them said, as long as the audience knows you're playing a lunatic, which, you know, this is that's my stand up act. I'm a lunatic. If the audience knows that you're a lunatic who is morally reprehensible, that's my stand up act, then it falls under the domain of satire and it's actually OK. But I, I didn't do it. I, I found it. It just didn't feel right uh, because the audience, they knew I didn't mean it. But it was one of those things where 
people don't have a sense of humor on reparations. People will often say, if you're trying uh, something satiric or sarcastic, I know you don't mean it, but it's just something you shouldn't shouldn't try to make jokes about. Kind of like the Holocaust. I make Holocaust jokes to my Jewish friends, but those jokes are not for public consumption. Just like jokes about reparations aren't for public consumption. But Larry Elder thinks comments like these about reparations are for public consumption. He's doing my bit, but he's not joking around. This is uh, Larry Elder on reparations on the Candace Owens show, which I think is on the Prager Network. This is Larry Elder being serious about reparations. By the way, when you mentioned that uh, the UK was ahead of us, they were. Do you know that the slave owners were compensated? After they lost their quote-unquote property, the government compensated slave owners. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so when people talk about reparations, do they really want to have that conversation? Because, like it or not, slavery was legal. And so their property, their legal property was taken away from them after the after the Civil War. So uh, you can make an argument that the people that are owed reparations and not only just black people, but also the people whose, quote, property, close quote, was taken away after after the end of the Civil War. OK, so uh, that's almost funny. What, what he's saying is that the British outlawed slavery before America did. And I guess they paid reparations to the the slaveholders, because they lost their property. Uh, I didn't know that was... uh, I kind of thought that was so ridiculous that it would be funny, and I was wrong. I was wrong. Larry Elder is saying one could make an argument that the people who are owed reparations are not just black people, but the people whose property was taken away from them taken away from them after the civil war yes you could make that argument you could make you just did or you sort of did uh, one could make the argument that Candace Owens and Larry Elder are suffering from dissociative identity disorder one could make that argument that somebody who tries to come off intelligent and well-versed in the law by saying that one could make the argument that slaveholders are entitled to reparations because after the Civil War, they lost their property. Yes, you, you could make that argument. If you were out of your effing mind, you could make that argument. Uh, One could also make an argument that people like Larry Elder and Candace Owens, like all of us, need money. And one could make the argument that Larry Elder and Candace Owens discovered that the quickest way to $25,000 a pop speaking fees in front of right-wing racists is being the African-American 
who convinces these right-wing racists that they're not racists. You can make $25,000, $30,000 a pop, insisting that 1619 was just the hotel room number where Mayor Marion Barry got busted for smoking crack. That's how you can make money. One could make that argument, Larry Elder, that if you're an African-American willing to blame African-Americans for slavery, there's a nice paycheck waiting for you on Fox, for example, which whose business model is making us afraid of black people. They've been attacking black people since Fox first started. Now, unemployment benefits, they ran out on Labor Day. The extra $300 that some Americans were getting in blue states, they already got rid of them in the red states, $300 a week taken away from Americans uh, on Labor Day. Here is Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends covering the story. The expanded unemployment benefits that started during the coronavirus pandemic come to an end as of yesterday. The move affecting 8.9 million jobless Americans. Yes, 8.9 million jobless people losing their unemployment benefits, which is a huge problem for African-Americans. Now, according to the Brookings Institute, uh, they did a new study and they say that August's jobs report shows higher unemployment for black workers, just as jobless benefits and eviction protections end. Interesting. This is a problem. This is a serious issue for African-Americans. Systemic racism in America results in higher unemployment for African-Americans. Systemic racism means African-Americans don't get hired the way white people do, and they're more likely to get evicted. So Brian Kilmeade in this story on Fox News raises the issue of the struggling labor market. And I love this. I love this. The struggling labor market. When somebody says struggling labor market, you think, oh, the workers who are struggling, right? That's the term. It's Luntzian. Sounds like something Frank Luntz would come up with, the struggling labor market. Who isn't worried about the struggling labor market? Fox News is worried about the struggling labor market because a lot of their, most of the people watching Fox News, they're not part of the richest 1%. They're worried about the struggling labor market. How will this impact the economy and struggling labor market? After all, there's about 10 million jobs open right now. Ah, ah, there are 10 million jobs open right now. The struggling labor market, hmm, who's struggling? Well, according to Fox and the Republicans, the struggling labor market, the struggle is for the people who own businesses and are struggling to fill 10 million jobs. So the struggling labor market, 
turns out to be rich people struggling with labor. As we all know, the reason these 10 million jobs go unfilled is because Americans want something ridiculous, a livable wage. In other words, they want to go to work and not end up poor. Seems like that's why you would go to work. So you 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 work for money. Uh, so uh, these jobs, the 10 million jobs are unfilled because Americans are waking up. They they want a livable wage and we've closed the border. So there's nobody to take these crappy jobs. And again, uh, this is a problem for African-Americans because they were dragged to this country in 1619 and they were expected to work for, let's see, what were they being paid? Oh, right, right, right. Nothing. They were brought to this country to work for free. So if I were African-American, I would have a serious problem uh, not being paid a livable wage, especially since I was dragged here and told to work for free. So many Americans aren't filling these 10 million jobs. And uh, so what's going on? They're being starved out. And the GOP has been pretty open about this. They have said in the well of the Senate, they haven't said starve them out, but they say the reason these 10 million jobs go unfilled is because of the extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits. And we're now being told by Fox that Americans will come around. They are now gonna come crawling back to their bosses. Those 10 million jobs that nobody can live on are gonna start looking a lot better. Let's hear more from Brian Kilmeade. Let's ask Charles Payne, host of Making Money on Fox Business. Ah, Charles Payne, African-American, conservative. He used to work for E.F. Hutton. I don't know what happened to E.F. Hutton. And then he started his own firm. He was fined by the SEC for $25,000, allegedly for not telling clients that he was recommending stocks to them because he was being paid by the people uh, who, uh, by the companies uh, who issued those stocks. He was allegedly pushing stocks onto his clients because he was being paid to push them. That's not financial advice. That's uh, illegal. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. He uh, took a job on Fox News and uh, says he hates, doesn't hate Obama, but he loves Trump. He falsely claimed that uh, it was Obama who crashed the economy in 2008, not George W. Bush. I don't know how Obama could do that as a candidate. He says the economy was much better under Trump than it was under Obama. And uh, he's a black man on Fox News, which means he was accused of rape by a white woman working at Fox News. Of course, he was completely exonerated. He was. He was suspended and then exonerated. It's odd that a white woman working at Fox would accuse an African-American male of rape. 
You would think that wouldn't happen at Fox News. Anyway, the big question being asked of Charles Payne is, will cutting off the $300 a week finally get Americans to come crawling back to work? Now, most red states have already cut those benefits at the start of the summer. So tell us, Charles Payne, can we finally starve out the dead-enders who refuse to come out of their homes and work for starvation wages? You know, the Republican states have already started taking away this $300 a week. Uh, what's the results there? What do you expect the results to be now, Charles? You've had some people go back to work, but I think the, the mistake is thinking that this whole thing will be instantaneous. Yes, Charles Payne is wise. He's counseling caution. We'll get them. You don't starve 10 million people out of their homes overnight. We'll get them back to work for starvation wages and keep them poor. We'll keep the labor force poor. But how long, how long, Charles Payne, must we wait till we defeat those 10 million Americans who refuse to work at poverty level wages? You know, some, some people have gotten relief for going on a year and a half, 18 months, some longer. People have money in the bank. Uh, households have the greatest balance sheets that they've ever had before. So uh, if the unemployment checks stop today, you've got a whole lot of people who've already said in surveys and other questionnaires that they'll wait. They will wait. This is like economic sanctions against Cuba or Iraq, something this country is really good at right? Starving them to become compliant. Uh, we're, you know, we're even doing economic sanctions on Afghanistan. There's $7 billion in Afghan assets that we've frozen, even though Afghanistan in one month is running out of few food and fuel and will be uh, a humanitarian nightmare. But that's how we bend people to our will economic sanctions. This is what we're imposing on the 10 million Americans who refuse to work at starvation wages. We've done this before. Charles Payne is telling us to calm down. We know how to bring people to their knees. Economic sanctions. Go on. They've got enough money socked away. They haven't paid their rent. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, they've had moratoriums on student loans. They've had moratoriums on mortgages, rents. Uh, they've gotten paid uh, big time money. They've gotten checks from a, a, a variety of uh, federal programs. People actually have money. So it's a mistake to say, OK, uh, XYZ red state stopped on this date and the next day jobs didn't explode. People didn't go back to work. They will eventually as that money runs out. Uh, uh, but you're not going to see an immediate reaction. Thank you, Charles Payne. It takes time. The money will run out. Let's be patient here. And this is the problem with Americans. They want instant gratification. They want those 10 million people to go work for starvation wages right now. But that's not how you win a war. You have to, you have to wait and be patient. This is the problem with Afghanistan, instant gratification. We pulled out of Afghanistan after only 20 years. But if we had the patience, we could have we could have won this. And I think we're going to win this 
I think we're going to fill those 10 million jobs uh, if we just remain patient and wait till more and more Americans take to the streets, and by that I mean live on them, as more and more children in America starve, as more and more Americans die from exposure this winter because they've been evicted. Uh, we'll beat the Americans, Charles Payne. We will. We will defeat America as the Republicans always have. When we come back, we will be joined, I hope, I think, by the great Emmy-nominated Dave Cyrus. Welcome back. Uh, what are we doing here? We're back. Yes, we are. With uh, a 90-second break. Okay. Let us now go to maybe Brooklyn, maybe Los Angeles. It's hard to say. Please welcome... Dave Cyrus. Sorry to keep you waiting. Dave Cyrus is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer, and uh, we're all excited. When are the Emmys? I believe they're next week. I was almost going to go. And then Bill Maher screwed you. Is that what happened? Something happened. Either way, uh, yes, uh, the Delta variant meant they had to significantly reduce the number of people going to the Emmys. And I was the very first person they cut. They cut <laughs> a lot of people, but it was definitely me first. Because <laughs> you're special. Yes. Well, apparently they can no longer afford 700 writers and their friends from SNL. How many writers are there on SNL? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, okay, at ballpark it. 15, 20. That Maybe we know like, of. Might, might be less than 15 on a typical week, but uh, I know that I don't write every episode. I, I'm not writing. Oh, hang on. Writer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hang on for one second. Hang on. I, I, I take these calls. Hello. Hi, is this David Feldman? Yes. Hi, um, this is JJ. I'm a high schooler volunteering with Julie Menning, who's running for city council on the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just calling to real, real quick to let you know that Julie is uh, your Democratic nominee for the city council. Okay. Um, she's been uh, the leader of three different city agencies. Um, she's a lawyer. She's a mom. A lawyer and a mom. Yeah. That's, well, hang on. For, hang on for one second. A, um, public policy. I'm sorry. What was that? You'll, you'll have to excuse me one second here. 
Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. So she's a lawyer and a mom? Yep. That's good. Yeah. And she also teaches a class at Columbia. Ah, great. So yeah. she, she's educating uh, kids at, a, at a, an elite private school? Uh, yeah, well, she, she teaches a class. What does she teach? Uh, I think it's a class on public policy public and how policy. the city council works. What kind of lawyer is she? I'm honestly not sure. You don't know what kind um, of lawyer she is? I mean, you're... you're no. What, what's her name? I mean, I, I don't... Sorry? What's her name? Julie Menon. You could, Julie I'll, I'll Menon. Give you her website. Is she mm -hmm. an heir to the deodorant fortune? I don't think so. Oh. Is she, is she rich? Is she rich? Is she successful? Because here's the thing. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to vote for somebody, I want to make sure that they're, they're, they're bringing success to, to the public square. Is she a successful right. person? I would argue she's very successful. I'm sorry? That I would argue she's very successful. Is she rich? I mean, I, you know, not that it matters, but is she rich? <laughs> Um, I'm not, I'm honestly, I'm not really sure. You could, I, I can give you her. What's her net worth? I'm not sure. Don't you think that's important for me to find out before I cast my ballot? Like, I mean, for example, it, 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 here's, it, it, the, I, here's what I'm concerned about. Okay. Can I tell you what I'm, mm -hmm. I'm concerned about? Yeah, 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 yeah. If I vote for somebody who isn't wealthy, they might introduce legislation that hurts me. Don't you think we should know what our politicians are worth? Can I see your tax returns? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a... That's well, a, what is she for Medicare for uh, all? Is she for Medicare for all? Um, I don't know if she's come out publicly mm. um, with... But what, about I, taxing people I, who, what about taxing people who earn more than $250,000 a year? The same thing, but I, I, I Well, the same thing that she, you don't know. I'm not sure, but I compared to- But she's a to mother AP. and a lawyer. I like that. Because mm -hmm. okay. I, I would like to see more mothers. Listen, yeah, David, she's not She's not like a progressive, like, I, I the reason is like, I don't know like uh, her stance on taxes and Medicare just because that's- But she's not, a mother, I mean, sure. but she's a mother. She is, she is a mother. Okay, yeah. that's important because mm -hmm. we don't have enough mothers. In, right, uh, but if you're if you're worried about the the taxing issue, she's definitely not. She's not in the same ideological sphere as like AOC. Um, <laughs> Can I rinse your mouth out with soap? I mean, I like the idea of AOC, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. but, you know, but, but is she, okay. Let me ask you: What, what is it? Menon, right? Yep. And yep. You can look. You look her up. And she's a, she teaches law at Columbia. She teaches uh, a public policy class at Columbia. And she's a lawyer. Where'd she go to law school? I think Northwestern. Well, that's a good, good, good law school. Where'd she go to undergrad? It's a great school. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I actually I, I talked to her about where she went to law school. Now. And what, and what is she running for sure again? What is she running for again? Uh, city council in S District Five. That's my district. Yeah, so she already won the Democratic primary. Hey, let me ask the, you a question. Mm -hmm, yep. This kind of, where does she stand on rent control? Sorry, I said that again? Rent control. Rent control? Yeah. 
I'm not sure. Um, you think? Guess, would you agree? Would, would you think she would? Between you and me, she would side uh, with the landlords during this eviction crisis over the tenants who have been getting a free ride for a year and a half, right? I think that's a, that's definitely an interesting question, and honestly, I think she would give she gives answer to these questions on her website but i also i want to give you my like i i do think that out of any of the candidates that she was at least running against in the primary and that she beat she would be the one that would side with the landlords she would side with the landlords but i'm not i'm listen don't take my word for that i honestly have no idea but I think just because she has a she's a huge connection to small businesses. Yes. Um, yes. Let me ask you a city. question. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a way to donate to her? Yeah, of course. Mm. And, and what can I donate to her? Um, well, like, what do you mean? Well, do I have to donate money? That's a good question. Thank you. Can uh, I give her colon cancer instead? Can you give her colon cancer? Yeah, can I can I somehow give her colon cancer? Well, how would that work? Uh, I would give her colon cancer instead of money. Is that possible for me to? Do you know of any way to give? Uh, what's her first name? Uh, Julie. Julie Menon. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to give her colon cancer? I mean. It- I, I Do I have know. to declare that in an SEC filing? Um, anyway, hey, listen, let me think about mm-hmm. this. Uh, thank okay. you, for, thank you for calling. Her name is Julie Menon, and yeah. she's running for city council here in Manhattan. And she sides with the landlords, which means it's okay to evict people, right? Well, no, I don't. I, I, I take, How much I are you getting paid? Back. How much are you getting paid to do this? Uh, zero dollars. You're doing this just out of the goodness in your heart. Yeah, this is also it's my first day back. So that's are you I'm, getting I'm college not. credit for this? I mean, why would you do this? Um, I don't know because I, I like the experience. Um, are you rich? Are your parents rich? Uh, Come on. I don't Nothing know. Nothing to be ashamed <laughs> of. Come on. It's the Upper East Side. No. Come on. I mean, I don't live on the Upper East Side. I know. Oh, but you come from a rich family, don't you? I can no. tell. Uh, you're not worried about getting evicted, are you? Right? You're one. You're I'm on not the, worried about getting evicted. You're not uh, worried about getting evicted. Good for you. I think. Good listen, for you. And that's why you should fight for Julie Menon for city council, because you don't worry about getting evicted. That's good. How old are you? Uh, 32. 32. And, yep. and this, it's good for you to get involved in politics and make the world better because these people who are being evicted have had a free ride for way too long. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah, totally. What about getting rid of the homeless shelters? Where does she stand on that? Oh, okay. I offended him. I would have rather listened to you ask him to describe the size and taste of his penis (laughs) than doing what you just did. 
And by the way, David, as I know you relish cruelty to strangers, uh, just in case you were curious about who Julie Menon actually is, uh, she was the former head of the uh, New York City Department of Consumer Affairs. Mm. Uh, Under her leadership, uh, consumer restitution went up 72%. And Which is she nothing. Also resulted saying in nothing. Fifty million dollars being returned to low-income New Yorkers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How much? New York City paid. How much? Leave. She implemented New York City's paid sick leave law and launched a new earned income tax credit that resulted in two hundred and fifty million dollars returned to low-income New York citizens. Not my problem. I know. Do you know who she is? Not really. I just spent all that time looking her up. Yeah. And not on her own website on, you know, mm-hmm. like public ones just to see what she was about. Well, she, know, should, like she's a, she should she's hire a better consumer. people. Sounds like she's got a bit of a consumer advocate uh, background. And, and well, and let me just say non- something about protecting consumers. Nonprofit. And yes, you're oh, yeah, right. Hang on for it's one second. To get people to work great for free. Protecting, I'm not going to tell you that's not protecting true. I work in Hollywood. We have to deal with free interns all day. Protecting consumers. That's protecting people who consume, who have money. Everyone consumes. Not if you're poor. The, poor, the poorest people consume, uh, I would say, not even that much less than rich people. Poor people have to consume in order to survive. They have to, when a poor person gets money back in there, you know, from a tax credit, that money goes directly back into the economy because they need things. When a rich person does it, they just put it in their, their bank account or give it to their stockbroker. All right. How are you, sir? I was great. I, that was ugly. Yes, yes, it was. It was very I ugly. Mean, remember, that was a progressive volunteer that you were berating. I heard it differently. No, no, you heard someone who wanted to get you off the phone and was just sort of yesing you because he's a volunteer, so he doesn't really have a lot of incentive to know literally everything about the candidate. But, you know, he probably just saw her as the uh, progressive option and so wanted to volunteer. Well, this is why you should never do shows live. Well, you know, look, the man was trying to pander to you Mm -hmm. because he is a volunteer who didn't want to spend the rest of his life on the phone with you. Right. So it's telling me that he's siding with landlords when it comes to rent control and evictions. I beyond honestly, it didn't sound like he was even listening to what you were saying at that point. It sounded like he was just kind of half awake guessing you <laughs> well i was half awake too so well that's just, All right. just something happens this is this is why nobody should call me yeah no no i mean I, at the very least you definitely reduced his desire to help <laughs> this will definitely be at least a factor in why he gives up and has kids and only cares about their lives Right. Seems like a a weird way to decide. It seems like a waste of time to volunteer for somebody like that. Well, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that if he called me, I would have just said city council. I vote for the big offices. I'm not some nobody. (laughs) I'm a joker. That's the problem with being a comedy writer. I vote for president and that's it. It all filters down. You're wasting your time with the little stuff. As a, when you write for late night, you stop paying attention. You can't focus on local politics because the boss won't buy jokes. 
that are local. No, and, and the truth is liberals don't really care about local politics. That's how the Republicans are able to gerrymander everything. Yes. While everyone else was concentrating on senators and presidents, they were filling up these state houses with nobodies who were then able to just change the way voting works. Right. So, yeah, we do have a problem with our side not caring about smaller issues. But still, he, he needed to pay. He needed to pay for trying to tell us stuff. The kid. Well, he's yes. 32. He's not a kid. Uh, he's a kid to you. Hey, <laughs> Char- Chuck Grassley is a kid to me. Yes, the senator, yes. Senator Leahy, is uh, a kid to me. You used to call you old man. So one more week of summer left. What do you think? Thank God, I can't wait for it to get less hot. I don't need it. Yeah, these days I I just wait for it to rain so I can jog. It it was beautiful two days ago. I stepped outside. And it was a beautiful fall day here in Manhattan. And I thought... What, the 11th? No, the 10th. Ah. Two days ago was the 11th. But what does that mean? Well, it was a beautiful day. And hmm. it reminded people how September 11th, the original one, was actually a, an oddly nice weather-wise day. And it always is a little bit weird how it, it kind of falls on a time of the year that's usually pretty beautiful. Right. Yeah. Where were you on September 11th? I was visiting my brother in college in Boston. And I you, had... You were, you were up in... You're talking about the Saturday. You were visiting your brother. I'm sorry. I was making... Yes. No, I was... Uh, but in the, on 9-11... In Boston? I was visiting my brother in Did Boston. Did you fly out of Logan? I, no, I drove, actually. At least that's, I drove. that's what you're telling the authorities. I drove to Boston. But of course... The, the airport, the, the planes that would have left Logan were going cross country because they had full gas tanks. Mine would have just been going to LA, uh, Boston to New York anyway. But I, I drove and I had to actually had to stay longer because I was going to drive back on September 11th. But of course, roads were closed and I did have a very unique experience. I probably did. Unfortunately, it's sad to be able to say this, but I've never really done a lot of good in my life. But maybe the best thing I ever did was stand up in a frat house and point my finger at a bunch of angry young kids and literally say the words, no, we're not going to go find a towel head. That's not going to happen, guys. Sit the fuck down. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of teenagers, drunk teenagers getting riled up on 9-11. And their first instinct was, yeah, let's go find an Arab person to beat up. And I, you know, not sound, not exactly, you know, heroic actions. I think most people would have done this. I wagged my finger at the kid and I, and I very disdainfully said, no, we're not going to do that. Sit down. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it was I'm very disturbing. Di- it's very disturbing. It is disturbing. And I'm in such denial about how bad we, <laughs> so many Americans are in the kind of households they, they were raised in. I mean, they went to kindergarten. That stuff, you think it's squeezed out of them in kindergarten. Well, we thought, well, when Trump got elected, we thought, we never imagined that many people were that bad. We all we never imagined that many people were just hiding it. We thought everyone was really as decent as they projected themselves. And uh, yeah, when 9-11 happened, people I know who are progressive, who are nice, who are decent people, who do not side with the right wing on that day. We're talking about I want a body count. I want to see piles of bodies and retaliation for this. I don't like people wanted blood so badly. I remember my first thought when 9-11 happened, my very first thought was Jesus Christ, 
I hope they don't start just attacking Arab people in the streets. That was my first instinct of, oh, my God, because my my thought even was kind of in line with what Al Qaeda wanted, which was, oh, my God, this could start a, a kind of a wave of racial violence that they would then take advantage of. And it didn't not domestically. But uh, my first instinct was I was like, I feel bad for any cab driver who's, you know, because they have they're just they're alone. They're just in this city and there could be people just looking to hurt someone. I knew a, uh, a woman who uh, an, a woman from India who ran the, lo- the store near my house who was terrified. Suddenly, everything was different. You know, I think th- there was maybe one case that week of uh, an attack that I remember of a man in Texas tried to run over a Sikh. It's, right. It was very, very scary because I really was afraid that America was going to whip itself into that. And I'm glad that that at least wasn't what happened. A lot of bad things happened, though. It's mind-boggling how stupid. Not, not all Americans are stupid. You Enough are. Enough are. This is the same country that gave us Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez, Ralph Nader. There are a lot of great Americans where you can be really proud of who we are. There's a vocal minority that somehow rises to the top too often and they ruin it for the rest of us. Well, you know, George Carlin many years ago said that he thinks where America really made a big mistake was he said in the 70s and 80s, there was a real movement for self-esteem and that increasing children's self-esteem was what would make people healthier. And then he said the problem was it turns out rapists and murderers think very highly of themselves. And a lot of bad people. Carlin Carlin said that? Yes. Yes, he did. That was a Carlin joke, and he meant it. And it was the idea that, like, yeah, the problem was self-esteem didn't make you a better person. It just made you more confident with whatever you were. Yeah. And we have a problem of extreme confidence among people who have no, who have not earned it at all. Can I give you a compliment? And, and in giving you this compliment, it is an example of what is so sorely missing from the American people, or at least the right As a comedy writer, you were forced to blend into the fabric. You were forced to accept that you're not always right, to obey the leadership, as long as you thought the leadership was worthy of being obeyed, and sometimes you don't always get your way. You changed as a comedy writer. You cannot thrive Mm -hmm. as a comedy writer unless you're open to other people's opinions about comedy. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. You don't want to stay the same forever. You but can't but just you needed track. to do, but you, like me, like most comedy writers, had to reevaluate uh, what they thought about comedy because it's, you have to compromise. You have to listen to others. You can't be the smartest guy in the room. If you want to be a comedy writer, you have to accept that everybody around the table has something to offer and show up, do your job. It's the way that narcissists can't improve themselves. Right. Because they can't admit that there's anything to improve. 
they can't get help because right. if you have too much of an ego, you don't believe that there's anything left for you to know. You don't want to learn new things. Right. And so there is a type of comedy writer, they're called unemployed, who spend their time trying to destroy people who are funnier and smarter than they are in the room. Right? I guess, yeah. I guess. There's always somebody, tends to be a white male, who gets hired and suddenly discovers that there, there may be people who know just as much or maybe even more and may be sharper and funnier. I better destroy them. And you know, it's, it's a, a lot of comedians don't want to see other people succeed. Right. There's no question of that. And that is a right wing tendency. That's why you have Bobert, you have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who call themselves anti-authoritarian. But what they're really anti is anybody who reminds them of how stupid they are. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain imp there's an impotence, impudent people. Yeah, they just that's who Don you have to be able to. There, I see a lot of comics who are still 20 years ago, and they look at any change in any sensibility as an attack on them personally. Right. You know, there are words that were okay to use once that they're not now, and it doesn't mean that you are a monster for using them because some of these words had very different connotations, and. You're not going to go anywhere just sitting there complaining that you can't say the M word anymore for little person. Right. And believe me, a lot of comedians do that. I, the most progressive comedians I've ever seen will, will go on and on about all their progressive bona fides. And then when they get to the M word, say, nope, it's a comedy word. I need it. I can't survive without it. Yeah. But it's interesting. It's one of the lessons you and I both experienced that we had to change. We were, we were broken men, intimidated. We got thrust into writing rooms where we, we suddenly not only found out that uh, we weren't the funniest people in the world, which we already suspected, but there were a lot of people who were much smarter than we were, and we had to keep our mouth shut and just learn and accept that we're not the center of the universe. I like to think... That's what people on the left, that's who they are. I like to think that people on the right are jealous and don't well, want to, uh, are, are not capable of acknowledging what they don't know and that others well, may Well, I think know that something. goes along with the concept that I've brought up before in your show, which is that there are psychological studies that show that children who become liberals are more adaptable, that the biggest identifier of a child who will become a liberal as opposed to a conservative is the ability to adapt to a new environment and a marker of a conservative is someone who then tries to change their environment back to the one they're used to. Right. And that, yeah, that goes along with just literally it's the same concept that a conservative is someone who stands athwart history and says, stop. They just don't like change. Or black people. Well, Bill Buckley said because Treating black people like human beings is change. Right. Plain and simple. Oh, yes. Jesus Christ, David. We're out of time.
Okay. So you're not I, I, I ate into, I apologize. I ate into your time. I, I made a promise to myself that I was going to answer all spam calls that, that, that come in and, uh, Oh, no, believe me, there's nothing more fun than putting the recorder on when someone tries to convince you you have to send them money. Right. And I will stop. That I love. Yeah. I have so many recordings that they they never go far. They always hang up on me. But I'm always trying so hard to keep them on the phone when they're trying to convince me to that the IRS wants me to send them an Amazon gift card. Right. Sorry for eating into your time. I, I will talk to you on Friday. Yes. Okay. Dave Maybe. Cyrus. Follow Dave Cyrus on Twitter at Dave Cyrus, right? Yeah. And are like you doing virus. any stand-up before we say- You know what? This comes out Tuesday. I just might be stopping by the Eastville Comedy Club in Brooklyn uh, tonight uh, for the, uh, the the comedy, whatever, New York Comedy Festival. Yeah. For okay. uh, Patrick Haggerty's show, if you look it up. Okay. Thank you, Dave Cyrus. Thank you. Michael Ortega is running for the U.S. House seat, California's 46th Congressional District. And we will tell you how to donate and get him elected. But first, let's go to Los Angeles where Howie Klein is standing by. Are you there, Howie? I'm here. You bet I am. Good. Thank God. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America PAC which raises money for candidates like Michael Ortega. We have some new listeners. Wait, wait. Every, every time I've been on the show for the last three years, you say we raise money for Democrats and socialists. We now have a real socialist and you don't mention it. Before, here, here's what I'm going to do. Before, I'm going to let you take it over. Let me just say, we have some new listeners. And if Howie Klein endorses somebody on this show, that means you go to their website and you give them money. If you live in California's 46th congressional district, you volunteer for Michael Ortega. Listeners to my show know that we only trust Ralph Nader and Howie Klein when it comes to our voting. So please tell us who to vote for, Howie Klein. First, I'm gonna tell you who not to vote for, okay? <laughs> okay. I just read this. I, I, don't know, I don't know if other people saw it before, but I'm just seeing it for the first time. So on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, they're, they're marking up their part of the, uh, the re reconciliation bill and three Democrats have decided they're going to put a stop to lowering the, the price of drugs. I mean, that's a key part of the plan to, to make prescription drugs less expensive. Kurt Schrader, a blue dog from Oregon, Kathleen Rice, a new dem from Long Island, and Pete, I'm sorry, uh, Scott Peters, a, um, a new dem from California, from the San Diego area. Those three are preventing the, uh, the, the lowering of prescription drugs. So everyone should remember their names. Now, another name to remember is the, uh, is the blue dog. Mike is, is on with us, right? Yes. Yeah, the blue dog that Mike Ortega is, is running against. 
that's a name that you should never forget because he is one of them. He is one of the ones that the DCCC is always uh, saying, well, he's better than a Republican. But how is it better than a Republican when these people are doing this kind of thing, like stopping prescription drugs? How does that make it better than a Republican? That's what Republicans do, too. Anyway, Mike, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you decided that you wanted to run and who you're running against? You're not running against a Republican, are you? No, sorry. No, sorry. How are you doing? It's great to meet you, David. Um, long story short is um, I, I had a active youth in the socialist movement as a teenager, early teens, when the invasion of Iraq and invasion of Afghanistan happened. And those events radicalized me. Uh, I grew up uh, in Newark, New Jersey, rough town. And uh, when I saw Bush and Cheney talking about their plans to invade, I was like, oh, these guys are conmen. I've seen this before. Uh, (laughs) And as a teenager, that's what made me um, really look for answers, march against the war. I took a break from politics to to get my career in order. Today, I'm a medical engineer um, at a biomedical device company. And as I started seeing the political landscape transform across the country, um, as my life settled down, I said, you know, I have so many years on the ground doing grassroots and seeing people like AOC and Ilan Omar challenging uh, the establishment Democrats. Um, I said, you know, I think I got the guts to, to try to put my, my name in the in the ring with these guys. Um, me and my wife, we got married. We shortly thereafter got pregnant. I just had my son. And a big part of me was like, I, when my son grows up, uh, I, I, I hate to, to interrupt in the you. Fight. I hate to interrupt you. You were supposed to do our show on Labor Day. What? Well, hang on, hang on. Did you have your baby on Labor Day? So my baby held in there for one day. He was born the day after. Ah, okay, good. Your wife was your wife was in labor for a really long time, wasn't she? She was in labor on Labor Day. She had about twenty four hours. Twenty four hours in labor. That's good. I'm glad he wasn't born on Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the, the uh, U.S. sanitized version of the celebration of labor. I agree. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. I just uh, was curious. Please go ahead. And, tell, and also talk a little bit about Luke Correa and, and why you're running against uh, against another Democrat. Uh, look, Lou, Lou would have been a Republican if it wasn't for uh, some of his positions on immigration. Uh, he said this publicly. He, the guy's been elected in office for like almost 30 years. California State Assembly, Orange County Supervisor. Now he's sort of the next one that's been chosen by the establishment to uh, uh, hold this seat in Southern California. And this guy is a old school establishment right wing Democrat, hands down. Um, he does not support Medicare for all does not support a Green New Deal. Uh, There is no difference between him and the Republicans, if you ask us and if you look at the policies down the line. Um, And if we take that a step further on the question of immigration, uh, I believe he's co-sponsoring a bill to actually increase funding for ICE. which flies in the face of, of everyone that, that lives in this community, which is predominantly um, people of Latino uh, heritage, uh, a lot of Mexican immigrants, as well as some Asian immigrants. And so um, he, he plays a good part on TV, but then in committee in, 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 uh, in D.C., he's a lackey for the corporate interests. 
And you, and it's in Orange County, right? That's correct. So uh, what used to be Reagan country. You have an Orange County um, district. And the warning would be, well, if we get rid of this conservative Democrat, will the Republicans take over the seat? Yeah, you know, the, this fear mongering by the Democratic establishment, something that we got to get over. Uh, and it's if like you put yours, real politics in front of people. Well, my position is you put real politics in front of people, you answer the issues that they're confronting, you help their living standards, and they will stand behind you. Now, if you're a Democrat that stabs them in the back on a regular basis, I mean, it's no surprise that they're not going to come out in numbers for you. Um, but our campaign is trying to actually put those working class issues front and center here in this district. That is 70, 80 percent working class in Orange County. So we feel like it would make a national splash if we're able to get a win for a progressive. Folks like to call Reagan country. How, how did they uh, how did they respond to Bernie in your district? Do you know? He got a wonderful response. Like Bernie is super popular amongst Latinos. Uh, I, I have this shirt that says Theo Bernie, which was a very common way to refer to Bernie uh, amongst the Latino community out here. Um, in this district, we ran the numbers, we looked at it, and he won almost 50% uh, of the votes during the Democratic primary in 2020. It, the next closest was Biden at just shy of 20%. So he's he received a wonderful uh, response out here. So folks weren't afraid of the word socialist. Folks weren't afraid of the politics he was putting forward. And um, we think what this district needs is a candidate that's actually going to represent those values. Great. And and basically, you're running on many of the same issues that, Ber- that Bernie ran on, right? Absolutely. Uh, to begin with, uh, Medicare for all is front center for me. Um, this is an issue that needs to be brought to vote in the House and in the Senate. And we need to see where people stand on these issues. Uh, The United States is the only advanced economy that doesn't have a single payer healthcare system. And this is because powerful lobbying interests in pharma and the insurance industries have made sure to pay off the politicians they need to. And on that list is Lou Correa, the guy I'm running against. If you just run, look at his background, his number one donors donors come from big pharma. And so we're, we're, we're hoping to uh, add a little weight to the Medicare for all demand. I want to I ask you about another issue that doesn't get talked about that much, which is, which is the, the budgeting that the House is doing for the Pentagon. I mean, they're, 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 where's the peace dividend from bringing our troops home from Afghanistan? And how, how, how are you, what's going to be your attitude and your posture towards this annually, annual idea of increasing the budget for, um, for the Pentagon? Yeah, you know, listen, the war hawks, both in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, a lot of times will trip over themselves talking about how much more we need to fund defense. But if if you're paying attention, trillions of dollars have been wasted in these wars uh, in the war on terror. And I would go as far as to say in the Cold War, once upon a time, uh, money that could be going toward social services, toward uh, putting people to work with a Green New Deal type of job. Uh, right now is being thrown into missiles that 
the United States doesn't need, and for ultimately profiteering from the defense industries, right? And much of that money gets no oversight. Much of it goes into these black budgets that then go to these secret meetings in Congress that then go for reviews amongst uh, secret auditors. Um, Those books need to be opened. Those books need to be opened for us to be able to see how much money is being sunk into spying on us and building uh, instruments of war that we don't need. So would you feel comfortable uh, telling people who, who in the 46th district that if you're elected, you're not going to be willing to increase the, uh, the Pentagon's budget? My vote will be no every time an attempt to increase the Pentagon's budget uh, is presented on the floor, period. Congratulations. That's, that's a good answer. <laughs> and and when when you talk about the Green New Deal in, in your district, in, in this Orange County district, how do people react to that? What 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 do they what does it mean to them? Look, folks, uh, right now a lot of the Republican, a lot of the right wing talking points is they don't want to give a handout, right? I mean, David, you've heard this stuff on TV. Uh, The reality is that working people want a good paying job at union scale wages. People want to be able to earn their living and have dignity. And so talking about a Green New Deal, it's not a handout. It is infrastructure that's desperately needed. I mean, in California, we've been suffering a drought for decades and increasingly violent firestorm. Now, Part of the Green New Deal could be addressing some of the infrastructure needed to actually address some of the water crisis as well as the energy crisis uh, that is resulting in in a lot of these wildfires. Folks that want to work can have access to those jobs. We put the money into the training, move some of that defense money instead of developing the next generation uh, fighter jet that will take 15, 20 years to develop. And by the time they develop it, they're going to tell us they're going to need double that. Instead of spending that money there, spend that money here, rebuilding the roads, rebuilding the bridges and developing the energy infrastructure to reduce our reliance on uh, fossil fuels. Right? And so folks that are here want a job. And so I think that looking at FDR, what the New Deal did 100 years ago, Let's take a look at that today and say, hey, we need we need our moon landing today. And that moon landing is eliminating reliance on fossil fuels. And we can do that today if we had the political will and the political courage. Mike, are there members of Congress who you admire enough to say that you want to work with them on uh, on legislation? Why are you trying to get me in trouble? You over here, you're trying to get me in trouble, dropping names in a... (laughs) In the chat, but there's a number of people. But I think Ilan Omar is one of the people I admire most. Uh, she's somebody that's under fire constantly by the racist right wing media, by uh, ultra right paramilitary racists all over the internet and even in person. And so you got to figure the kind of bravery she needs to have to put and, herself out there. And grifters on the left. <laughs> grifters on the left. Um, folks love to use her as. Uh, kind of fodder for their criticisms of the of the progressive left, but at, at the core of it, I'm going to argue at the core of it is Islamophobia and racism. Okay, 
Good. She's great. I've known her for many years, including when she was just a uh, state legislator before she even think I even thought about running for Congress. And you're right. She she's an incredible person. I'm glad to hear you want to uh, you want to work with her. Is there anyone in California? Are there any of, of the California uh, members of Congress who you admire? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break on that question. I'm going to say pass on that one. Uh, I, I don't want to be stepping on any toes for, uh, any of the folks, but there's definitely some good people that are running and I'll leave it at that. Ah, okay. The, the correct any... answer was Ted Lou, but go ahead. <laughs> or, or, or Ro Connor. <laughs> Ted and, and Ro, you know what? I respect those guys. You know, I look forward to seeing them in, in the halls of Congress. But um, I, I think both of them, hey, they say some great things, you know, but even on some, a lot of the positions, I feel like they're a little moderate. Great. Okay. Well, now maybe I'm too look- much on the left. All right. Maybe I'm too far on the left. Never too far on the left for this show. <laughs> uh, uh, is, there, is there an issue other than Medicare for All that is a real motivator in your, in your district specifically? Uh, that when you're talking to people about you running and, and you're asking them to, to defeat someone they've been, they've been voting for in the past, is there something that really motivates them to think, yeah, Mike's our guy, the hell with Lou? Hands down, the question of legalization, amnesty for undocumented workers is the issue for this district. Now, Lou runs, I'm from an immigrant community, I support immigrant rights, but when the demands have come out to demand uh, amnesty, releasing the kids from cages that are at the border, uh, reducing the funding of ICE, he doesn't stand for any of that. And the truth of the matter is that under Reagan, they gave a mass amnesty to undocumented workers. There's no reason that you cannot demand it today. And the reality is, is that the folks that live and work in this district, many of them don't have documents, but they've been working here and living here, paying taxes for 10, 15, 20 years. I have family that uh, this year uh, was rounded up by ICE here in Southern California. Someone that's worked in um, hospice care, for about a little over 20 years, 21 years, she's worked here taking care of the elderly and paid her taxes, lived lived a good life. And out of the blue, it's under the current administration, she got rounded up and shipped off her and her wife um, back to Mexico. You're saying and under the Biden the owner administration? Of, the Biden administration. This is, under, this is under the Biden administration. This was a few months ago. And I'm going to just say folks noticed here because it's impacting all of our families. Uh, Driving down the freeway in California near San Diego, you notice the immigration trucks, the enforcement trucks going up and down the freeway. I've lived in California over 15 years and I've never seen immigration out in force on the freeways looking for people to pull over and people to harass. And I've been seeing that an increase in victimization of the immigrant community over the past few months. And I think someone needs to speak about it. And I feel like it needs to be addressed. And we need to address how do we get not some abstract pathway to uh, citizenship that'll take someone 10, 15 years to get as a somewhat broken promise that might change administrations three times over. We need amnesty now. Do you mind if I ask a follow-up question, Howie? 
No, please take over. No, 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 no. You're doing great. I just wanted to ask about, obviously, you believe in abolishing ICE. You agree with AOC. How? Hands down. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One is, can you name one contribution that ICE makes to the American people? Why, why there's any reason we need ICE? Just imagine any excuse to keep ICE that is somewhat reasonable. And secondly, with the Tuesday recall, Gavin Newsom, how was he with ICE? Did he cooperate with ICE as governor of California? I'll tell you, Gavin Newsom's a pretty politically savvy guy. So um, there's definitely some criticisms you could levy at him, but he has been one of the folks that has not cooperated with ICE, at least publicly. Now, I don't know what happens in back rooms. What is he officially in his said? Conversations. Just out of curiosity. But his official position is that uh, California should be considered a sanctuary state. I believe he said this in, in his in his time. Recently, a few months ago, um, California's universal health program for low-income uh, workers was expanded to include undocumented workers. This was maybe two, three months ago. Now, did the recall trigger him to try to make some moves to win support amongst the Latino community? Probably. He wasn't doing that well with us before that, right? Um, on, a, on, the, on the question of ICE, I'm going to argue ICE does zero to help the American people. You it ask hurts ICE the supporters American people. or supporters of immigration. Uh, they're going to say that, well, they stop drug trafficking. They stop human trafficking. Um, I'm going to argue that they are more complicit in the trafficking of drugs and other illegal activities than any of us think or any of us would know. Now, look, I'm not going to levy specific things that might get me in trouble with the law, but there's no way the volume of drugs that comes into the United States can happen without some cooperation on both sides of the border by certain government officials. Now, I'm going to just step aside from that. And really what ICE has done, and if you look at their caseload over the past several years, you see that most of their work is terrorizing working families, period. Either of those things, human trafficking or drug enforcement can be handled by different departments, right? You've got the DEA, you've got the FBI, they can handle those. ICE as an organization, I feel like we can abolish and um, there's a phrase in Spanish, which means go to work. So all those former ICE officers, they can go get a regular job like the rest of us. What is the connection between the 10 million jobs that can't be filled and cracking down on the border? Oof, uh, that, that's a complex question. But this was seen before. There are some jobs that are particularly low paying jobs and non-union jobs and many times they are filled by people who are undocumented during covid and during the immigration crackdowns toward the end of the trump administration which haven't stopped it's not like there's been a unilateral like halt to the enforcement of immigration laws on on working families that has continued under the biden administration um, you're seeing the impact in the fields and in the workplaces american workers are having to look for new jobs and there's what they're seeing at minimum wage and what they're seeing in the working conditions, how extreme the working conditions are that undocumented workers, immigrant workers face. They don't want to do those jobs. They are hard 
heavy jobs. They squeeze every bit of lifeblood out of you in those kind of jobs. And I, and I had some experience as an organizer in those days. I worked in the meatpacking industry as a butcher, as a, and I was also an organizer for the UFCW. I worked at a sweatshop. If you've ever heard of the name brand American Apparel, I worked in their factory in downtown Los Angeles for several years. Great and owner, tell you, very, very good owner. Breaking right? work. The owner was very sweet and compassionate, right? No comment. Is he, did he go to jail? I wish. No, he just he got kicked off for the board. I think they looked into possibly pressing charges, but I, I don't think there were under uh, weren't there wasn't there underaged kids involved? There were questions about underaged women that he was going after. But you know what? I'm not an authority on the topic. I'm gonna keep my hands clean. I, no comment. Good answer. I like that. <laughs> But look, that, that Dove Charney was a scumbag. I'm going to just leave it at that. Dove Charney right. was a scumbag. Um, but I worked at the facility, and let me tell you, like a lot of injuries, a lot of people get hired and fired because they speak up or they try to organize or um, they maybe want to have a break at, at some point before lunch. They will fire you without thinking twice about it. And they rely on fluxes of undocumented workers coming in and out in order to maintain their business model. It's a part of American business having undocumented workers work some of these heavy labor jobs. So it is my official position that if they're good enough to work in a, factories in the United States, in fields in the United States, in coal mines in the United States, good enough to get citizenship. You're a socialist. Absolutely. What are you going to say when your opponent accuses you of being what you are? Uh, I openly embrace it. The Cold War is over. And as we can see, capitalism is not working for most people in the United States. The top 1% own most of the wealth. They're they're the ones that make profit off of our student loans. They make the profit off of our car loans. They make this they make the profit off of the work that we do. And on the flip side, working people have less in their pockets than they have in generations. And we see this with the millennials today that are kind of complaining they can't afford to buy a house, they can't afford to buy a car. And it's not a matter of them eating too much avocado toast. And it's not a matter of them uh, making bad life decisions. It's that the economy has sucked the wealth dry out of working and middle-class families. Now, wealth, it's not that it disappeared, it went somewhere. Mm -hmm. It went to the top 1% of 1%. And it is my official position that uh, that 1%, that's who's funding loop. And that's why he's trying to scare people into telling them that I'm a socialist. But as a socialist, what does that even mean? I'm saying I believe that if you work a full-time job in the United States, you deserve to live with dignity. You deserve to have access to health care. You deserve to have access to education. And you have the right to be a citizen. And if that's a socialist, you call me what he wants. But if he doesn't stand with me on those things, uh, what does that say about who he is? What do you think the tax rate should be? On the high end. Oof. On the high end? So on the high end, there during some of the most prosperous periods in U.S. history, and this is me shooting from the hip, um, I believe the top income tax rate above X million dollars uh, was something on the order of 80, 90%. Now, one of the challenges, though, is 
a lot of loopholes have been put into place to protect the wealthy, right? And so the taxes wind up burdening middle income people. And so what's more important, I think, than just the tax rate, it's how we enforce tax um, on wealth itself, because the wealthy are very smart with how they hide their money. I mean, uh, look at Jeff Bezos. I mean, this guy has been dodging taxes like a criminal for years under the pretext of law. So when they talk about tax loopholes, I think a big part of that is looking at inheritance, wealth inheritance. We're talking about uh, capital accumulation. We're talking about cutting out those ways that the super wealthy try to hide their money, right? Once you're able to actually see how much money they're really making or handing down to their next generations, then I think we can actually get a decent idea of what we need that top tax rate to be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. We have limited time left. David Cobb is about to join us. Howie, uh, why don't we wrap it up with one final question and how do people give money? Yeah, why, why don't you why don't you explain that how people give money to your campaign? What, where where do they go to give you a contribution? Well, there's a few places. The first place I'd encourage people to go is OrtegaForCongress.com, and there'll be a donate link uh, at the top of the page. Uh, you can also check out Howie's website, Blue America, and through there you can see me and other awesome progressives that are running, and you can donate to our campaign through that page. But when when somebody when so, say someone got like ten dollars, does that do any good? Does, does it matter to you? Absolutely, hands down. Now, small dollar donations are absolutely welcome and encouraged. Small dollar donations help us in the argument that hey, Lou is being backed by a small group of wealthy donors, whereas our base is working people and our base is regular everyday Americans. And the more small dollar donations we get, it, it, it kind of tells that story for us. And has that already started happening for you? We've started to see it little by little trickle in. I mean, you know, we, you know that we announced and we formally filed to run about a month ago, but we've we've had a tremendous response and we are ecstatic at, at uh, the prospects that we have for fundraising this year to really launch the fight that we need to do next year going into the primaries. Are you a millionaire? <laughs> Far from it. Far from it. I, uh, I was raised by two working class uh, immigrant parents from Puerto Rico, Ecuador. They uh, they had less than a high school education. So they grew up impoverished. I've done OK for myself. I have, I'm a medium to high income earner. Um, but coming from those roots, you know, there's a lot of debt that you come saddle down with. Plus, I can't let my family go without. So there's a lot of me covering medical bills and all that kind of stuff. So no, I haven't managed to amass my million dollars yet. Do you take corporate funding? No, I refuse to take corporate PAC money or corporate funding at all. Will you come back next week? If you want, I'll definitely be here. Of course. Here. And in the meantime- Next week starts my paternity leave, so I'm actually gonna be able to be home. Maybe I'll sneak my baby on the call. Okay, OrtegaForCongress.com. Mr. Ortega is endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know on this show. If you have $5 and you're an American citizen, or if you are here, I think if you have a green card, I don't know what, right? If you have President a green card yeah. or a visa, you can donate by going to OrtegaForCongress.com. I don't ask for much of my listeners. Please go to OrtegaForCongress.com. Not a penny 
will be wasted. And hopefully we'll talk to you next week. Before, thank you, Mr. Ortega. And Mike, before before you leave, the answer to the pop quiz that uh, Feldman sprung on you, 94%. There That's you go. The, the, the highest tax rate in U.S. history was at 94%. Uh, it was uh, just after World War II. Uh, it was one of the most prosperous uh, eras. The, the, the science, the hard data is clear that actually progressive taxing is good for working class, ordinary Americans. So I thought I'd, I'd share that. Great. Thank, Thank you. I appreciate that. That sounds like you want to write up some of my stump speech. Thank you so well, much. Well, you actually, do you, do you know David Cobb? I, we've not met before. All right, so I'll let you, the, the Howie Klein, David Cobb, and Mike Ortega should all know each other. And bef- thank you. Good to meet you. I'm I'm two minutes late for leaving. Mike, talk to you soon. Uh, David, I'll see you uh, next week. Uh, next week. And quick Mike, question before nice. you go, Howie Klein. Been nice to meet. But, but Howie, before you go. Yeah. Recall. What's the? How's it going to play out? Oh, to- I, I think that uh, it, it'll be. Uh, uh, It'll be turned down by double digits. I think there's going to be a huge, uh, a, a huge turnout, and um, there there will be no recall. In other That's words, the Republicans will call it a, a, a huge steal, a huge steal. Howie Klein. Yeah. In fact, uh, Larry Elder already has his his legal team uh, ready to file uh, 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 fraud charges against. Uh, the state of California. It's just a joke. This is what the Republicans are going to do from now on. But I really do have to go. Oh, thank you, Howie Klein. Thank you, Mike Ortega. Ortega for Congress.com. Go there right now, please, and give him money. If you have $5 instead of, you know, the proverbial coffee from Starbucks or don't eat that donut, give it to Mike Ortega. There are good people running for office. Mike Ortega for Congress. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, David. It's been fantastic. Hopefully I'll talk to you next week. Let us now go to Humboldt County, where David Cobb is standing by. He's an environmental activist. And you have a hard out. I don't mean to be disgusting, but you do have a hard out at eight o'clock. I said a hard out. Uh, You're going to be speaking at Humboldt where, where are you speak? You're speaking at a college, right? I am at Humboldt State University. In fact, uh, I am speaking to a business class uh, on uh, describing the difference between uh, capitalism and a solidarity economy. Okay, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about that. We have a question from one of our audience members who asks, can you explain climate colonialism? Well, it's interesting. It's that's not a phrase that I'm uh, typically uh, familiar with, but I'm pretty sure that I can uh, explain it uh, in the same way that I would use to explain how the world works uh, of extracting resources from uh, the the global south uh, and then sending uh, pollution uh, uh, in return. It's basically how. Uh, international trade is actually working uh, in and then how it intersects within the climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the second layer of that would be when well-intentioned 
uh, 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 white folks from the global north come in and tell uh, local communities uh, in the global south how to fix the problem that they, in fact, created. Right, right. Let's talk about your lecture to business students. How do you how do you reconcile somebody who is going to college to study business? Can somebody in business be environmentally conscious? Can you is business the cause of climate catastrophe? No, absolutely not. Commerce is not the problem, uh, David. However, capitalism is an economic system is in fact the problem. We have been sold a lie. It is a explicit, it is clear, it is a lie that you can only have a business under a capitalist system. So remember that um, I, I'll do for you and the, the audience uh, what I'm going to do uh, in the lecture. Uh, I'm just gonna break down a couple of things. Number one, the word economy itself. Pop quiz to you, David Feldman, and any of the listeners who are- It's a Greek word. Class. It is a Greek the word. The home, Andy. I believe it's home. Nicely done. It is literally, and not only is it home, it is the management of the home, right? So literally, if you, like, it, it, so the question is, well, what do we mean when we say that? So do we just mean balancing a checkbook? But because if that's true, we're all economists. But remember that uh, all human beings have always managed their their natural world and their resources, right? The reality is that we're living in an extractive economy, one that has a set of characteristics about how the world is supposed to operate and how business and commerce is supposed to operate. That is called capitalism. And uh, th but there are other ways that one can manage uh, a household, manage the home. And I'm going to compare and contrast the characteristics of capitalism and then the characteristics of the solidarity economy. Uh, uh, acute uh, or astute listeners might remember that I ser serve as the uh, co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network. Uh, this is, um, I, I'm one of the few non-economists in that group, right, that, that were the founders. But I'm going to do it like this. Capitalism and Follow along, play along at home. I challenge anyone to go on to a website, uh, break out your old introduction to macroeconomics college textbook, and I'm gonna give you the five characteristics of capitalism that anyone would basically agree with. There might be quibbling around the margins, but here are the characteristics. The first, the private ownership, right? Now, private ownership, typically of the means of production, how you produce and distribute goods and services. So not just factories, but farms and ranches and, and all the different things, right? But it's number one is private ownership. Number two, and that is that goods and services are produced as commodities for sale, also known as commodity production. That's to be distinguished between producing goods and services just for immediate human need and human use. So that's the difference between commodity value and use value. Again, this is basic uh, economics. So one, private ownership. Two, commodity production. Three, that those goods and services and everything in the economy is produced for profit. So profit maximization is characteristic number three. 
Characteristic number four is that labor itself is just another commodity that's bought and paid for, right? Uh, so number five, uh, the last one is that it's all uh, handled on the market or the free market, right? Now those five characteristics, private, property, commodity production, profit maximization, wage labor, uh, and market allocation, it takes all of those to make up capitalism. So if you just have, if you take one of them away, then you have some other type of economic system, right? But capitalism is the, uh, and, and the, the clarity of capitalism is, it is an inherently consistent way of how to manage the economy, like, right? So here's the thing, I gave you that definition and honestly, David, did that sound like any kind of crazy leftist jargony kind of crap when I gave you those characteristics? No. Or did it, did it seem, yeah, straightforward, yeah, that seems to comport with what I kind of, like, I remember. So here's the thing. Again, every basic economist would agree that that's more or less the definition. Here's the problem. When you take those inherently consistent ideas and apply them in the real world, you literally create the ideology of the cancer cell. Unlimited growth on a finite planet and with technology, robotics, automation happening uh, so quickly, we're literally, literally destroying the planet faster than Mother Earth can replenish herself. It is in fact, uh, we are going to destroy the planet and we're all going to fucking die if we don't actually change that basic system. Now, that is my description objectively of capitalism and the logical consequence. Now I will do the same thing with what is known as a solidarity economy. And a solidarity economy is based on a system that starts with putting human needs above profit and to say that it must be regenerative. That is to say, the economy should regenerate both the natural world and humans and you, uh, capital itself. So a solidarity economy is one that embodies both economic and social justice, diversity, cooperation, autonomy or self-management, and ecologically sustainability. The five principles of a solidarity economy, number one, that it, it is equitable that a solidarity economy should be in opposition to imperialism, colonization, racial, ethnic, religious, uh, power over dominating systems. Number two, it should be based on the practices of cooperation, mutualism, sharing or reciprocity, uh, love, caring, gifting. Uh, you know, I think that it's important to reintroduce the concept of love and caring and compassion as economic values. Number three is participatory. A solidarity economy embraces the idea that decisions should be made by those people who are impacted by it as much as possible. Number four, uh, that it is in harmony with nature. A solidarity economy upholds the principles of sustainability and re uh, regeneration. And then the last principle that is really important, David, is pluralism. In other words, a solidarity economy is not a dogmatic fixed blueprint. 
Instead, it acknowledges that there can be multiple paths to the same goal. And that's why uh, some folks are explicit socialists. Some folks believe that capitalism can be reformed. Other folks are communists. What I say is, look, we know we have to shift. So let's agree to making that shift. And how far to the left we go is something that we can debate and that in the real world we can figure it out. But that's why this definition of having clarity on what is the system that we're talking about. An economic system that's destroying the planet is the problem. And that there are so many other types of systems that we could actually uh, be using. Because remember, all of this is just a function of policy, David. Like literally, the, the this idea that there is some sort of magical free market that government does not interfere with is bullshit. The market itself only exists to the extent that governmental policy creates any of it. And literally we've created a system where we are incentivizing death, we are incentivizing oppression, we are incentivizing destruction. Uh, and this is not actually, like it is, it is not only a bad idea you and I and your listeners and viewers know that we have a small window to begin to make massive shifts. And we believe that the solidarity economy framework is the way to do that. So this is really interesting. In order to make it palatable to the people you're gonna be lecturing, these are business majors. Correct. And it's a two-pronged approach. One is through policy, that could be the tax code, or passing laws that incentivize what you call solidarity. I think you can sneak that into policy without saying this is socialism, this is solidarity. I think you need a gra grassroots movement calling on these changes and they have to be made, they, they have to be made almost subliminally. We were most- so What I would say is this, that's interesting, right? I think that like, uh, so uh, what I'm not going to do is is do a full frontal attack on the on the tax code, right? Instead, what I'm going to say is first I want to make sure that there's some agreed definitions. One, what is capitalism? And if we were in person, I literally write it out on the board, and I'll, I'll spend about 20 minutes on what I just sort of walked through, and I'll solicit that, right? And because they're business students, David, it is actually pretty easy. So I'm going to say, okay, y'all, we're going to popcorn this. Somebody tell me what are some of the basic characteristics of capitalism. And you know what happens in a business class? They give those five characteristics. Not one student usually does like all five, but I really, I just ask some questions. Okay, all right, I heard that one, private property or private ownership, write that on the board. Like they know this, right? By the time, like they understand this. Then I say, look, I'm not gonna talk about socialism because socialism is a, a an, uh, a political system, right? I'm gonna stay with the solidarity economy because I really want to stay in the world of economics. This is in fact uh, an economic system, uh, class, right? So that's why I say the capitalist economy and a solidarity economy. Then I say, so I'm going to take a couple of uh, reforms uh, that I will argue would be better for the planet and better for people. And these are public banking, participatory budgeting, worker-owned cooperatives, community land trust, locally owned energy production and distribution models, and a universal basic income. 
So, and then we're gonna talk about what those mean. And what I found, David, is that if you can get past the kind of knee jerk uh, reaction that some people have either for or against capitalism, either for or against socialism, and have honest conversation about the concepts and what it means, I usually am able to find, you know, pretty much, I'm not gonna say unanimous agreement, but like majority folks, including uh, uh, business students who are in agreement that these are better policies. Let me ask you a real world question. I suppose you'll be asked this by these students. I would assume that anybody who's a business major wants money, Mm -hmm. needs money, has decided to forego a, a liberal arts education and focus primarily on how do I make money because they need money or they want money. So the real world application, if I were a young business major, I'd say to you, I want to open up a chain of sandwich shops. Am I competing against myself or am I competing against other sandwich shops? I think I'm competing against other sandwich shops. How do I practice solidarity, the solidarity economy, and not go out of business? What if my opponent isn't practicing solidarity practices? Well, listen, what I would say is this, like, uh, remember, I'm not anti-business, I'm not anti-commerce. And everything that Professor Lancaster has been teaching you uh, about how businesses operate, uh, I know Kate, uh, Professor Lancaster, I like her. Uh, uh, I agree with everything that she said about how businesses uh, can and should run, right? So I just wanna be super clear here uh, that I'm not saying that you shouldn't go into business. Uh, what I what I am saying is let's have an understanding about the system in which you are operating your business. Because I've got news for uh, you, the student, and uh, I doubt it will be new information to most of the listeners and viewers of the David Feldman Show, but Wall Street America uh, is actually not the same thing as Main Street America. And those of you who uh, want to open uh, a business uh, are likely to find yourself very quickly at odds with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street America, Wells Fargo, uh, and the big, huge uh, uh, parasitic bankers. Uh, what you'll find is that the community actually, it, where you live, work, play, and pray, the customer base that you actually have uh, are actually Main Street. And there is, like, we need to really reclaim the idea that only right-wing assholes can speak for business. I am pro-business. I am pro-commerce. I am not a supporter of the capitalist economy. Those are different conversations. Do you believe that if somebody, well, do you believe that somebody who works harder or invests his own or her own capital is entitled to more money than the workers? Ah, so that that's a different conversation. And, I, and so I'll answer it, right? But I do want to just point out that you've asked a different question, right. right? So this is a moral and ethical question. My honest answer is no because I am in fact a socialist and I don't shy away from it. I don't believe that. But that's why, remember, the solidarity economy is a pluralistic one. Socialists like me can work hand in hand 
with uh, people who believe that capitalism can be reformed. So we don't end up fighting the way, frankly, I see it happen in your chat all the time. You know, I come on this weekly show, right? And people just seem to love to just argue and yell at one another. And my point is, y'all yell and, uh, and argue all you want. Uh, uh, you know, I am looking for where there is alignment, where we can actually find ways to work together uh, whenever we can. Like, like some places I can't find uh, agreement, I can't find alignment. But again, I'm a socialist. No, I absolutely do not believe uh, that uh, the, the person who invests money is more valuable or has more inherent worth uh, than the line worker. So I'm a socialist. However, you don't have to be a socialist to be a practitioner of the solidarity economy. You do have to believe in a post-capitalist world order, right? And that's different. It's not like it's either or. Right. You don't think the kid who inherits money from his dad is risking more than the Guatemalan who comes hundreds of miles into this country is. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, where have we seen this in America? I, I know that the Taft-Hartley Act has made it illegal for communists to serve on union boards. Oh, and, and let's be clear about something. Like, this is really worth pointing out. The reason, again, like, I'm personally a socialist, right? Uh, and I think it's worth remembering that the New Deal that progressive Democrats, like, uh, cheer and applaud Oh, and again, every one of those reforms, I will cheer and applaud too. But it's important to remember that Franklin Delano Roosevelt proudly proclaimed, I saved capitalism. And you know what? He's right. He did. How and why? Because there was a massive movement in this country being led by socialists and communists and anarchists who were calling to restructure the entire political economy of this country because it was so grotesque, it was so profane, it was so unfair. And the reality is it was, it was headed towards being restructured. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, through the New Deal, offered reforms. And that's why I, I like, those reforms that I gave you, public banking, participatory budgeting, community land trust, et cetera, David, here's the thing. Those are non-reformist reforms. Yes, they're reforms, but they're reforms that are literally designed to undermine the logic of the capitalist uh, system itself, right? Because I don't wanna be working on reforms that unintentionally reinforce a system that's ultimately destructive. So OK, so let, let me do the follow up question to this, because I've asked this before. I don't get the answer, the right answer. There are no law, despite Taft-Hartley prohibiting communists from serving as the leader of a union there. I don't think there are any laws preventing democratic workplaces. Correct. There are no laws preventing them. But David. There's a like, look, as a lawyer, do we I can see, tell but you, do we see any? Do we because, yes. OK, look, there, there are there are there, one of the fastest growing uh, sectors right now are actually work uh, worker owned cooperatives. Uh, and in fact, it's uh, interesting because the studies are clear. Can you name a worker successful one? What would name a successful one? Well, uh, the one that's the most. Uh, and how do you define success? First of all, how do we define success? Well, right. Well, look. So, so you're, you're 
you're asking a series of questions. So let me say the Mondragon Collective uh, in Spain but that's is not the America. third largest business entity but it's not in America. the entire. It's not America, right? But I, I can give you other examples of cooperatives. There's REI, there's Patagonia. Uh, there's actually Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware are locally owned. They're not uh, corporate franchises. Uh, there's there's a whole series of them, right? Like, But the uh, Ace Hardware that I go to is a an affiliate, but it's still a hardware store owned by a tyrant. By Well, it might be, but this is the point, right? It, and this is why I'm saying, remember, it's a pluralistic approach, right? Like there's not one right way. I'm just pointing out. I, I'm just asking, why haven't we seen a an incredible, and I know I'm gonna get deluge, a deluge of emails giving me examples. An example of a worker-owned company here in the United States that is thriving. It's not Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's got bought out. You know, <coughs> right? It's not Whole Foods. I think no, Mackey no, no. is a uh, Republican pig, libertarian. The, the, lar the largest uh, completely worker-owned cooperative in the United States is actually. Uh, in New York City. It's called the Cooperative Home Care Associates. Uh, it's a home care agency. There are over 2,000 workers. It's based in the Bronx. Uh, that's 2,000 workers who are actually operating a worker-owned cooperative at delivering goods and services, right? The fact is, it's 2,000 people, David. Right. Uh, and what I'm saying is, what what is worth pointing out, and I see Dr. Vrod has joined us, so, uh, uh, and uh, which also means I have three minutes because I have to go and deliver uh, a guest lecture on this very topic. But I want to conclude with this, David. The problem is that we have laws and policies that disincentivize worker cooperatives. If we had laws that actually even just had a level playing field, you would see many more. And I would argue we should incentivize worker-owned cooperatives, public banking, uh, democratically controlled uh, energy production and distribution models. We should democratize democratizing the economy, right? That's all we're really talking about is economic democracy. Do we believe that we, the people, are supposed to be able to create the political economy that actually uh, impacts our lives? It's really quite simple. Okay. David Cobb, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you next week. And, and yes, and, and Dr. Fraud, I want to say I saw that you gave a presentation uh, to the folks uh, at the uh, uh, monetary reform, the, the sovereign money folks. So I hope at some point, maybe next week, we can uh, overlap it up. I want to hear how that goes. Great. Thank you so much, David Cobb. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We will be back with Dr. Harriet Fraud. Bye, y'all. It's time right now 
Bought the David Fellman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. But tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. Professor Mike Steinel will be joining us later on. And let's now go to Dr. Harriet Fraud, who with Max Golding hosts, it, it's not just in your head. I got it right. And now I got to unmute you. Hang on. Let me unmute you. There we go. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. Welcome. Picking up on, thank you as always for being here. I love you. And I'm thank just, you too. I'm yeah. feeling Thank you. And I won't hog you if there, we do have people here. If you want to ask Dr. Fraud a question, <clears throat> I will share Dr. Fraud with the virtual studio audience if they raise their hand. Um, I had a conversation with my daughter kind of, you know, it's depressing. I don't know if, how other people are feeling about the news and Bernie's $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill and Joe Manchin talking about how he, it's too much. And, and I thought about a cultural shift for younger people, and that is, what if, hypothetically, we started teaching the 99% to have a different relationship with money? Because it seems to me there's class struggle that people talk about, but nobody talks about their relationship with money. What if we started saying something along the lines of, People came to America for money. They didn't come here for freedom. They didn't come here to escape persecution, which they did. But the bottom line is people are coming here for money. Money is the language. You want to come to America, learn the language, and it's money. And don't fall prey when you go to work. Don't fall prey to anything other than money. If somebody says, I'm going to hire you, it's below a livable wage, but it's a learning experience. 
you say, go F yourself. I'll go, if I want to learn something, I'll go take a class somewhere. I'm here to get paid. That people stop looking at jobs as anything other than money, the same way the people who are hiring you. And, and you just say, interesting, what does it pay? What does it pay? And, and we train a younger generation to have a, to be uh, more money hungry. Wouldn't that trigger the class consciousness and warfare that we're looking for? I don't think so. Because really, it felt good saying it to my daughter, but yeah, it isn't. But <clears throat> the daughter's generation has to learn: is no one would hire you unless they made more money off of you than they give you. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a good business person. The idea is to exploit you for their own gain. That's what capitalism is about. You pay people less than the worth of what they produce, so that you can make money off them. Or you do something that supports the capitalist system like education, or you're a secretary supporting the capitalist machine. But you need to be paid. Everyone should be paid a living wage, and if they're not, they should leave. And that's one of the things that's coming up now, as they say there's a labor shortage, but there's no shortage of jobs that pay a decent wage and have a future. There's a labor shortage of exploitative jobs because these short-term monsters, capitalists, have decided that we should eliminate immigration. Well, who's going to take a dead-end job that's backbreaking, like working in the lumber industry where, by the way, there's a shortage, at minimum wage, risking your life, doing soup labor on, at nurseries and things like that, if they're not an immigrant, immigrants do those jobs. They take whatever they can and live however they can. But once you throw out the immigrants, you have a labor shortage of those terrible jobs. Who wants to work for $2.13 an hour, which you do as a waiter or waitress? And they count on you to get tips and the boss takes some of your tips. Uh, people aren't willing. They have to be paid $15 an hour or more or guaranteed it. So that what we have, because people did have some time to think about it, and they were told that they were essential workers, they were essential to feed us, but not to get paid. And so many have gotten the idea, no, I don't want to risk my life. I don't want to break my back. So this so is an impolite conversation. I mentioned this earlier. And I asked, I, I don't know, I think I asked David Cobb this. Uh, no, no, I asked uh, Mr. Ortega uh, this question. Are, is there a labor shortage because we've closed the border? And he yes. said to me, that's a complicated question. If the answer is yes, that the Republicans have shot themselves in the foot because they campaign, they scapegoat the undocumented, mm -hmm. And they say they're taking your jobs away. Vote for the hate. Let's hate people of color sneaking over the border. OK, they've succeeded in deporting people of mm -hmm. color from South America. 
they fewer and fewer are heading here. So if that is in fact the cause of the labor shortage, was Steve Bannon right? Was Donald Trump correct? Not the way they did it was horrific. ICE should be abolished. But by sealing the borders, are they exposing the industries whose business model is to exploit undocumented Americans? Yes, of course, that wasn't their goal. And now their goal with the abortion law in Texas is to force so many people to have unwanted children and to be desperate for money that they will take any job in order to live. That's why they're cutting the benefits. That's why they're cutting the extra unemployment and everything else they can because they want to drive people to such desperation that they'll take backbreaking work as lumberjacks, place where they say the shortage is because of a labor shortage or Wait, waiters and waitresses or home health aides or other people who are paid sub-minimum wage or minimum wage. And that's, you know, that's the quandary they, they're in. They want to immiserate the American worker. And of course, the jobs that were exported were the union jobs where they would have had to pay people decently. Right. The manufacturing jobs, the unionized kind of jobs. But that's not who's taking your job, you know? It, the people who are taking jobs that are desperate, that are immigrants, are taking the jobs of people who wouldn't want those jobs because they're backbreaking, because the hours are terrible, and because the pay is outrageous. As um, a client of mine once said when he was a, a DJ, he said, yeah, I want to sell air fresheners by the highway. They're taking our jobs, you know. Right. What, what are we talking about? But I think we're talking about a program of the Republicans to so immiserate American workers that they, in their desperation, will take any job, no matter how dangerous or degrading. And that's why unions have had a big surge you know, as you mentioned last time, unions have had a surge and most of it isn't even reported because people are saying, why should I kill myself? Why should I do that? And, you know, I think that that's a good sign on the part of workers. And I think that they're they're trying to immiserate us and Americans have to protest and not allow that. Right. And not allow people like Manchin to hold things up. Well, how do what do we should send thousands of people to West Virginia door to door to tell them what that man is doing to them and to urge to recall? Really, right? What is this? Two uh, two questions about that. Uh, let me ask you about Mansion in a second. But the immiseration, they're pretty open about it. They're yes. they're not willing to. At least they're honest. They they want to starve out. It's, they're really imposing economic sanctions against America's labor force. And, and f they figure we can bend labor to its will if we just starve them out. That's right. That's what they're trying to do. And they have a whole program of going backwards. I think the abortion law has quite a bit 
to do with wanting to create a class of unwanted, desperate, poverty-stricken people. And so does all the so do all these cutbacks. And then people like Bernie Sanders, socialists are fighting back. But that is their program. And their program is for their constituency, which is people who want cheap labor and to make money off it. And what is the psychology? Okay. You know, I don't mean to play armchair psychoanalyst, but there's something there's something sick about people who have more money than they need, more power than anybody deserves, yet they want people to make earn starvation wages. What's what is that? What is that? Well, it isn't. Look, what their lives are about is more. They think they're winning if they get more. And it doesn't matter how much they have. They could get more and more. And they don't care if they alienate all the people around them and lose their families and lose anyone who has trust in them. Costa Gavras, who wrote a wonderful film, he wrote Missing and See, a film called Capital, which seems to have been pulled out of movie theaters about two weeks after it showed up. But when did it come out? It came out about 10 years ago. Costa Gavros. You know, we should do a screening of it here. We should. We should. But it really shows that at one point he rapes someone because he's going to get his way. He doesn't even care about her or about sex that much, but he has to win. And it's about winning. And winning is about getting more for those people, pulling a deal even if they betray someone, to get more. And in the process, they are sick because mental health is connection with other people, with the world, feeling like you're a connected human being. They are disconnected from anything except more money. I, I can feign naivete about these impulses, but it is the the high holidays and you ask God for forgiveness for these horrible thoughts that you have, whether or not you believe in this stuff, this is, uh, you you recognize, uh, I remember taking my kids to Cole Nidre services, Yom Kippur services, and my seven-year-old is saying, I have been jealous of others. I have lied to others. I have uh, cheated people in my business. I'm, I'm going, wait a second. My kid, that, you know, I think put a booger on a girl's face once. That's the only thing that, and, but, and, but at the same time, I have noticed in the past week that I will pick up Variety, People Magazine, and relish the suffering of people who are younger, better looking, more successful, richer, that I have hate read variety. I have been on the phone with friends and said, uh, isn't it, you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't say this, but isn't it great so-and-so is like, I'm so, and I'll just say, it, oh, I'm so jealous of their success. And, and especially because they're more talented than I am. 
that is inside of me. That that resides yeah, okay. inside of Everybody me. Has that Everybody has it. Imagine if you get to a point where you have a million dollars or, you know, a company and you, you, can, you know, a billion dollars or a billion and you can act out. You can act out yes, you can. and you can just do what Bezos does. You can just indulge whatever fantasy. I want to go into outer space. Okay, 500 million. I don't care that people are dying of COVID in my factories because they're too close together in my warehouses. And I don't care that they don't have proper health insurance. I'm going to the moon or I'm going to outer space. You can do whatever the hell you want. But not only not feel guilty. If you're Jeff Bezos. are, Are all material. Your wants can't be connected in an intimate way to have real love and kindness, to be in a better world. They don't have those wants. And it isn't about want, it's about winning and feeling you're a winner, because you get more all the time. Donald, that's what's Donald Trump is honest about who these people are. He shows us who these people are. He's, he's not a caricature of Jeff Bezos. He's just a blabbermouth. He just tells us what Jeff Bezos is thinking. Donald Trump, like Jeff Bezos, wakes up every morning and feels lousy. He doesn't like the way he looks. He just feels that nobody will love him unless I have money and power and success. He doesn't like himself. And then he looks around, he sees happy people. He sees simple people who live simple lives, who have healthy sex lives. And by healthy sex lives, I mean getting an erection. And he thinks, well, if I can't have that, I'm going to relish the suffering of these people, if I not facilitate it. In other people enough to care about their suffering. They're interested in themselves and getting more and winning. Trump doesn't want to be a loser and he doesn't envy. Maybe I'm just people. thinking about myself. <laughs> Yeah, well, we all have enemies and we all have moments of triumph. I heard that um, there's a study my sis, my daughter showed me that 85% of guys who have taken a lot of that ivermectin, that horse paste in order to supposedly get rid of COVID and not get sick, are sterilized by it. And I thought, good. Let them not reproduce. Yeah. That's, you know, cut down on those. You know, we all have good feelings about some of them who will be demobilized because they're ruining our world. And those feelings are normal feelings. Acting on them is sick, but feeling them is fine. We all have a range of feelings. It's only you know, religion that tells you you shouldn't have feelings, that you should be condemned for your feelings rather than just your deeds. And they don't feel envious of the happy people. They think they're only on that ad looking happy, but I'm happier because I have more. Now, I, I said I, uh, earlier today, I got I get emails from, <laughs> from people who listen to my show. So I took a, a call on the air from somebody asking me to support this person, Menon, who's running for uh, city council here in New York City. And I asked a series of questions and I took it on the air. It was a 32 year old trying to pitch this candidate to me. And I said, 
between you, he didn't know that who I was. And I said, between you and me, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to vote for her and then she's going to, you know, enforce the eviction ma mandate. I mean, I'll still be able to evict people, right? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, she's on the side of the landlords. And he, that's what he, and he, and he says, uh, and I, yeah, I said, and she's not a Bernie supporter, right? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. She's everything I hate. So I said, you know what? And this is what people are complaining about. I said, and I apologize for what I'm about to say. I asked if I can do more than donate money. She sounds like my kind of candidate. She's she's all for evictions and she's against rent control. I said, can I give her more than money? He goes, like what? I said, colon cancer. I'd like to give her colon cancer. <laughs> And people said, you cross, I got three emails, you cross the line. And I'm thinking, oh, that's cute. That's I'm thinking, so cute. did I cross the line by saying that? No, I don't think you crossed the I line. I do feel bad saying all. that, though. I do but kind of feel like that doesn't mean that men will get colon cancer. You're right. not that powerful. But of course, you feel like people should be absolutely stopped in their destructive behavior towards the mass of people in the United States or in the city or wherever they are. I mean, but my <laughs> head doctor is going, I'm thinking, I got three emails saying you, that was inappropriate. And I'm thinking what I said is not going to evict anybody. No, it's not. It's not going to create homelessness. Or give anybody colon cancer either. And I'm not going to give anybody colon, but it was so... Even as it came out of my mouth, I was like going, maybe that this is, it's okay to say. I think it's cute, actually. I think it's cute because I think everyone has these feelings and it's religion that tells you police to be ashamed of what you feel so that you'll go confess and give them money. It's a real scam. Right. However, I don't, you know, we all have those feelings and they're funny, you know, and denigrating things are funny. I mean, somebody asked me a riddle. They said, Texas, the Lone Star State there, flag only has one star. Why do you think it has only one star? Oh, it's a review of the state. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, because that's only as high as they can count. No. But uh, no. <laughs> so once I give it one star. Yeah. Right. Now, the people who live in Texas who agree with you are not offended. When, when we crap on Texas, the people who the women there who are pro-abortion are not offended. They agree with us. What do we do anyway? So um, I was good. What do we do about Mansion? What do we do? I was saying earlier in the show that this reconciliation bill is going to be an opportunity for Bernie to show us what he's got in terms of he when he was running for president, he said he would be able to work with the Senate. Is he holding rallies in West Virginia yet? Is he going to punish Joe Manchin? Is it, how is he going to get this record? Because this is his. I think that should be all the Democrats. I, Bernie's trying to wheel and deal and try to manage to get this through. I think the Democratic Party should inundate that state and also Kristen Sinema's state of Arizona and 
explain door to door what their representatives are doing to them and what they're denying them. And that because of these climate deniers, they will have, these are liars, climate deniers, creating fires, etc. enough. And I think- Manchin is the worst of the worst. He is, and he's in bed with the coal companies and everyone knows it, but people are intimidated about getting out and voting. But I think if there were a groundswell enough so that he might lose the gravy train from his wealthy sponsors, he would look like he voted for it or he'd stay home that day or something. But I think people have to get out in the street like they do. People have to get out in the street in Texas. And I also am very disappointed now that Texas has abolished abortion and started a ratting out operation, which is a disgusting thing. I'm disappointed that all those people who very rightfully came out against the transgender discrimination in North Carolina, to the point where they changed those laws, are not already out there on abortion. And I hope they get out there fast and start threatening Texas, like the sports that refuse to have their final games there and would lose the state 400 and some million. Well, they decide to change the legislation. I think there has to be a, a swell of national boycotts of everything Texan, and people have to punish them. They have to be punished for denying half the population their rights and for trying to do what AOC calls rape culture. Right. Tell women you're going to control their bodies, not them. I <clears throat> said I would give out Senator Manchin's phone number, 304-368-0567, and tell him politely leave a message that you want him to vote in favor of Bernie's $3.5 trillion budget resolution. Don't be an a-hole. Leave a right. polite message. If you leave an impolite message, his, his, it's going to reconfirm what he already thinks of us. If you leave a polite message, whisper it, then it sounds like you're a, re, a person of reason and means, and uh, mm -hmm. he'll be more intimidated. 304 368 0567 is Senator Manchin's number in West Virginia. Call and tell him to do what Bernie says. Yeah. It will take, it's, it doesn't cost you any money to make a phone call anymore. Yeah, but you you know, you have to do something to outweigh the influence of the coal companies that he is sponsored by and who write his legislation and who pay him to do their bidding, and he has done their bidding. Uh, hopefully, people will call in, but I think more than calling in is necessary. I think that Democrats ought to flood that state. What um, happens? We're, we're going to see, I love Bernie, and this, this budget resolution is the last gasp of our democracy. If we don't get this, we're in serious trouble. Who would vote? The, the right wing is coming for our democracy. They've made it clear. That's right. And they never protested all those tax giveaways when 
Trump changed the tax code and gave rich people wild amounts. And they don't protest that the Social Security taxes is taken out of your wages. But if you own stock, op- if you're paid in stock options, it's not taken out. If you get rents, the rents don't get reduced. It's just wage earners, which is why at the top, wages are often paid in terms of stock options and other goodies. It's all rigged at the top. And people like Bernie are trying to change it. Right. They're even so, taxing, so they've been taxing Social Security since Reagan. Right. Cut taxes and, for the wealthy. Yeah. No, it's an outrageous thing. Whereas they're not, if you make a mint off of buying and selling stocks, that's not wages. Those don't get taxed. Here's what I think Manchin needs to understand. Here's what I think Manchin needs to understand about Bernie's reconciliation bill. 3.5 trillion isn't enough. It's a start. And it's spread out over 10 years, by the way. It's not three. It's not like we're coming up with three point five trillion dollars that has to be paid off uh, within a year. And there are some offsets to pay for it. Let me just tell Manchin what he needs to get. There is something coming. The right has made it clear that they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in the rule of law. They believe in warlords and strongmen. That is what the right, that is what the insurrection has shown us. I was deeply offended by the insurrection because I still have some skin in the game. Yeah, and because that's treason. I mean, they used to deport communists and put them in jail because they were communists, even though they never said anything about overthrowing the United States. These people are trying to overthrow the election of the United States. Against the law. Right, against the law. Also, it is important to point out that they have paid more than three or four times, more than four times the amount of Bernie's bill on the losing war in Afghanistan, where Raytheon might have made a 947% profit but where tens of thousands of, of Afghan citizens were killed by bombs, the World Trade Center was terrible, but it's a piece of cake compared to what we've done bombing Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, and so on. And, you know, and it costs a lot to do that, to destroy these countries and then leave, like Iraq and Afghanistan and what they did in Vietnam. These cost so much, whereas Bernie's bill is nothing compared to what we've spent on losing wars for the last 50 years. So this is a bogus thing, and they're not afraid. Well, you know what the problem is, Dr. Fraud? Senator Manchin represents such wealthy constituents. The people of West Virginia are rolling in money, and they don't want to have to pay these higher taxes. Most West Virginians. One of the fifth, I think it's the fifth poorest state in the United States. They get more federal money because of their poverty than other places. Those poor people don't seem to vote and are not politically active, which is quite foolish since they're getting the shaft all the time. But really, it's a poverty stricken state. It's disgusting. 
Bloated you stomachs. Know. We're going to see the bloated stomachs of Appalachia that shocked Bobby Kennedy. Joe Manchin. Thank you, Joe Manchin, for those bloated stomachs. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. How do people contact you? Well, they can contact me through my website, harrietfraud.com. That's H-A-R-R-I-E-T-F-R-A-A-D.com. That's the best way, really. Great. Thank you, Dr. Fraud. Thank you. And let's let's hope that people get in the street and make it happen so we can have a just America back. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Well Thank said. Thank you so much. I love your I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Harriet Fraud. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Professor Adnan Hussein is coming up in one minute, but I, I, I just want to say something to Senator Manchin, if you're listening. And I, I'd like my listeners to politely call his office in West Virginia. The number is 304 368 0567 and politely leave a message that you want Senator Manchin to do what Bernie says and vote in favor of the $3.5 trillion budget resolution through reconciliation. This is a piece of legislation that will save our country from the rabble that is meeting this Saturday in Washington, D.C. There's going to be another right-wing rally. I want to say something to Joe Manchin. I detest the people who storm the Capitol. I detest the people who are showing up for this rally on Saturday in Washington, D.C. to draw attention to these political prisoners who have been arrested because of the insurrection. There are people who think that these people who stormed the Capitol are heroes. I do not think so. I think they're, they're guilty of insurrection. They should be locked up for life because I believe in good government. I'm a little older. I have some skin in the game. I have children. So far, I'm not getting evicted. I'm okay, I hope. Okay. A lot of people in this country, Senator Manchin, are not. A lot of people still believe in the Democratic Party. They still believe in Washington, D.C. If there's another insurrection, I will be appalled and will root for the Capitol Police and a mass arrests of all of them. But if I end up living on the streets, if I'm evicted without health insurance, if there is no $3.5 trillion rescue plan, which Bernie is offering, Senator Manchin, if the Democrats don't come up with anything for the 99% and I end up on the streets, unable to feed my family, no place to live. And if I'm lucky enough to 
be in a homeless shelter and on the TV, if I'm lucky enough to be in a homeless shelter and on the TV, these right wing thugs, these jackboots are storming the Capitol again. I don't care. I don't care. If I have no house, screw the house. That's human nature. You have to earn, earn the love and patriotism of the 99%. Don't, don't squander this opportunity, Senator Manchin. It'll be on your head, not, you know, metaphorically. It'll, it'll be your fault if Bernie's bill doesn't get passed. And what's coming after this bill doesn't get passed is far worse than what happened on January 6th. And it's going to be your fault, Joe Manchin. It's going to be your fault. Because when people don't have skin in the game, they don't care who wins or loses. And you're going to see something. And maybe on almost heaven, your $750,000 yacht, maybe you can sail away but your constituents are gonna die from starvation. They're gonna be evicted and they're gonna die. You represent the poorest state in the union. West Virginia didn't send a fiscal hawk to Washington, D.C. Keep your mouth shut, Manchin. We know about your daughter and the EpiPen just keep your mouth shut and do what Bernie tells you, because the right wing is coming for us, all of us. And this is the only way to stop them. And if if this bill doesn't get passed, Senator Joe Manchin goes down in history as the man who facilitated fascism. 304 368 0567, call Senator Manchin's office and politely instruct him to do what Bernie says on this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Otherwise, the end of our republic will be Senator Manchin's fault. The next insurrection will be Senator Manchin's fault. Let us now go to a much more civilized country, Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by. Hello, Professor. How are you? I'm well. Great to see Dr. Fraud. Yes. As ever. Yeah. A lot of sense. Yeah. If you're living on the street and you're a Democrat and you love your country, but your country isn't helping you, but it is helping the richest 1%. And you see on the TV that these right-wing lunatics are storming the Capitol. Human nature is such, how much empathy are you gonna have for the Capitol if the Capitol hasn't done anything for you? What is human nature? Well, I don't know, um, you know, on 
trans-historical terms uh, about human nature, but I, you know, can say that I think um, as much as there was a reaction uh, about the insurrection, you know, whatever we want to call it on January 6th, um, I think uh, there were a lot of people who are more frustrated with the government um, and the you know, fact that it hasn't accomplished that much over, you know, the Clinton, Obama, Bush and Trump uh, period that, um, you know, they don't feel quite so invested. Um, I might have had even some sympathy with the frustrations of the people who were, um, you know, taking the law into their own hands and creating a very dangerous situation for our democracy. But that's the problem is that we've not been living in genuine democracy and people feel very distant from uh, their elected officials and don't see them as, um, you know, really acting in their interest. I mean, this was a discussion that came up. I think Professor uh, Jonathan Bick raised um perhaps at the last office hours about um, the fact that only the military seemed to have um, as an institution a positive perception in the general public and that all the other um, institutions like journalists and journalism, uh, the political sphere, you know, Wall Street and big business, um, all of these are held in extremely low opinion by people in the United States. And this is something that would be, would have been inconceivable in the 50s, I think, you know. And of course, at later periods in the 1980s, you know, these were sort of pillars of the economy and society. They were staffed and filled by people from all the elite institutions. They were the best and the brightest, right? And mm -hmm. they were the leaders of society. And instead, there's been such a dramatic decline in um, authority, right? The credibility of authority. Um, you know, for, on some level, perhaps it was really healthy in the 1960s to call into question wars abroad and, you know, uh, the denial of rights to African Americans and, you know, continuing patriarchy. So there was a lot to question. Um, but it seems that um, what's happened is that very same impetus has been um, carried over by the right wing that, um, you know, be using sort of populist uh, ideas, but not to actually call out uh, the abuses of power. Um, you know, it's created a, a situation where um, the consensus has been an elite consensus that didn't respond to people's actual needs over the last, you know, generation or two. So I think, you know, I don't think there would be a whole lot of sympathy. Some people would be scandalized because they still believe that these institutions and the norms, I mean, this is all we heard about during the Trump, um, is is these the forms were, the processes and the forms were important, not the actual content. And I think people are tired of, uh, making do on uh, the appearance of democratic processes that have been undermined and derailed and having a lack of actual substance and policy. And this is what had been encouraging, I'd have to say, you know, a uh, couple of smart moves recently by the Biden administration. I mean, we're starting, we saw a little bit of substance and 
I think that's what emboldened him to actually take these strong stands. People are sick of the pandemic. They want to be able to move past it. And they recognize that people refusing to get vaccinated, for example, are holding back. Um, and this is, of course, a global problem, but at least in the U.S., that's what your elected officials are responsible for. Um, and the fact that he's willing to take a stand and, and say, really, you need to get vaccinated unless there's some medical reason for it. I mean, and this is just going to prolong the pandemic. I think it was a very good, clear political move. And similarly with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, the con elite consensus has been you cannot do that. It's it's going to undermine U.S. you know power and credibility. And, you know, there's all these interests in it. And journalists have been baying about um, how this is, um, you know, the wrong decision. And that's cowardly. Actually, it's a very brave decision to go against you know, go against the interests that, to be honest, um, you know, put him in office in, in some ways. I mean, I think that elite consensus and, you know, the military industrial and security apparatus um, is really, in, you know, the big corporations, um, uh, the think tanks, you know, uh, in the Washington think tanks, um, these are the groups that really supported um, Biden on some level that they saw Trump as a dangerous figure who was violating kind of the status quo processes, you know, calling into question NATO, saying the things that nobody was willing to say. And, and we couldn't trust him. Outrageous and some of it was true. He know? wasn't going to get us into a war. Nobody. That's would, right. There's no way Trump could have gotten us into a war because nobody would believe him. Well, and also, I mean, I think he even articulated the position that these wars were a boondoggle. He's the one who knows a boondoggle when he sees one, you know. And so he was able to call it out and say, you know, it's just people making money. There's no net benefit to the American people to be involved in all of these endless wars. It's costing us a lot. People are dying. It's unpopular. And ultimately, he had an, a canny sense for the mood of the country on that level, and he was willing to say things that people otherwise wouldn't be able to say in polite political uh, company. And so, you know, th their concern with him was about these norms and the fact that he might upend um, the status quo and the status quo is working very nicely. Thank you for some of these interests. And so what I actually think is quite interesting is that Biden, you know, took a kind of strong stance against, I would say, some of the groups uh, that saw him as a safe alternative to Trump. Um, and I think they thought perhaps that they might be able to discourage him ultimately from the withdrawal and commit to some. And of course, we don't know what will happen and there may be ways in which the u.s empire will pivot in a different direction but i still think frankly it's a good political move it's popular to end the war in afghanistan um and it took some courage to 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 do it so i think we're starting to see some content that actually people might be able to get behind and these are good political good political moves i would say the thing that uh uh, Biden should do if he's you know going to follow up on these previous two successes that I just identified 
is get behind uh, and don't let Bernie be the only one, you know, uh, who's making the case against uh, Manchin for what will be a very popular spending bill on reviving infrastructure and creating, you know, good jobs. I think it's a big winner politically. And if he is seen to be able to put pressure successfully on Manchin, then he really genuinely becomes the leader of the party and is popular you know, with, uh, I think, of many Republicans, you know, I, I don't mean Republican political officials, but I mean people who vote Republican are going to see that uh, as, as a courageous. Finally, you know, I mean, what we want to see is one of these very conservative Democrats being a, you know, fiscal hawk at the right wing of the party be seen to be taken down as always all these left progressive figures seem to get, you know, the disciplining force of the party on them. I mean, if the hammer can be brought down on on, on Joe Manchin, um, I think it, 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 it will be, you know, uh, not only, you know, kind of momentous, but I think uh, really telling of where the people are. He's also a fiscal idiot. Uh, the idea of a fiscal hawk the idea that by cutting back that you're going to that you're going to balance the budget by cutting back fiscal spending is one of the dumbest ideas it's been proven incorrect if you want the treasury to be overflowing with money you have to spend money to make money it's almost as though mansion doesn't understand the multiplier effect. If you spend a dollar, if the federal government spends a dollar, that dollar becomes a hundred dollars because it keeps getting passed around. And every time you pass that dollar from the construction site to the person who gets paid on the construction site and then buys a cup of coffee and that cup of coffee, that dollar goes and buys a Twinkie at another store, each time the government skims off the top and collects taxes. That's how you pay off the budget deficit. That's that's Keynesian. It's common sense. You're not a fiscal hawk if you're against this reconciliation bill. You don't understand economics. You don't understand recoveries. So to cloak yourself in responsibility is a misnomer. You're irresponsible. You have to spend money to make money. It's that simple. That's how you balance the budget. They'll use that on supply side. They'll justify tax cuts by saying you cut uh, taxes for the wealthiest one percent. They the business wheels of commerce start going and they have to pay more taxes. Well, the fact is they don't pay more taxes. And uh, and they don't create jobs. They just hoard the money they save from the tax cuts because they don't need it. You pump money into infrastructure, that's going to... Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a big mistake by Joe Manchin's, uh, you know, uh, it's a big mistake for him politically. I think this is going to expose and widen the uh, gap between him and his constituents in West Virginia. Now, if this was for entitlement, 
Okay, you could play that old game about spending because what's underlying that is the idea that a lot of people don't deserve it. They're just getting handouts. You can play that kind of resentment, uh, that politics of resentment. But spending on an infrastructure and well, I think the main thing that needs to be done is talk about how this is going to pump money into blue collar union jobs the carpenters the metal workers the steel workers uh, you know building bridges the cement you know all of that needs to be you know that i think he's got a he's making a really big mistake like when you can have the recipients of this government spending and largesse be in people's minds undeserving or people who are different than me in other words the black welfare queen which is what reagan kind of tried to invoke yeah you can exploit a certain kind of you know political resentment uh, around it but i think this is for his constituency and what he's tried to sort of pretend to be, this is just exposing that he's with the corporate Wall Street elites and it's going to open up a gap between him and his constituents. And I think Joe Biden and Bernie, they should drive a huge wedge between those things. And this is the perfect issue, the perfect kind of spending on which to do that, because we're talking about a lot of construction and, you know, jobs that, um, that his daughter shipped out of West Virginia. She owns exactly. a drug company. Yeah, she has a exactly. drug company. And she had, I think she sent 1,200 jobs overseas to cut costs. He is, uh, again, his number is 304-368-0567. Please leave a polite message, polite, explaining to him that he needs to go with Bernie on this budget resolution. And I think the other side of this um, is contrasted with uh, the costs of war, that we've been wasting all of this money. You know, uh, some estimates are eight trillion, eight to 14 trillion dollars since 9-11 uh, spent on the US global war on terrorism. You know, that is an insane amount of money. And, um, you know, we're asking for three point five trillion over and it's not even annual. It's over, you know, I, what I forget. The, I think it's the 10 terms years. Yeah, 10 years. You know, it's over 10 years of spending of investing in the country. Contrast it. Contrast it to the cost of this war. Say we're ending this war. We're going to draw down and we're going to put the money that we would be spending you know, in uh, trying to dominate the world to no effect other than to enrich corporate interests and cause devastation and, you know, uh, destruction around around the world. Instead, let's reconstruct uh, the, the U.S. I mean, I think that's a really fair point. They're happening at approximately the same time. You know, juxtapose those those things together. I think that would make a, a very strong, uh, strong case and would do some good work politically. Yeah, I have my I just can't wrap my head around evil people like Joe Manchin and his daughter. Uh, you know, we, I talked about Joe Manchin's daughter two months ago in the EpiPen and The Intercept this week got their hands on some emails that reveal that his daughter, who ran Mylan, 
which makes the EpiPen. And the EpiPen, it's an auto-injectable needle that puts epinephrine into your body if you're having uh, a severe allergic reaction to, to something. It's I guess there's another way to get epinephrine into your body, but this is the most efficient way. New emails have come out. She's caught red-handed price fixing, getting on the phone with another maker of uh, an EpiPen and agreeing that because there's some merger going on, the company that is merging with the other company will stop making their version of the EpiPen so that she can charge sick people. Mm-hmm. It's price fixing. It is, it's a it's monopoly capitalism. You know, it's like, let's just forget about the competition in the market. And this is what happens when you can leverage the political process and you can uh, bring, you know, more and more resources to bear is that you, it ends up being monopoly capitalism. And this is, you know, this is the height of corruption. It's endemic to the system. Um, but I don't know. I mean, do you think that going after uh, mansions, corruption, Maybe it'll work. I mean, I wonder if this is the most effective. uh, I would appeal to his better better angel, but I don't think there is one. How can you represent the people of West Virginia this way? You have a daughter who's made... He's not representing. That's the whole point. He's not representing the people of West Virginia. He is representing himself, you know, his family, and the uh, terrible Faustian bargain that he's made with corrupt corporate interests um, that is all based purely on corrupting the political process by, you know, getting this position of power and then using it, you know, to into, you know, to uh, gain, you know, gain personal personal benefit was a tv4 and uh, that's why i think it's so silly of him because it's so obvious that he's not even making an ideological argument because this sort of weird trickle down or budget fiscal hawk you know uh contradiction doesn't even make that much sense you know in this context it's it's he's clearly not an ideologue he's not a free market you know capitalist guy like you know, I don't know, some of those folks we saw in the 1990s, you know, emerge, you know, with the contract on America. And uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who was the extreme Grover Norquist and right. these the club for growth people. He's not actually one of those people because they know how to explain this much, you know, more, you know, interestingly, you well, know, Stephen Moore from the club for growth. Yeah, I'm not saying that they are very convincing. Oh, my God. He's at a level that's even below that. I think he's really misjudged. You know, nobody's interested in that kind of an argument anymore. I think he's completely out of touch. And he's picked the wrong kind of issue, I feel, in order to play that, you know, to make that argument uh, stick. Because that argument only really works for people who want to exclude you know, resources going to communities that they don't identify with. Yeah, I'm going to throw something back at David Pluff and the Democrats. David Pluff sent me an email. He was Obama's electoral guru and said, 2022 is going to be the most important election of your lifetime. And 
I've said on this show, I'm sick and tired of living through the most important elections of my lifetime. So I'm going to throw something back at Pluff and, and Obama and uh, stop telling me that 2022 is the most important election of my lifetime. I'm a Democrat and I'm telling you Bernie's budget resolution is the most important piece of legislation in my lifetime. And it is the Democratic Party's most important piece of legislation in my lifetime. You want my vote yeah. in 2022, Buster? You want me to shed a tear the next time these insurrectionists spread their own feces all over uh, the Capitol? You pass this legislation, Obama. I don't see Barack Obama. Yeah, where is he? You know, he should make a Netflix uh, series about uh, unions and big infrastructure projects during, you know, World War Two and the New Deal. You know, I mean, how's that for <laughs> a dramatic, you know, kind of uh, period? Uh, so I think actually, if you want to win 2022, you pass this bill and you make hay out of, you know, um, you know, really doing something substantial for the American people and the economy. I mean, this is not also money just being spent uselessly and fruitlessly like we have on all these wars that have achieved nothing and cost so much, you know, money and, you know, death and destruction, U.S. troops, uh, citizens, uh, you know, innocent civilians around the world and put the, the world through turmoil that has achieved absolutely nothing for any higher public purpose. This is actually investment in things that make a difference and prepare uh, America for a future, you know, economic viability uh, as opposed to wasting all of our resources. Next Thursday, I'm going to play President Kennedy's speech at Madison Square Garden promoting Medicare. It's unbelievable. Jack Kennedy wanted to fold Medicare into Social Security. And it got passed because he got assassinated and Johnson had the political clout after the assassination to make Medicare its own agency. Jack Kennedy held a rally at Madison Square Garden, packed, promoting Medicare. He held a rally and he explained, and it's a great speech where he explains that there are doctors in New Jersey, he points to New Jersey, who say they're going to be against Medicare. But I know these people, this is what Kennedy said, I know these people, they didn't become doctors to make money. They became doctors to heal people. And then he tells the story of his father who just had a stroke. And he said, I'm lucky. My father is very wealthy. I can keep my, he gets a laugh. I can keep all of my salary as president. It doesn't have to go towards keeping my father. I mean, this was an amazing speech. He held a rally at Madison Square Garden pushing Medicare. Where is Obama? Where is Biden? Where is Kamala? Where are these big rallies to support this this resolution? I, I'm you know, I I am I hate rage and anger. And I hate it when it's applied to politics because politics is chess and you have to think clearly. I hate getting worked up and I'm getting worked up because 
in a year, we're going to have the midterms. And I'm going to see every Democrat. I'm going to see Obama. I'm going to see them all making their promises, telling me you have to vote. You have to. Well, you know what? Today, the Democrats, Manchin, you have to vote. You have to vote. You want me to vote? You have to vote on Bernie's budget resolution. And you have to vote yes and keep your mouth shut about the price. Because next year... You know what? Uh, I'm old enough. I still have some skin in the game. But I'm telling you, you are going to get wiped out by by people who have been wiped out by Joe Manchin. And history will record Joe Manchin. This his resistance to Bernie's budget resolution will be the uh, will be what causes probably the end of our republic. Well, the stakes are high. Um, you know, it's not just the election, as you're pointing out. I mean, we've already seen evidence of what dissatisfaction in the country can can lead to. But, you know, that's partly the reason why they don't want to invoke, um, you know, uh, these passions at these rallies is I think uh, corporate Democrats are very divorced from the people and what is going on, um, you know, in their lives and the kinds of movements that are taking root. Uh, And I think, frankly, they're a little afraid of the people. And so they don't think that it's such a great idea to bring them all together to get really passionate about policies that are difficult for them or conflict with uh, the donor class uh, that has helped uh, elect them. It's an uncomfortable position for them. You know, Uh, it's difficult to serve two masters. So they'd rather just keep the people uh, from being their masters as much as possible and not actually uh, start to give them the idea that they could be influential in guiding their decisions by putting pressure. So the more that they would try to whip up popular support in that way is emboldening from their perspective, a dangerous political force that most of the time is actually going to be against their performance um, in serving the donor classes and um, continuing to provide the corporate welfare and deny people the public goods, um, you know, that, that people generally want um all of these are popular programs um, yeah. and they're being marked up the bills are being marked up now call senator joe manchin's office and politely request that he sign on to bernie's budget resolution 3.5 trillion his number is 304-368-0567 that number is 304 368 0567. If you like this show, if you respect Professor Adnan Hussein, if you have uh, a little respect for me, you will show it by asking politely and not being uh, an a-hole. Do it. You get you accomplish nothing by leaving a nasty message. Well, you don't have to go that far. I think we have Professor Marianne Cummings. If you have any, you know, give a thought for for. Yeah, uh, Marianne Cummings. Um, yeah, and yeah, we have 
but we don't. I think she will have some interesting things to say on this. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Who's on Guerrilla History? Oh, uh, we have um, a few episodes coming out, but I'll, I'll just w- want to plug um, the last episode we did, which was something a little bit different um, than having a guest to talk about uh, their historical study or uh, just a discussion among um, you know, the co-hosts. Uh, we decided we would take a look at some breaking news and bring a historical perspective on something that was just breaking. Uh, And so we talked with uh, um, a really interesting and knowledgeable figure who uh, watches events and developments taking place in um, Africa and puts out an Africa newsletter. And we talked about the recent coup in Guinea and put it in context with what's been happening across the continent politically. And I think people will find uh, it quite interesting and illuminating. The guests really had a lot of insights. Great. Everybody subscribe to Guerrilla History. Thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois where Professor Mary Ann Cummings is standing by. Besides being a physicist, she is a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. And uh, what kind of message would you leave on Joe Manchin's answering machine? 304-368-0567. We have to unmute yourself, please. I'm sorry. You think after a year and a half of this, you know, <laughs> what I'd personally leave, um, I don't think it would do any good. Right. But, but, but for my I listeners, probably, I would probably mention something about his criminal daughter and completely corrupt wife. And it says, you know, how is the wife? How's the wife corrupt? Yeah, how's the wife and kiddo? You know, how is the wife? What, what did she get appointed to? Oh, she was like. She got appointed to like the uh, a regional Appalachian like education uh, panel and uh, took the money. One of the things, well, one of the things she recommended was her daughter's company's uh, product, where they were selling these things packeted into two or more, so you'd have to spend more money. Oh, the epipens. Yeah, the Epipens. Well, that's really nice. I mean, you've got your Ma's right there, right there, you know, situated for the best, most efficient marketing strategy you can possibly imagine in those situations. Um, But, you know, these people and the fact that his daughter, like, was openly discussing this stuff in an email. It just tells me these people do not worry. Um, I mean, they they don't see what they're doing is wrong and they don't worry about it because they're also uh, not smart. Well, uh, smart is a funny concept. You know, I'm less smart than they are because they're a lot richer than I am. I mean, what is smart? I mean, they've got some basic, you know, Tyrannosaur hindbrain instincts (laughs) and the. you know, in, in, in the game that they're playing. I think Joe Manchin, I, I could not believe that Joe Manchin won uh, his primary so overwhelmingly against Paula Jeansburg. And of course, the Democratic Party was uh, not only uh, tried to sabotage her, they, when she was actually the nominee, they worked against her and various 
parts of the party. And Joe Manchin, uh, the they backed the uh, um, the woman who was the Republican, who apparently is a personal friend of Joe Manchin. Of course, you know, small world up there, right? Um, over there, so it's like I, I don't think any message I could leave would make a dent in Joe Manchin because he just he's about power, and there's an enormous. You have an enormous advantage when you can be like Joe Manchin and just brazenly walk all over your constituents with not a flint, without a flicker of moral conscience. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm capable of great crimes. Maybe many people on, you know, in the Zoom are. Uh, but, you know, we'd be wrestling with it. We'd like be burning up all kinds of mental energy trying to justify it. Nope, not Joe Manchin. <laughs> Right. He can completely focus on what is good for Joe Manchin. He's got a daughter. And, uh, he's got a daughter who has yes. no problem with people not being able to afford epipens and then dying from it. Price well, fix. And you have people who still still seriously discuss and you know in in right wing sites that well I mean the the only moral imperative the overwhelming one as a ceo of a corporation is to maximize value for your stockholders and that's a real thing so you know uh, people die oh well i mean we didn't we can't help that they're poor right you know, by the way that's a fault. by the way uh corporations are chartered by the state and right. in order to get chartered as a corporation you have to prove supposedly that you're not only in this to maximize profits for shareholders. Baked into corporate law, you cannot get a corporate charter unless you're able to prove that you're taking the the entire community. You're taking jobs, baby. Not every you know well, jobs. But, not but, everybody is uh, has fatal allergic reactions. That's a minority. Right. Like, but that's the law. A corporate, I agree with you. I'm not arguing with you right. at all. That's um, the law. They do not. They, there, there is a problem because there is a whole moral universe that a lot of us, most of us, have internalized that this is just the way it is. And this is what is necessary to, like, this is the great capitalist machine that, you know, has brought this country to number one on the planet, not anymore. But I mean, it's it's an internalized reality, mythology, and code of ethics that they help. Look, you know, I you remember the infamous 47% statement, that tape that was made at, uh, over poor Mitt Romney talking to his donors. And it was fascinating because he was being completely honest there. And so everybody glommed on to the 47% comment but what I thought was interesting, if you listened on, was his description of visiting uh, a factory in China. I don't know if it was Foxconn or what, but he was talking about, my God, people are w willing to live 10 to a dorm room with one bathroom and work 10-hour days, six days a week, and this and that. And it's like, it's like Mitt Romney had died and gone to Mitt Romney heaven. And that was his vision, you know, like the working class should all be like this. Then we'd have no crime because people would be just too exhausted working in my factories. And then those of us in the top, you know, would that's be a Bain capital. Fabulous. That's what hmm? that's what private equity, Bain capital. That's what that's how he made his well, that's millions. That's what I'm saying. I mean, Mitt Romney isn't corrupt. He's 
playing by the rules. I don't think there was ever, and I've never heard of anything where he was did anything criminal. This is Mitt Romney completely playing by the rules and, and, right, and writing the rules. At the same I don't time. think he even wrote them. He's he's really not that uh, you know original a guy. No. And so before we move on, uh, mm-hmm. let's let's practice democracy properly. Let's give the listeners a a speech. What what if they call Senator Manchin's office at three zero four. Three six eight zero five six seven. Don't bring up the wife. Don't bring up the daughter. Yes. Right. 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 What What should Do they care say? about the future of your party? Do you care about the future? Do you care about Joe Biden's legacy? I personally do not, but I'm sure some people do because he's associated with that party, and that's basically where he's anchored his career to. Do you want to be a permanent minority for like the next decade? I mean, it's it's a good life when you're a senator, even a minority, but it's like a lot more fun when you get to be Joe Manchin and you get to be effectively the president of the United States because you're the deciding vote. You know, uh, that could go away really quickly. I don't think it's going to go away next tomorrow, is it? It's the 13th today, right? The 14th. Yeah. The 28th is when they bring the bill up. If you're, li- but I'm just talking about the recall over in. Uh, oh right, in, right. In I don't know if they have recalls in West Virginia. No, I don't know. I I, I do not know that. But to but my I, listeners, I know- excuse me for one second. Three zero four three six eight zero five six seven. Call Joe Manchin's field office and politely leave a message, a gentle mm-hmm. message, and don't be a phone bully. Don't be like David Feldman. Be polite, soft-spoken. Give the number out to 10 people you know who mm-hmm. believe in Bernie. Give that number out. And let's politely inundate Senator Manchin's field office with requests that he heed Bernie's call. And there's Peter B. Collins. I'm going to turn your video off, if it's okay, Peter. And we'll, I'll see you in about 15 uh, 20 minutes, is that okay? Oh, Peter. Peter B. Collins is early. Is it all right if I turn your video off, Peter? Okay, I'm going to turn his video off. Uh, I can't turn it off. Uh, okay. Uh, there we go. So, uh, yeah. The recall is Tuesday night. It looks like it's a massive steal. And... Uh, Larry Elder is going to have to call for a, a recount. That's what the polls are showing. The polls are showing a massive steal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be so... I still... These recall elections are so weird. I mean, because uh, it, they, they're minority of the voters vote. If people have been trumpeting that, oh, you know... Newsom leads by double digits and people are, you know, not big fans of his. They go, oh, well, he doesn't need my vote. He's fine. You know, it's right. uh, so it's not a good idea to be trumpeting, you know. These, well, what uh, I've been reading is because mm-hmm. of Trump, because Larry Elder reminds Democrats so yeah. much of Trump, turnout, I think, is higher for the recall among Democrats than 
the 2020 election. The Democrats are coming out in full force. And it looks like the re- Republicans, people okay. like Elder, are depending on same day voting. So. Well, you know, uh, whatever the thing is, is that that could just flip. That could flip a seat very quickly. No, I had I was trying to look this up because remember uh, when who was it? It was the uh, Jeffords, Jim Jeffords of Vermont after they stole that election in 2000 and 2001, the Republicans had one vote, you know, narrow margin of victory. I think it was it was tied with with vice president, but really President Cheney being the deciding vote. Right. So Jeffords was so disgusted with the behavior of some of his Republican colleagues that he quit and flipped control to, and, it's, and I think it was not Harry Reid, but who was the guy? It was Tom Daschle. At yeah, the, time. the guy with the 2K, anyway. Tom Daschle. Yeah. And then it'd be, then Harry Reid, I can't remember what it had all happened, but Harry Reid took over shortly thereafter. However, um, you know, the thing is, they ch- I remember them changing the rules about that. I remember they, the Republicans, ch- or they, it, when the Republicans got back in control, they changed the rule where if you're a, a majority leader, you're majority leader for two years. And I've been trying to find that. I've been trying to see if that's true. <laughs> I can't read, but I do have this memory that, you know, so you just can't flip midterm or something. I'm just going to have to look that up. But um Anyway, yeah, it, it could even ha- it could either happen Tuesday and then well, it wouldn't be happening Tuesday. Diane uh, Diane Feinstein would have to be in. Incap- I don't think well, she I don't already see is Diane Feinstein stepping down at all. I mean, look, they they carted around who is it? Um, the old fossil lived. In, yeah, well, yeah, Strom Thurmond. I mean, literally, I saw the inside of his office. It was an ICU. I mean, right. I'm not exaggerating at all. I, I kind of wandered in, you know, without permission into his office when I was visiting there many years ago. And it was like, good glory. I mean, it was basically the job of his staff to keep him alive. So they'll keep Diane Feinstein alive. But the 2022 elections is what people have to worry about. And, you know, that's... Uh, so, uh, you know, I have, I have a weird horrible feeling about this reconciliation bill my i think the worst scenario is that they pass it but almost all the major provisions are gutted through 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 committees with maybe the child tax credit will be extended because you know we want to encourage people to have babies workers future soldiers whatever but it, i i and <sighs> I think I have a, a horrible feeling that that's going to happen. And then the Bernie will be saying, well, it's the best we can do. And he'll back off his, you know, this rather strident statements for Bernie he's been making in the last week, 3.5 million or nothing, you know, Trillion. you're not getting the vote. Out of, but, you know, um, I just can't see the donor class of the Democratic Party allowing Bernie to have this victory when they did so much to make sure he wasn't the president. And by the way, you know, it's it's kind of, it really is a sham because, uh, you know, where is Biden? I mean, if a, a real president would really be out there, you know, just touting this. I mean, for the drug price, I think the one of the more important things I saw, which would not have been an incremental change, if you had Medicare basically 
uh, negotiating drug prices, man, you would be setting the upsetting the uh, apple cart, the business models of all the major pharmaceutical companies. And who is this guy? Becerra, Becerra from uh, California. He's the Se- Secretary of Health and Human Services. And in in California, he was really pushing against you know the uh, uh, the price gouging that the pharmace- the pharmaceutical companies were doing. I think there was something uh, sort of like uh, was something called a forced licensure, which were basically if drug companies wouldn't reduce their prices, they would rescind, effectively rescind their patents and give license to generic, uh, generic drug companies to manufacture drugs that were considered critical. And I think he did it for Remsveridol, Rems, can pronounce Remsvid- it. It's one of the, uh, the COVID drugs. Yeah. Said, and, and so, so where is he? I mean, where is this guy who was a big crusader in California? I mean, he should be out there putting pressure on not only Democrats in the House, but Democrats in the Senate who don't want anything to do with this, you know, with this aspect of the bill. So what would happen things like that? if COVID now I've, I've read that infections are beginning to go down just a, a, a tad uh, nationwide? What if Joe Biden said the following? I'm issuing a vaccine mandate. If you want to do business with the federal government, you got to get vaccinated. However, I understand your distrust and mistrust of Pfizer. I get it. The vaccine works. But I understand why you don't trust Pfizer. Get the vaccine and then support me on reversing uh, the donut hole, uh, Medicare Part D, where Medicare doesn't have the right to negotiate with the drug companies. Get the vaccine, and I promise you, I will go after price fixing that the drug companies are guilty of. I agree with you for not trusting the pharmaceutical industry. They are evil. They just happen to have made a shot that will keep you from dying. Get the shot and I promise you, we will, and support me on this, we will take on Big Pharma and negotiate drug prices at Medicare. Why, isn't that a winning statement? Or are, if, or, or are the anti-vaxxers- Bernie's bill was your goal. Right. <laughs> yes, that would be a winning, that would be a winning strategy. There's all kinds of carrots you can use. There's all kinds of power you could use to like force recalcitrant senators and Congress people. Um, I've run this idea past people who are somewhat high up in the Democratic Party, and they say, you can't appeal to the anti-vaxxers. You're never going to win them over. You know, they're the deplorables, which they are. Well, most of them are. But I think uh, that's not fair. But you won't even attempt. Look, people don't take the vaccine for all kinds of reasons. And I said, you know, last week that I was very surprised at the correlation between household income and being unvaccinated. I mean, it's just a linear correlation with uh, all the uh, household income levels. Um, 
my right now i'm i'm sorry it's kind of hard for me to think about the the national level because we're dealing with the the very local level which is my zip code has one of the lowest vaccination rates in in the and state some of family Illinois. members and yeah well the thing is is that it's mostly hispanic and part of the reason and i pointed out to them hey these big vaccination centers aren't on the they weren't on the pace the the uh bus routes like many households or many people in my area don't even have cars. You know, they are reliant on this public transportation, which takes them to the major shopping centers. But, you know, the big vaccination centers were kind of a, a little out of the way. So, uh, you know, we're trying to play catch up and we're particularly been pushing for the um, for the kids down to age 12 to be vaccinated. You know, again, that, that's why my I was a little, you know, getting a little annoyed when people keep saying this is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. I said, yeah, well, part of the unvaccinated are people under the age of 18 and they're being forced to go back. to They're going back to school, you know, and, and staying hours a day with little cloth or paper masks with teachers who may be completely vaccinated, but nonetheless can carry the disease, can transmit right. the disease, maybe at a lower rate. So we don't have paid like, sick leave in this country. Everybody who got the second shot, all they talk about is how did you feel after the second shot? Well, you know, maybe it was psychosomatic, but, you know, I, I the, the next day I just slept and, you know, good luck if you're not uh, privileged. So I, I agree well, with you about the. Yeah. I agree with you. They're not the deplorables. The deplorables are the people like Joe Rogan, who raise doubt about the vaccine so they can push their supplements. Alex Jones sells supplements. People who sell supplements have a long storied history of raising questions about the efficacy of vaccines. Yeah, but the business models have nothing to do with the problems we've had in our dis- in, in our zip code. It's, it's just basically poor, lower income people um, there. Look, my, I have a friend who's teaching in the uh, New York public schools. They just opened up schools. They pushed back. You realize that schools have been open for almost a month in most parts of the country now because they open in mid-August, which I think is insane. But they do. And many places have had to like close them down or roll back or put kids in quarantine, like in, in the Chicago school system. There's this running battle with Lori Lightfoot, which is a whole another segment. But, you know, um, we, we don't have any, the bottom line here is that we don't have any, any, any semblance of a public health system that can deal with something like this. And, you know, many people like Osterholm and our, our friend Henry and, and Irritable have all said the same thing. It's like this would be the cheapest way to deal with it. All the buildings had adequate ventilation with these UV, you know, like virus zappers. It's, it's like that way cheaper than having to fill up ICU beds. With but that's the business model. That's why Governor DeSantis is not pushing the vaccine, but he's pushing the monoclonal antibodies that his top donor has invested in. There's more money in treatment than prevention. Well, he's uh, an egregious case, but even the milder cases, I mean, all of the governors are under the same types of pressures to open up the economy again. 
you know, to get the kids back in school so their parents can work. And even Pritzker, who's been pretty good recently, is uh, backpedaled on the vaccine mandate and he's backpedaled on a lot of things. He's, you know, there's people that want to see us back to work. And I think now there's a sense of, okay, we've kind of gotten under control. Uh, the, the, the epidemic isn't, the pandemic isn't getting any worse. We can live with, you know, all these poor people, especially the people who are in the service industry dying. I mean, I think the two most dangerous professions for getting COVID last year was construction workers and cooks. Right. And so it's like, um, but I think that, uh, so we've been told what to do and and what not to do, but there's no universal basic, basic income. There's no, there, there, there's no support for people who lost their jobs. Um, you know, the eviction moratorium is lifted. People are now being evicted. And who's on the steps of the Capitol protesting that? Uh, you know, it's just, there's a sense that if you don't do something, and I think you made this point, I was listening a little bit uh, to your segment before, uh, if we don't do anything positive that people can actually see, there's going to be a very jaded you know, uh, attitude toward next year's election. Because as you said, it's been the most important election of our lifetime for the last almost 20 years, it seems. Every single midterm, every single presidential election. And as the New York Times found out, when they send out, you know, reporters, they actually send out reporters once in a while to Milwaukee County and Wayne County, which is Detroit, Michigan is Wayne County, and uh, try to figure out what, hey, you know, you voted for Obama twice among the African, why didn't you vote for, for Hillary? And they gave him an earful. Nothing happened. There were even some, uh, some black people who voted for Trump thinking, like, well, maybe this guy shakes it up. Of course, he turns out, you know, to be nothing of the kind. I mean, he was horrible, terrible, and he didn't even shake up the system. I mean, the system, except for maybe a few rabid neocons being a little impatient with the pace of the war and his, you know, attempting to pull out of Afghanistan, most everybody got what they wanted. Certainly Wall Street got what they wanted and, you know, the... His, his cabinet was as lousy with Goldman Sachs people as Hillary's would have been, you know, the whole nine years. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm wishing that people wouldn't pay so much attention to Trump. It's, I almost get the feeling like the Democratic Party wants to build up Trump again, you know, so that if you have Trump, you know, ooga booga, uh, you don't have to justify your lack of a- your complete lack of action and your abysmal record. You can just point to this guy. I, I think there was uh, Alan Minsky pointed out a great documentary by who's this guy Adam Adam Curtis through the BBC mm-hmm. talking about the Democrats have or people in general have gone from the politics of hope and you know giving people what they want and vision to the from the politics of a dream to the politics of nightmares. In fear, other words, yeah, fear. vote for us to prevent the greater nightmare of these guys going, yeah, these guys getting into power. Well, I'm reversing the tables. Up. I'm reversing the tables on the Democrats. Yeah. You vote for this infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill. It's the most important vote of your lifetime, Senator Manchin. Yes, that one is, would be correct. <laughs> Uh, you want, it would you, be. yeah, you don't vote for 
this reconciliation bill, Senator Manchin, don't come crying to me during the 2022 midterms a year from now and saying this, you must vote for us. This is when you vote for us, Senator Manchin. If you don't vote for this reconciliation bill, I don't, I, I, you know, I'll still have some skin in the game because I, I still love this country and I think there's hope, but I don't see with the, well, the evictions. Have a slightly different take on this. Because if you really think it's the lesser of two evils, my my old friend, Glenn Ford, who used to be black commentator and the black agenda, he died mm-hmm. this year. He's yes. a very interesting guy. He had a, I used to, you know, write to his blog uh, often way back in the early 2000s. Oh, and but, we, uh, I want to ask you about Peter B. Collins. Oh, Peter B. Collins. He's up I next. think I actually talked to him once on the mic. I think he might have substituted for Mike Malloy one time. And I think I actually called into the show. Let me, why don't we do this? Why don't we wrap it up and then I'll bring Peter. But what I'm saying, what I'm saying, I'm going to leave you with this. I mean, it's not the lesser of two evils. He said Obama was not the lesser of two evils. He was the more effective evil. And if you don't see it as just a binary system, but as a joint scam where there's a Complete, uh, continuously spiraling downward, good cop, bad cop, good cop, bad cop. And as Lawrence O'Donnell told us, the only way Democratic leadership is ever going to listen to the left or progressives, if they believe we are willing to not, not vote for them. I mean, that's it. That's really the ultimate leverage we have. Because the only thing these people are scared of, they're not scared of global catastrophe or another plague. They're scared of losing their job. That's what terrifies them the most. That's the worst thing you could do. Right. Is deprive them of their just. So if you, I think sooner or later, we're going to have to vote. We have to vote as a block and say, no, we ain't voting for you. And make that known. Call 304-368-0567. That's Senator Manchin's field office and politely leave a message telling Senator Manchin and say this politely to please vote for Bernie Sanders $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill and give that number out to 10 like-minded people who call 304-368-0567 and do it politely. If you do it If you let your ego take over, you hurt the cause. If you make it about you, as opposed to the country, you're a pig. So don't don't use this opportunity to leave a stupid message. You're hurting the cause. 304-368-0567. Call Senator Manchin. This is how democracy works. And politely ask him to vote yes on Bernie's $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, this, is, this is when we step up and pressure Manchin. We'll talk about writing letters. And uh, thank you. I love you. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Marianne Cummings. Let's bring in Peter B. Collins very quickly. Are you there, Peter B. Collins? 
I turned. I'm standing by here in California. Yeah, lots to talk about. Thank you. Um, are are you there? Uh, did you? Uh, you've taken many many calls on the radio. <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> do you remember Professor Marianne Cummings? She insists. This is a play Misty for me kind of thing. Yeah. Did you fill in for Mike Malloy? I did fill in on Air America, uh, and I, I never really directly filled in for Mike. If okay, you you're, you're, you're back, scraping. You're, you're scraping your... All right. Sorry. If you go way back to uh, the Bush administration, there was an effort at a liberal talk radio network that was financed by the United Auto Workers. And Mike Malloy, Tom Hartman... Uh, Barry Lynn. I don't remember Barry. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a separate connection to Barry. We ran his uh, radio show on our station in Monterey, which was 2005 to 2011, somewhere in there. At any rate, I do recall Professor Cummings. Uh, I can't place exactly where we spoke. Professor Marianne. <laughs> Does that make you feel uh, better? Oh, I, I oh yes, indeed. <laughs> well, I, and, and I have to say that it's an honor to be sandwiched in between all these uh, smart academics here on the Feldman Show, because I hold a PhD in absolutely nothing. I hold the same. I went to the same school. Indulge <laughs> me. You're scraping your microphone. And it, I'm trying not to do that. I know, I know. Okay, hang it up here off my. Yeah, thank you. It, it's a uh, well. I thank. By the way, thank you for your email. You sent me a, a very sweet note, and I wanted to respond to it. It's been. Uh, I write back, and then I go. This is too long. I can't send it. But you sent me a oh. very uh, sweet email, talking about Bill Maher. Yeah. Well, next time, send it. I'll read it. Well, it, it will. It, you, you listen. You, you think these shows are long? <laughs> I was... well, well. Can I can I jump in and just say that when I watched your video uh, where you spoke back to the smartest man in television, uh, you kept me up because I started watching it at midnight. Right. <laughs> and. Your, your harangue was so uh, well-based, it was factual, uh, and you really spoke for me. Because, you know, Maher offers the only weekly, uh, you know, taped live interaction with some smart people. Uh, and it has really been painful in the past year to watch him join the attack on liberals and woke people, using Trump talking points, creating a position for himself as the arbiter of acceptable liberal thought. Mm -hmm. And he has been trading on lies. And he did it again this past Friday night where his comic sidekick was George Will. Yes. Uh, uh, who is nearly fully fossilized at this point. Uh, but, you know, Will helped him set up some of the same bullshit about how 
you know, Democrats adopt policies that are onion headlines. He repeated the canard that you exposed that Seattle wanted to decriminalize crime. And when he does this, he is joining forces with the people who use emotion to persuade the underinformed. And he shows his own ignorance in ways that is deeply embarrassing because like you, I have respect for Bill. Uh, he has, he, you know, he had Barbara Lee on on Friday night. That, that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he acknowledged the cover up of, of 9-11, you know, that the commission, the whitewash commission uh, created. He didn't go very far with it. But, but there are moments where I say, yeah, Bill, uh, not only are you taking positions I agree with, but they're, they're fairly well-founded. But as he has, uh, and, and this comes out of a, a trend where over the last few years he's been pissed off at college campuses, uh, there are some legitimate issues about silencing both left and right voices on college campuses. There is a snowflake factor, but uh, he, again, creates this throne for himself where uh, he alone is deciding what is acceptable for progressives in particular to, uh, to advance. And it's very dangerous because you and I have talked about this before, about the legacy of Limbaugh, which is this daily attack on liberals. Liberals are responsible for everything that is wrong in this country. And Maher is now a part of that echo chamber. And it's really tragic to see it. Right. And it belies some ignorance when he blurs the line between liberals and leftists. I watched a clip from Friday's show. Bill said, people ask me, George, why do you come so hard uh, down on uh, why do you come down so hard on liberals? Because they they're embarrassing me. I'm sick of leftists uh, stealing my liberalism. Well, there's a difference, Bill, and you know that, Bill. You're too smart. There's a difference between liberals and leftists. You're not a leftist, Bill. Yes, the leftists are embarrassing you because you're a multi-multi-millionaire. You're a capitalist, and you, by the very nature of your position, exploit labor. And the leftists don't like you because you're the enemy. So, yes, the leftists are embarrassing you because you're management. Now, as for the liberals, that's a different story. You know, a liberal can be a neoliberal, can be a Republican, and you're too smart for that. You've never been a leftist, Bill. You've been an opportunistic pseudo-intellectual who found a lane. And yeah. you're great at what you do, and you're brave up until up until a point. But the real problem, because I I love Bill, I I really do. I work from worked for him, and it was the best job that I ever had. But his problem is he's an intellectual who stopped reading. Mm -hmm. Bill yeah, Maher you, is an intellectual who stopped reading. Bill Maher does not read. Bill Maher does not read. Period. When you were in the writer's room, 
did he actually listen? Yes. When you when you offered yes. factual pushback, yeah. yes. Bill, that's a great funny line, but it's not true. Yes, and that's why I love him. But he he has become sclerotic in his thinking. The stuff he says about Muslims is reprehensible. The stuff he says about the transgender people, unacceptable. Yes. And the people he chooses to give voice to, like Milo Yapinapolis and George Will, you know, I would love to see labor leaders on the show. Fair did a study of the dearth of labor leaders who are on the Sunday talk shows. Zero. Zero labor leaders. And it ain't shit. You ain't talking shit, Bill, unless you're talking about labor. And yeah. you're not pro-labor, Bill Maher. So and, and you're not a leftist. Shut up. One of, the, one of the other things that he is doing, which serves the Trump agenda, is assuming that all people on the left are monolithic. And let me take a sensitive issue from right here in San Francisco. We have an idiot school board that at a time when they should have been focusing on far more important things, went through a process and, and ultimately declared that they were going to change the names of 41 schools. Abraham Lincoln, right? Lincoln, one that's named for Diane Feinstein. I'm not her biggest fan. She dated no Lincoln. Didn't she date Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he liked possibly. older. The thing about Lincoln was he liked older women. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. And and I, I don't support that. I am I am further left than Bill Maher, and I do not support this massive kind of historic revisionism. And where I live in in rich white Marin County, uh, Sir Francis Drake is on a, a they they stripped his name from a high school. Uh, a main thoroughfare that goes from the uh, 101 highway out to the coast is named for him. And it, when you actually look at his history, he was a uh, like a, a, a second mate on a couple of slave ships when he was first navigating, when he was first at sea. But over time, he evolved. He was friendly with the natives uh, here that he encountered in California on his explorations. Uh, he rather, it's pretty well proven that one of his top uh, lieutenants was a black man who he bought out of slavery. And so we had a small group of people who got angry as part of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and wanted to do something. And number one, I don't care about the name of a high school, you know, if there's a legitimate reason to change it and there's a public process, you can call it whatever you want. But uh, I did not support the renaming of Sir Francis Drake High School. But local commentators assume that anybody who's a Democrat, that anybody who defines themselves as progressive is just on board with, with everything that the far right defines as the leftist agenda. And it's not only insulting, it's really, uh, it undermines our ability to be heard on issues that really matter. 
And and so to see Bill Maher join that pack and to, you know, repeat the lies, you did a great job of showing that the Lincoln statue in Springfield, Illinois, was on a circuit. <laughs> and the fact that it was removed was not in any way based on a controversy. It was based on a fucking schedule. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And he, he repeats, Land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln. No, they didn't. They didn't tear it. It was the Lincoln Museum that had a traveling statue of Lincoln that got taken down so it could go someplace else. And Bill Maher decided that's an example of the cancel culture saying the land of Lincoln. It's an onion headline. Land of Lincoln cancels Lincoln. It's a lie. But that he somebody fact checked that I know the budget on that show. He's got fact checkers. So he knew that was a lie. Well, and David, I want to underscore um, the charge that you leveled against Bill related to his commentary on trans, trans issues and trans people, because it does fuel the hatred that led to the death of Matthew Shepard. It fuels the uh, uh, attitudes that people feel in not only red states uh, where they're passing legislation that, uh, you know, and, and Bill makes these comments about three-year-olds, you know, choosing their sexual preference. To and, Ralph Reed's face. Yes, yes. To Ralph Reed. Who? And, and this can only incite gun-toting, Bible-thumping ignoramuses who get permission from a Bill Maher said, well, he's a liberal, and if he hates trans people, then it's okay for me to do that too. Right, right. That's why, are, that's are, why the great Ari Fleischer, Ari Fleischer, the press spokesman to George W. Bush said to Bill Maher, you gotta watch what you say. <laughs> he wasn't threatening Bill Maher, he was saying, you're on TV, watch what you say. Yeah. You should pay attention yeah. to what you're saying, Bill. There are consequences. All it takes is one crazy to hear what you're saying and then to act on it. And then that blood is on your hands. Watch, as, as the great Ari Fleischer said to Bill Maher, watch what you say. Uh, he's in a bubble, a multi-million dollar bubble. And the he thinks he's a, he thinks like he's a lefty because he smokes dope. Yeah. Using Ralph Reed's recent appearance as, as the trigger for this, one of my long-term complaints about Maher is that he brings people on the show and offers a two-line bio. And he, you know, he's free to have Ralph Reed on his show. Uh, I, I don't try to control those kinds of things for other people. But he owes his viewers an honest appraisal of who Ralph Reed is and the damage that this guy has done. And uh, I went deep into the Jack, Jack Abramoff case uh, when Jack got out of jail and, and published his book. I interviewed him and I, uh, I ambushed him with a member of one of the uh, tribes that he had fucked over uh, using Ralph Reed. And this all gets into and the Grover Norquist. 
Yes. This all gets into the Alabama swamp where I've become friends with Don Siegelman, the Democratic governor who was railroaded into prison by Karl Rove and this same cast of characters. And it all revolved around an effort by Siegelman to pass a state lottery to fund education, like we do in California and many other states. I'm not really in favor of that, but it's hardly, uh, you know, a moral issue. But they rallied the Christian right with the uh, 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 pernicious Jack Abramoff, and they played the Indian tribes off against each other as they uh, fleeced the Christian right uh, donors. And so they were making money uh, in three different uh, streams as they you know, pretended to be saving Alabama from the evils of a lottery while they were in cahoots with the native tribes and their gaming operations. Right. And, uh, you know, these are the things that Bill never tells his viewers about. And uh, he doesn't challenge his guests on uh, sordid history like that. And uh, I, I think that it's really unfair because as an entertainment show, people don't come to it thinking that they need to Google the guests and, you know, look up their histories. Uh, and he gives them a platform uh, where they, they, get, they get off scot-free. They get normalized. Guests. They get normalized. Good term. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I'm almost on the verge of giving up on Marr and uh, just going to stop watching because he frustrates me so much. Well, that's one of the reasons people watch him is because he he gives you just enough to make you like him and just enough to make you hate him. He keeps you he keeps people on edge. It's a trick. It's a trick to keep the audience coming back where you can't, you know, he's slippery. So you can't quite figure out where he's coming from. He knows what he's doing. He's so he takes these positions to uh, to boggle your mind. It's a cheap trick. And he doesn't read. He does not yeah. read. He's not a reader. And he's—it's not because he can't read. He doesn't have dyslexia. Uh, I understand some people can't read. They—they they listen to radio. They listen to books on tape. Uh, Bill Maher does not read. Period. Full stop. Bill Maher tries to pass himself off as an intellectual, but he is not a reader. Well, and one of the other areas where his ignorance really shows is on the uh, Mideast conflict, Israel-Palestine. And here's this guy who, you know, parades as America's greatest atheist. And then uh, even, you know, there's a new government and I'm trying to give them a chance. Uh, but Netanyahu was a dangerous, evil, right-wing nut. And, <clears throat> you know, Bill normalized Netanyahu. And he, he pipes up uh, for the worst of American policy in failing to uh, attempt to broker any real end to the conflict and to promote even the, you know, Jared, Jared Kushner's peace plan. There was the one year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. 
<laughs> it was a bankruptcy cram down. And, you know, the, the guy who they had as the ambassador to Jerusalem was a bank, Trump's bankruptcy attorney. And they were basically saying, you know, uh, we're, we're going to impose this uh, settlement. We're going to empower, uh, you know, other countries and uh, other players in an effort to bypass uh, both Hamas and the, uh, the, the Palestine Authority. And uh, so, you know, he, he shows a kind of jingoism there that undermines, you know, I, I think he took appropriate positions against the uh, military misadventures and our occupations of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. Absolutely. But he's outlived his usefulness. I yeah. worked for him when in when we had just blundered our way into Iraq and it was an exciting place to work for a couple of years because he was taking on the George W. Bush administration and it was career suicide. And I found him to be very brave. He challenged a wartime president and humiliated George W. Bush. But he's out, Bill, and he just got renewed for two more years on HBO. Congratulations. I'm glad I know people who work there and and and. Uh, but he's outlived his usefulness. He's he gets an idea in his head 25 years ago about Israel. And he says, that's good enough. I don't need to read any more about this. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for uh, taking him on. And if people haven't seen uh, that clip, I, I found it on Facebook. It's on YouTube. And uh, I, I do highly recommend it and endorse your findings. Thank you. I don't understand why it's so hard for people like Joe Rogan and Bill Maher to spend 30 seconds on the Internet to fact check what they say. Or at least correct themselves instead of doubling down on their lies. I mean, Bill is lying about Seattle decriminalizing crime. And it's a racist lie. Yes. Because what they're doing is they're trying to get rid of misdemeanors that clog our jails and prisons with people of color. They're decriminalizing uh, prostitution and uh, minor drug offenses, something Bill would be for since he has been both a drug dealer and a prostitute. Uh, I think he currently is a prostitute for HBO. Uh, I used that joke already on the uh, when I but uh, but he just misrepresents Seattle and says they're decriminalizing crime. It's a onion headline. No, right. they're trying to stop locking up people of color is what they're trying to do, Bill. But the, the, and he knows that. He was told that. But he doubles down on the lie. I guess it's commerce. I think he puts money first and it just it sounds good. Right. I, I think I think he picks up commentary um, uh, from some of the people at The New York Times. Uh, I think Brett Stevens uh, is a, a negative influence on Bill. Uh, and last week, Stevens had a column 
where essentially he was promoting Joe Manchin uh, as the sage guy who's going to stop this uh, profligate spending. And uh, he basically, you know, used the, the blundered exit from Afghanistan to try to paint a picture of Biden uh, in, in the first stages of political collapse. Uh, and some of my, you know, progressive friends were saying, well, I, Brett Stevens might be right. Brett Stevens is using warmed over talking points from the deficit hawks. Right. And, you know, number one, this this 350 trillion number uh, is or 3.5 trillion. See, there I go. It's so exaggerated. It's, it's 350 billion dollars a year for 10 years. Right. Uh, that's not a huge amount of money. Bernie is right that he already came down from six trillion. The other side of it, of course, is we uh, and and I agree with uh, Professor Marianne's comments that I heard as I I joined you uh, that the on, on the the other side of it, where does the money come from? You got to look out for Richie Neal, the Boston congressman, chair of Ways and Means, in the pocket of every corporate interest. And he has slow walked the whole discussion about how to pay for this so that he can try to ram through uh, a package that will cut the total spending in half, at least, and will only lightly graze the Trump tax cuts and the call for uh, a, a hike in corporate tax rates. And, of course, that's also illusory anyway because they don't fucking pay taxes no matter what the rate right. is. Right. And and so who who are we kidding uh, about that? All the crocodile tears about how it's going to slow down the economic recovery at a time when we're just getting back from COVID. And we know that fundamentally Joe Manchin, his blood type is C for coal. And <laughs> he he is using, you know, Brett Stevens endorsement, the whole deficit argument. Like, uh, we, we just can't afford this. And he won't touch defense spending. He won't touch the tax cuts for corporate interests and the rich. And he is doing it to block the limited elements that address climate change in this second package. He also won't and, fund the IRS. Supposedly, there's a trillion dollars that we're leaving on the table each year. One trillion dollars of uncollected taxes. And I'm a small taxpayer, but I, I pay quarterly. I just had to write out a check just before I, I sat down with you to pay my quarterly taxes. I don't have the, you know, uh, tax shelter scams to avoid paying a fair amount of money for what I take in. And, I, I, you know, I don't I don't object to it. I'm not a victim of, of taxation. I think it is my responsibility to help fund the government benefits that I get. And so uh, this whole thing has put Joe Manchin in much too powerful a position. Secondarily, Kristen Cinema. Thirdly, John Tester from Montana. And these people are going to fuck us because they're going to use the illusion that they are uh, fiscally responsible to prevent any uh, meaningful action addressing climate change. And to have seen what Ida did, that swath all the way from New Orleans to uh, Staten Island, 
and Philadelphia, even even Delaware flooded. Uh, for that to be so fresh and them to be able to walk away from the climate issues and and block uh, what is the only hope. And, and the last piece I'll say is that what, what Brett Stevens is saying, we've got to pause this 3.5 trillion because it's going to take Biden down. And I believe absolutely the opposite. If the Democrats don't deliver on this, they are out. They're going to lose in the midterms. It's already gerrymandered and it's too close, you know, with the, the split in the House. I can't predict what will happen with the Senate either next year or in 24, but I'm not hopeful. And they, this is one of the, the things I, I, I didn't vote for Biden. I'm not his biggest fan. I'm not a Democrat. And I admire Howie Klein and, and people like you who keep, uh, you know, working the two-party system. Oh, no, Howie I Klein guess. didn't vote for Biden either. Okay, good. But but he's still, I, I yes. respect how much Howie puts into right. promoting progressive candidates and trying to change the Democratic Party. Right. I'm, I've given up on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but their only hope to address the populism that Trump uh, exactly. has, has triggered exactly. is this this kind of approach. And, and Biden uh, sucks on foreign policy, but what he's done in the first nine months to address domestic issues is the Bernie Sanders agenda. Uh, you know, it's, it's low calorie, but it is the agenda. And to me, this is the only way the Democrats recover from the entire Trump era. See, the consultant class wants 2022 to be a tight race. They don't want a Democratic landslide because then you don't have to hire all these consultants and spend billions, literally billions on TV advertising, which the consultant class gets a piece of. You you pass this budget reconciliation bill. I think somebody like you would have a hard time uh, not defending Biden. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I agree. You would have, you uh, would I, have to say <clears throat> that the pullout of Afghanistan and the budget reconciliation and, quite frankly, the vaccine mandates, you'd have to be a nihilist, not a leftist. You'd be a nihilist to, or nihilist to be uh, not a Richie nihilist from Houseways and Means. No, it's the same thing, actually. Uh, but you you couldn't make a case against the Democrats if they passed Bernie's reconciliation bill. Yes. I and agree. if they don't, then it's a nail biter in 2022. And it's hard to root for the Democrats. It's hard to root for Chuck Schumer if he can't get this reconciliation bill passed. It really is. Well, I mean, and, and now it, it comes back to the filibuster and the failure to address that already. Uh, it's, it's looking pretty dicey, David. Uh, you know, I'm not optimistic. There will be a package because they, they have to pass a budget. Uh, but the critical elements that, that Bernie added and that the House is in general approval of uh, will be drastically reduced. 
And, you know, I think we'll be lucky if we see 1.5 trill uh, at the end of this pipeline. And that will be Joe Manchin's fault or will it be Chuck Schumer's fault? Uh, I, I, I would prefer to blame. I don't like Chuck Schumer and I've met the guy and I was interviewing him once and then a TV crew came up and he just dumped me like, right. <laughs> like, like I didn't exist. It's a dangerous uh, place to be between Chuck Schumer and a bank of television cameras. That's the joke they used to tell about Rudy Giuliani. That's not my joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I give him a, a B plus. I, I think Schumer has tried. Uh, he's trying to keep a fractious caucus together. He can't control Manchin, whose whose ego is so out of control, and uh, you know he has no no wiggle room to work with. Uh, but I believe that it's Biden who has not permitted them to modify the filibuster, and that is the fundamental error of the Democratic strategy. Yeah, you know, Joe. I my fantasy is to apologize in a month, we'll know in a month about this reconciliation bill. My fantasy is to apologize to Joe Biden and say, you know what? There are a lot of things you've done wrong in your life, but the vaccine mandate, Afghanistan, and now this reconciliation bill, you you have shown why a 79-year-old president what experience can accomplish if he I, I would i would join you in such an apology i will say that i think this is going to be another thing that extends almost to christmas where they're going to patch together these continuing resolutions right. while they fight it out and it's not going to be resolved soon uh, pelosi i think will be forced to allow the uh the trillion dollar infrastructure package to get passed without linkage to the second bill and uh it, it's it's going to uh I, i'd like to be wrong about this but i i just don't see uh, a positive trajectory here david everybody should pay attention to this because it may be the last legislation uh we ever see i really believe that i believe that uh, this is the most important piece of legislation in uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's life. The, 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 you know, next time you send me, I'm repeating myself, it makes me so angry. I'm, I'm already getting those emails. The midterms are the most important election of your life. Go F yourself, David Pluff. <laughs> this bill is the most important vote of your life because if this doesn't get passed, you're you're not just going to lose the House and the Senate. You're look at this Republican Party. Yeah. Look at it. It's they're going to do all the things that Schumer wouldn't do because of the parliamentarian. They're going to do well, all the have, impolite. We're going to have bounty hunters for liberals. We're going to bounty hunters for liberals, <laughs> and you th they'll get rid of the filibuster. The Republicans, the Republicans will. Yeah, oh, yeah, they'll get rid of it. Sure, they'll nuke it. They'll yeah. nuke it right out of there. <laughs> Thank you, Peter B. Collins. 
David, can I revise and extend my remarks for one minute? Yes, sir. Uh, I want to recommend that people read the New York Times Magazine cover story from September 5th. The Times has finally caught up with the reporting that I and many others have done to expose the FBI's uh, frame-up of Muslims. This is the story of an FBI agent who spent almost four years in prison, Terry Albury, uh, because he could not continue to frame uh, people who were only guilty of being uh, Muslim and willing to be conned by an FBI informant passing cash around. And for the Times to finally acknowledge this is, is significant, and I'm sorry it took Terry Albury's case to, uh, to trigger that. And finally, I just want to recommend, I, I did record a new podcast for uh, the 20th, uh, I, I can't call it an anniversary, but for 20 years on of 9-11. And I invite people to listen because I interviewed David Hughes, a British academic, who is critical of the academic community joining the media and government officials in blocking any intelligent investigation of the official cover story of 9-11. And I know that this opens me up to allegations that I'm a truther and a conspiracy. Not nut. at all. I object to cover-ups. And I was there in the 9-11 Commission hearings, and I watched the charade as Rumsfeld was permitted to dodge questions about what he did on the morning of 9-11 and whether he had scrambled planes to protect the Pentagon. And the whole thing was just a show trial that produced a cover story that everybody continues to, uh, to maintain the orthodoxy of. And to see Spike Lee have to edit his four-hour special or four-part special about 9-11 to uh, excise any critical comments about the official story and the cover-up just shows how powerful this is. And the same people who know that George W. Bush lied about WMD in Iraq cannot bring themselves to even consider that this myth is based on bullshit. And, and I want to be clear, I don't have alternate theories, the inside job claim or exactly who did what to whom. But Senator Bob Graham, a conservative from Florida who chaired the first investigation into 9-11, is one of my key uh, sources for my skepticism about the official story. And, you know, this document that they released about the Saudis doesn't really add anything new. But that is one of many angles that we are entitled to pursue with critical thinking and analysis of actual evidence. And it's being blocked by a, a, an ugly cabal of people who are trying to control what we think, and they're succeeding. Right. For, for the good of the country, they'll say. We, um, at office hours Friday night, I was surprised. I showed up and they decided, Professor Hussein and Lane, and they all decided to simulcast Fahrenheit 9-11. Mm -hmm. the Michael Moore masterpiece. Yeah. I recommend that everybody watch Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. It is all there. I, I'm shocked. 
I, I rewatched I watched it with everybody. It was jaw dropping. It was staggering. It's a masterpiece of what's left of our democracy that he was able to make that movie in came out in 2004, right before the Kerry yes. presidential uh, challenge to Bush. He laid it all out. It was all there for everybody to see. And he raised all those questions. But, you know, we're such a powerful country and we're so rich and yet we're so fragile. We cover things up because it wouldn't be good for the country. It's dangerous to look too deep into the abyss and find out what really happened for Contragate. What happened at, in Contragate? Blink, it's yeah. the abyss, turn away. What happened on 9-11? I'm not talking about, like you say, the inside, like I don't believe the towers uh, came down because the, you know that they were blown up. I believe that there's some connection between Saudi Arabia. I think they produced it. I think Osama bin Laden was, may or may not have been the director and he was on location in Afghanistan. Sometimes he was on location in Pakistan. I don't think the Taliban had anything to do with this movie. I think the Saudis produced it. Saudi princes produced it. Well, David, I'll just offer a friendly, you know, slightly different take. Uh, Building 7, there is no other explanation for its uh, cratering than a controlled demolition. And I, you know, still await evidence of what happened to the Twin Towers, but I'm highly skeptical that the planes that hit at the upper levels were sufficient, uh, and I don't believe the pancake uh, theory. Uh, that is not to say I know what happened. I just am skeptical of what we have been told because, uh, again, particularly with Building 7, the it just doesn't square with uh, any honest and objective look at what happened. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Because uh, that, that's interesting. Uh, very interesting. Thank you so much. <laughs> PeterBCollins.com. How do people hear the latest podcast? It's right there at the top of the homepage and it's free. Peter B. Collins. Thank you so much, Peter. I look forward to talking to you next week. So thank brilliant. you, David. Thank Enjoyed you. It. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. If you would like to attend a live taping of this show in our virtual audience, go to my website, hit the menu that says attend a live taping and office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website and sign up. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. I am way behind on my emails. I have, it's been a long summer and I owe people thank you notes and emails and I just have not had, to, I, you see, if you listen to this show, you know how time, it's not time consuming, I love doing this, but uh, there's just things I just can't get to right now. So if I haven't answered your email, my sincerest apologies, and I, I need to do better. Here's somebody who doesn't, who couldn't possibly do better. 
Hello, brilliant David. Professor Mike Steinel, whose new book, The Lake House Part One, can be listened to, heard on for f- you for free on YouTube. For free. It's free, David. It's free. Where do they go? Go uh, to YouTube and put in The Lake House Part One. You got to get the Part One in there because uh, there's a lot of lake houses, evidently. Yes, I do. I, I agree with you. I looked up the lake house and there are <laughs> just like 20. <laughs> yeah. But this is the lake house part one. And part you, one, that'll get you there. And then part two and part three and part. It's a four parter. OK. Have you been watching Jeopardy? I've been up in. I just got back about just after Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> I, I, I made it back by seven. I drove all day today. Listen to the show. Good show last Friday. I think I listened to it while I was working up there at the at the lake. Were you I operating saw, heavy machinery? That can be dangerous. Listening to Not heavy show. machinery, but power tools. Ooh, not a good idea to listen to my, people have been known to just pass out. Very dangerous. <laughs> Do not you do know, it. I have to apologize for something because I, I uh, what would you call it? I crashed your show last week after saying I couldn't do it. And then you were nice enough to talk to me. Well, I, I, was, I, was, I was teasing. <laughs> what did I say? I was grateful that you showed up. What? Oh, you know, it's fine. But you, um, but I but I was talking about I had taken wallpaper off all day long and in this solution of of uh, water and uh, fabric softener and. I had told somebody earlier in the day, when I was talking on the phone, yeah, my hands are permanently pruny. And then the next thing, that's my new indie band, permanently pruny. (laughs) The the indie band joke, you know, it's it's universal, you know. That's like, that's what she said, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, you know. Um, But I I said permanently and I I was so tired. Plus, I started cocktail hour. I worked through the cocktail hour. and uh, with power tools, so I'd, I'd had a few beers, and I was so tired, and I just couldn't think of the word pruny. Isn't that horrible? No, it's it was great. You you're well, uh, a godsend we'll, on this show. You we're, we're grateful that you. Uh, hey, that clip, that clip you played of the guy reading the cards, Phil McCracken. Wasn't that great? <laughs> I, I fell for that. I have to tell you about this. Really? I used to, for 25 years, I started and I ran the UNT Jazz Combo Workshop. And then I started a couple others along the way, a trumpet workshop and a composer's workshop. And I ran them. Uh, I finally got out of it when one year I had to send four people home for marijuana and talk to just You mean you parents. said go home and get me some or they were smoking? <laughs> good. That's a good one. Your, your joke count is pretty good you keep saying um, that i don't i when i listen to well, the show I, every you you have a comment but but i tell you what phil not phil uh ethan he's he's ahead of you per minute he's but he's not on for seven hours he's you a know? genius yeah he's i got, sent he's them a, a note <laughs> i sent dr hershenfeld and ethan a note last night i just mm-hmm. said you do realize ethan's a genius there was something I clipped. I went, my God. He, yeah, he's pretty funny. He's pretty, Ethan Hirsch, Thug Thug Jew is his uh, comedy I have to special. check that out. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about uh, getting the film a cracking thing. So oh, right, anyway, right, right, right. At, we would do have this big um, parent 
and student meeting to start, set the whole week off. We would meet the, and the faculty would play to make sure that, you know, the kids knew that we could knew what we we're talking about. And then I would talk for about 30 minutes and discuss the rules. And one of the things is we had a, a questionnaire that they that they and a theory test they had to fill out so we could get them placed. And so I'm holding up this paper and I said, this is really important that you um, fill this out. You know, don't lose it. And then I looked down on the floor. and I said, see, there's one right there. Someone has left. Someone has dropped their paper. I pick it up and there's a name written on it. Phil McCracken. I said, <laughs> OK, this is Phil. Phil McCracken. <laughs> And the, and the kids, I don't know how, if half of them got it. No one giggled there. But I look over to the faculty who's in the wings of the auditorium. You know, they can't see. And they're busting up. They're laughing like crazy. <laughs> One of them did it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, of course. But I said it a couple of times. It's Phil, Phil McCracken here. <laughs> Phil McCracken. <laughs> I, I, I love that. You know, <laughs> It, it, it was just perfect. It, it was just... That guy obviously knew what was going on. No, he think? didn't. He didn't. He didn't? No. So let, me, he, let me play it. Mm -hmm. This is a <laughs> town hall meeting. Uh, and as I've said, a lot of town hall meetings... I think the look on his face is that, okay, I see what's going on. No, We're not let's gonna... see. I know, because <laughs> he would have stopped... This is a no, town. I think he d did it to like just so you're not going to phase me. I'm going to do this. No, no. <clears throat> okay. right, let, you, we'll let the audience decide. This was a town hall meeting. I think it was maybe a board of education meeting to determine and, the ma whether or not masks will be mandatory. And I think it took place. Florida. Florida. So, so juvenile. I know. You guys work for us in 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 this uh, environment. You answer to us, and I'm asking that you do not pass this policy in Virginia. Thank you so much, Ms. Thomas. We do appreciate you. Phil McCracken. Phil McCracken. <laughs> so quick, Sook. <laughs> they do a close-up on him. Ophelia McHawk. <laughs> Ophelia McHawk. Eileen Dover. Eileen Dover. <laughs> Don Kiddick. Don Kiddick. <laughs> Wayne Kerr. Wayne Kerr. I guess maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't know what was going on. He, he, the, my favorite is Don Kiddick. <laughs> that, that is. No, but he goes Don Kiddick. Don Kiddick. So oh, oh, okay. Don Kiddick. Don. Kiedick. It's a little hard to get. When I heard Donkey Dick, I went, I, I just busted out <laughs> laughing. I said, I got to play this. This is. I like to think that it was kids. Just kids. Oh, it was kids. Well, it, somebody pretty juvenile. I like to think that just. Oh my god! It's probably one. It was probably one kid. 
it was probably one guy and his friend watching him going like, you're really doing this? You're going to write that in there? I had There's one that I used to do. Remember Aer Lingus? Yes. I used to, when I was at the airport, I used to say, I'm trying to, I'm here to pick up the daughter of Mr. Lingus who runs Aer Lingus. Her name is Connie Lingus. Can you please page Connie Lingus? Her father runs Aer Lingus, and he doesn't know where she is. And you didn't? Yes, I did. And uh, it was something wow. like Connie Lingus, white courtesy phone. Connie Lingus, white courtesy phone. Does Aer Lingus still exist? I have no idea. I have no idea. It was one of the things that when I traveled with comedians, I used to page Connie Lingus. From the air, and I would do it in a very angry way. Like, <laughs> calling from hey, Mr. I, I Lingus's sent, office. I sent a new, a brand new song. A new look song. The, yes. Look for the email that says "brand new song." Yeah. I, is is it the YouTube song? No. Oh, I loaded That's the wrong. Right. That, you loaded the wrong song. I you want to play the YouTube song? I loaded the YouTube song. Why did I get that one? There's one a little earlier called. It says the, the, in the the reference song for tonight's says, show. Right. Yeah. YouTube sensation. Yeah. No, go, go down a little bit earlier. That's what Here's she what said. happened last That's week. My, this computer over here did not send until tonight. I don't know that. Oh, hang on. It wasn't hooked up to YouTube sensation. No. Something One serious? More that. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, we have to kill time because I have to download it. How about I read? I'm going to read from my next novel. I'm going to read the first a couple of paragraphs. Okay. Would that be interesting? Sure. Okay. This is called Murder on Catlin Creek. It was two days ago, Sheriff, just after we found him in the barn eating grain. Sheriff Marlon Cooper, who had been looking down at his boots, now turned his head to the woman and squinted just a bit. He was standing in the middle of the sitting room of Clement Wetzel's very large farmhouse, talking to Claudia Wetzel, the farmer's wife. The room was situated in the southeast corner of the house, just off the very large foyer at the front entrance. From the foyer, a five-foot-wide staircase rose to the second-floor balcony. Two halls, one on each side of the staircase, led to the back of the house. <clears throat> Even though it was mid-morning, the room was somewhat dark to the overcast skies. It was the first Thursday of October in 1949, during one of the wettest falls on record. The rains, which began on Sunday and continued on, on and off for three days, had just begun to clear. The sheriff had been worried about tracking mud into the house, and for that reason he'd been looking at his boots. The house was immaculate, and the rug he was standing on looked expensive. I'm sorry, Mrs. Wetzel. You haven't seen your husband for two days? No, Sheriff, I saw him yesterday morning, but you ask when I last talked to my husband. The last time I talked with him was just after we found him in the barn eating grain. <laughs> Do you find the video? Oh, you're, you're muted. Oh, that now my sound is. Uh, that's great. And how you know, do that, we. That's from uh, an actual yeah. incident. I have a great, great, great Uncle Walt who lived in rural Kansas. And one day they found him in the barn eating grain. And the next day they found him in the creek dead. Hmm. Anyway. And so. Just eat, eating grain. Yeah. What do you think caused that? 
Well, the <clears throat> you have to read the book. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm sorry. What causes a man to eat grain? Uh, he, well, he's he's under the influence of something. So, what does Kansas look like these days? <sighs> Corny. No masks. No masks. Not many masks. Pretty That's soon, no moss. No, ma yeah. no mask, no moss. Yeah. No moss, Kansas. I went I into, worked really hard up there. Go ahead. Yeah, I went into a sandwich shop the other night, and there was a very good-looking, I guess he was a bodybuilder. He walks in maskless, and he's had a couple of pops, and he's with this girl in tight jeans, cleavage, showing her uh, midriff maskless and it just like for six hours after i fantasized not about the girl in the midriff <laughs> about beating up the guy oh i just i just i i felt so weak and i thought you can't he's a bodybuilder i can't tell him anything and uh it really he might have he might have taken it really well. Oh yeah. Know? He was inviting people like me to say, you know, wear a mask and uh it's divisive. This whole mask thing and the vaccine thing, it serves the power yeah. elite. It as long as we're fighting over this, we're not coming for their money. They want us fighting. They want this culture war. Now, there's a story in the Times. Mississippi is banning vaccines, but they have one of the strictest vaccine mandates in America when it comes to measles, mumps, smallpox. You can't, oh, they're, ban they're not banning vaccines, are they? Uh, well, not banning vaccines, but they're not, not pushing it. Not, they're not pushing it. They're, they're against vaccine mandates. The governor's go. against vaccine mandates. But right. Mississippi is lousy with vaccine mandates. I know. So I think if, if, if you're going to if you're going to be against the vax mac, uh, mandate, uh, then get rid of the smallpox mandate, get rid of the rubella and the mumps mandates, Mississippi. That would be a sad thing. Uh, yeah. All right. Right. We're going to play a new song. By uh, first, I, you got to hear my squeaky chair. I got one. You have a squeaky Mine's not chair? Not as loud as yours. Not as loud as yours. Yeah. But I'm closer to the mic than you are. So, yeah, I need what I need to do. Can you hear me? Yes. I need, there it is. I need to buy a, a new chair, but then somebody has to assemble it. They're not hard. They're, they'll come out and do it without their masks. <laughs> oh, good. Then I can get more than a chair. Uh, this is a brand new song. Go ahead and play it. Oh, hang on. for one. I'm setting it up. Hang on. Hey, this is new music. I'm going to turn my microphone off. It's called Something Else. New music from Professor Mike Steinell. Something died in my garage Yes, indeed Something died in my garage I 
could be It's a mystery to me It might be a possum It might be a raccoon It might be my crazy neighbor Who plays the bassoon Something died in my garage That's right I alerted my entourage Something that 
What happened? Can you hear me? I hear you good. That is, I, where's the applause? Hang on. <laughs> I have a rude. I'm being serious. I really love that song. I do too. You I know, re- no, it's I, a brand I, new song. That it sounds similar, like to something else I might have done, but that's that's brand new. I really are you you're buying that? that? I love that song. <laughs> I really. Something died in my garage. That you is, know, I love it. You know Rich Hall. Did, did you know Rich Hall personally? He's, he's been on the show. He's a very funny guy. Yeah. When Letterman first got started, I thought that'd be a funny bit, and it should have been labeled something different. But it said something serious. For some reason, email kept the same label. But I was going to try to. I wanted you to go. Wait a second. Like to start play half of wait a second this isn't a new song and but well i remember you played this at office hours and it wasn't finished yet no no it's been on the show at least once right but you re-recorded it because some people didn't they weren't sure of the word garage they didn't i didn't change anything that's their problem if they can't hear garage is this the same exact song you played before some of them heard crotch, and all I got to say is, get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> died in my crotch. No, get your mind out of the gutter, David. <laughs> but anyway, um, Rich Hall once came on Letterman very early. I, I used to watch, it was when the morning show. Remember the morning right, show? Yeah, yeah. And he was one of the writers, I guess. And the bit was he, w- he was supposed to go to a pet store and get a pet, and he was going to show this pet. And he comes out with a box, just a box. And he says, there, well, what do you got? Well, uh, it's a cat, but he's kind of shy. I don't think he wants to come out of the box. And then the bit was that he t- took the money and, wait a second, Rich, we gave you money to go buy it. I don't think there's anything in that, you know. And uh, he tried to pull it off. That was, for some reason, that struck me really funny at the time, and it isn't so funny now. No, it's funny. It's, it's funny. I'm just thinking about cat videos. My nephew has a M and M's. This is my secret weapon to get from here to Kansas and M and M's. Yeah, what I do, I usually I really had a meltdown about halfway through. I was just getting sleepy. But you can't you know? have a meltdown at least in your hands with M and M's. No. So what I do, I stop. Right, hang on, let me little... th- we, hang on the chat room. Let me beat every. I eat B and M's. There, I just wanted to <laughs> shut the chat room up. B and M's. <laughs> these ones have nuts these nuts <laughs> these nuts <laughs> but anyway so what i do is i get a cup of coffee get a little jolt with the coffee and i get a sharing size i never really eat, eat candy that much right and i take one every, I, you know when you have on the highway you have the mile markers so i take one out every mile marker once every third mile marker i to get a new peanut m and m what are you jennifer aniston mile. what's that what are you jennifer aniston she has <laughs> like one m and m every decade <laughs> oh <laughs> but anyway so mile marker one okay so i put it in my mouth and <clears throat> it takes about a mile if you don't bite uh-huh. to, to go through the sugar and then second mile the chocolate kicks in and then about halfway through you get to the peanut and then you're done and then i take a one mile to just kind of come down from the sugar and that and it's really it's really pretty it keeps me awake you mm-hmm. know and 
I've been doing it for a long time. What's that in the chat? No, I'm just laughing. I'm thinking this is the conversation you have with your grandkids. This is like, you know what I used to do with my son? I should. This is okay. Tell me. I I I noticed he would be a whirling dervish if you gave him candy. Yeah, he would just go. I mean, it affected him in a way like it was meth. When he was, he would just spin on the ground like Shemp. <laughs> and when I used to bring him up to the office and he would jump on the writer's table, they loved him. And the first thing he would do it too is he would pass gas. He would clinch both fists and then pass <laughs> gas. And the writers, they, I mean, they thought he was a genius. They, they, they thought it was the funniest thing. A two-year-old kid, he used to wear cowboy boots and blue jeans. And he would just jump up on the table and pass gas. And everybody would applaud. And he thought he, he, thought he should be writing on the show because they were laughing. And then I, I shouldn't. And then I'd give him sugar. And he'd go nuts. He would go nuts for about well. 15 minutes. I'd let him eat sugar. And my friend, the, the writers, they were like, their jaw would, they couldn't believe the energy that, <laughs> that he had. Uh, I'm writing, I'm working on a, a Church of Feldman song. Good. They, they get older, kids. Yeah, and 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 the thing with kids is, you 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 see them, Dan. Right? They're growing up, and you know that they're growing. Like you know that they're changing. That you can't. They're beautiful. Oh, I they're, know. And they keep, you know, and you, and you know, you just want to freeze them. That's why I stopped feeding my kids. So you could freeze them in time. <laughs> That's for my act. My kids uh, don't. Sorry. Uh, I, I, sometimes do I do jokes from my act, and uh, my kids don't want to read anything I've written or listen to any of my records or anything. I have a recording date coming up. Yeah, I might. I might. Yeah, I got an actual. And that's fun to say. I have recording dates. Yeah, I have a my court wife date. Just got home from a. What's that? I have a court date. <laughs> want to hear a little bit of Church of Feldman? Yeah. We have a pretentious douchebag. I should introduce the pretentious douchebag, Dan Frankenberger. Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing lovely. How are you? After your after your uh, sucking nuts, you're going to pull out your organ real quick, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got time to hear a little bit of this? Sure. I'm a member of the Church of Feldman. I guess I'm a Feldmanite. <laughs> I listen twice a week. I'm beginning to see the light. Yeah. When someone says red, I say blue. I'm leaning to the left, and it's the right thing to do. <laughs> I'm a member of the Church of Feldman. I guess I'm a Feldmanite. I'm a member of the Church of Feldman. That makes me a Feldmanist. <laughs> I'm turning over a new leaf, but my old habits still persist. 
I know a vegan lifestyle is a much better way, <laughs> but I like my burgers and fries. <laughs> I'm pledging my loyalty this day, cause Feldman don't tell no lies. I'm a member of the Church of Feldman. Maybe next week we'll work on that. Well, <laughs> Dan, uh, Dan is a Richard... Dan Frankenberger would be the Richard Deacon of my... You, Dan Frankenberger would be the Richard Deacon of my church. And that's a Dick Van Dyke reference. I have been told by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn that he was going to create a church of Feldman. I heard that. I and heard none that. of us would have to pay taxes. He's got the letter. He's going to... Every next show, he's going to put it on there. Yeah. But he, you know, maybe if there's a song... That, that would, might tip it in. That, that might, might light in. a fire under his feet to file the paper so I don't have to pay taxes anymore. I think that's a good idea. The Church of Feldman. It's also evidence it's a real church to some degree. It would be a real, song. yeah. We would brand yeah. people's thighs. <laughs> that, right, Dan? That would, as a Richard Deacon of my church. You'd brand them? You brand everybody's thighs so they can be identified. With what? Like a number? No, that's not no, good. No, just my, my face on your thighs. And uh, <laughs> we don't wear pants anyway, so that's true. We'll be able to see yeah. it. And we'd get a compound some someplace. And <sighs> there'd be droit de senor. Hey, you started to play the Nassau thing again. I missed that. Billionaires the in space. Apollo thirteen. No, Apollo thirteen. Oh right, right. I love that. You know what? Jeff Bezos ruined it for me. Oh really? He ruined space well, travel for me. You know, there's a there's a funny thing. I actually went years when I first started listening to your show. I thought, what is that? And you can go listen to the whole thing. And what you play chops out about three minutes. There's. Has anybody got any ideas out of there? Out there? And it, it, it's silent. It's silent for about it. a minute and a half. And right. then this guy goes, well, uh, there's, a, there's a guy here. I think he knows something. Remember that? that yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh. It's Apollo 13. <laughs> that guy's not going to be any help. <laughs> it's, uh, it's mission control. And I've, I've talked about this countless times. If I have trouble sleeping, if I'm worried about something, I listen to, to the Apollo flight, 13? The flight crew talking to Mission Control. Gene Krantz, yeah. mission director of Apollo 13, just calmly, you know, let's work the problem. And the, the Odyssey is dying. They're leaking oxygen and three American yeah. astronauts are about to die. And they just calmly work the problem. Uh and you listen to that, and suddenly it doesn't keep you up at night that you paid too much for your shoes. <laughs> what does he say? We don't need any guessing. Do I have it? Did, I just, did I just play it? Yeah, play it. Uh, I don't know if I, I have the yeah, go-no-go go for landing. Do I have yeah. the Apollo 13 here? Hang on. And then we'll do community billboard. My wife just got home. I need. To, I haven't seen her for a week. I need to go down and say hello. Say it like Be it is. Idea. That was a shit show. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I don't know if I... I don't have... Uh, That's okay. Hang on. 
But I miss hearing that. I love that when the way you started well, the show. We kind of stopped oh, by popular demand. <laughs> People, do you know that there was a petition <laughs> on change, change.org with all that's going on in the world, Dan Frankenberger? The people in our virtual studio audience signed a petition to include this <laughs> into the show. Captain <laughs> JJ fired that up. Captain JJ. Uh, JJ That's very good. The last time I saw him, he was sitting on a roof petting a frog for 20 minutes. <laughs> Dan, I got to correct you. He's walking around. He's got to be walking around, sitting around, or standing around. That's he right. Standing around. You got to get around in there. Right, right. That's the Rickles thing. Now, anyway, by the way, I have. I don't a, mean to creep critical. We have a bleeper here. Say. You're you, not going to get me to. Yeah, no, oh, it, do, it does. Do it. it does block you out if I do this. I didn't know that. Okay. Like. Good, good to know. Tell your mother. I said I wanted. Her, okay. but you're not saying it. Your mouth's not moving. I know, but they don't need to know that. <laughs> All right, Dan has work tomorrow. I love you. I thank have you to go, Dan. Thank you, Mike Steinell. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant that. Okay. <laughs> thank Bye, guys. You. Bye. Uh, sorry to keep you waiting there, Danny boy. Hey, uh, somebody had a funny title for the show. I just came. Uh, was it Walter? Something like America needs a vasectomy mandate. That kind of made me laugh. Do we have a title for the show yet? I have no idea. No. I have to come up with one. It was so easy last time. I just wrote Slavo Zizek. I have to come up with a pun. Oh, boy. Anything of that? Did you grab the pictures? I sent them a Yes, I did, sir. Do you have work tomorrow? Yep. How much sleep did you get? I woke up at four today. Four in the <laughs> afternoon. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm I have a Sopranos quote today. Yeah. I'm like King Midas in reverse here. Everything I touch turns into shit. Oh, that's uh, that's uh, James Gandolfini talking to the shrink, right? Yep. He was having a tough time with some depression and uh, Dr. Melfi upped his meds. And uh, that was from season one, episode 12, which also uh, the main uh, storyline in that one was the Cusimanos had a dental student next door in which the the episode was named after Isabella. Right. And, it, it, and she was a fantasy. She didn't really exist. Right. And I did not send you that picture. I That's the episode where he gets shot, I believe. That could, I, don't know. I, I think can't remember. So. I, I think seen it's five years. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm doing a Sopranos cleanse. That's, yeah, yep. No Sopranos. It's almost, it's almost time for me to do the opposite because it's been a while. Yeah, I, I'm doing like a three year cleanse. It just, it just got. All right, here we go. Ooh, that's Tom Weber. That's Tom Weber, and uh, this one's called Old Man Forest. And it was drawn using micro pens, and it's one of several pieces in his Green Man series, which is part of his mythical, mythological figures collection. He's got the the grapes in his. He looks like Carmen Miranda's idiot cousin. 
got sticks coming out of his head and leaves yeah. and everything. Nobody knows who Carmen <laughs> Miranda is, but she used to wear fruit in her hair. Do you remember Carmen remember. Miranda? Didn't she have the little finger chimes too? Yes, she did. That right? Okay. And when you get pulled over by the cops, you ask them to read you your Carmen Miranda rights. Yeah. And you have the right to wear fruit in your hair. Oh, boy. Anything? Is, okay. I told you I'd take a sip of coffee before you give those ones up. I know. <laughs> uh, ooh, that looks filthy. <laughs> this is from uh, Glenn Costick, straight out of his garden. Really? Which yeah. garden? Is garden a euphemism for pants? <laughs> well, that's garage. Oh. <laughs> that is, uh, that looks like uh, Glenn Costick uh, has been dating Lorena Bobbitt. It's Glenn Costick with uh, bushy eyebrows. Frown. <laughs> yeah, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Looks like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer giving head, actually, <laughs> with a tomato. Nobody knows. This is a no. podcast. I apologize. That's uh, a salad to be. That's a salad to be. Yep. Or a sex crime to be. <laughs> to be. <laughs> Those are string beans. One. Uh, what, what kind of tomato is that? I always forget. Probably a cherry tomato. That's a cherry tomato. And that is a, a chode, right? Yep, the one big fat chode. That's a chode. They're delicious. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the same length as the beans. Did, did, uh, did Glenn grow that? Yep, those came right out of the garden. He posts pictures sometimes of stuff he buys at local farm markets, but I try to grab the stuff that he grows. I mean, the, the cucumber looks like uh, Fleet Week. <laughs> like the day after Fleet Week. There, there are many bumps on the, uh, the, the cucumbers. Warts. It does not look like Fleet, <laughs> Fleet Week went well. Or it went really well. But uh, oh, if anybody could see this, they know how. Does oh, my God. Is that so, the ragamuffin? Yup. That is Coco uh, after a fresh haircut. Lays, <laughs> <lays> up. <laughs> what? It looks so... It's, he looks like he got a haircut. And he's saying, I know I look good, but um, uh, I got things on my mind. <laughs> We also have another picture of Coco that Lane painted. I'm just looking at Coco. I, I want a dog. Do you have a dog? I'm allergic to dogs. I do not. Why don't you get a hyperallergenic dog? Like a chihuahua. I also don't like dog crap in my yard. You don't like dog crap? Why don't you get a, a cat that eats dog crap? I'm allergic to cats as well. Why don't you get a dog that... Oh. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you get, uh, okay, this is, this is what? This is Lane? This is Lane's drawing. It's Coco the Sun Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Was this during Tom's class? Um, I grabbed this last week. I'm not exactly sure. I think this might have been just on his free time. I'm, oh, hey, what time yeah, did I'm office sure. hours end? 
I don't know. I, I actually made it through the entire uh, movie. And that was so great. We should do more movies. I had never and, seen it. Yeah. Oh, you've never seen it? I had never seen it. We did a screening of Fire High, Fire, <laughs> Fahrenheit 9-11. Dr. Fraud mentioned a movie called uh, Capital by Costa Grava. Maybe we could uh, do a screening of that. That was fun. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Oh, I is this Mary Ann Cummings? This is Mary Ann Cummings. This was during one of the Office Hours events. This was during Office Hours and Hours. And um, this is uh, pictures of a flower. And a bee. She says, it's a little dirty, a little, little inappropriate. <laughs> There's no bird, so I'll let it slide. But I do. Just do I see a bee? There is a bee. Mm. This is the same picture after five minutes, 15 minutes, and 90 minutes. So you can kind of see it developing. Yeah. Well, she's a ringer. Yup. She's, I mean, her art is just amazing. Amazing. And what is this? Uh, the latest episode of uh, the Ralph Radio, Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Um, they talk about why do we still have the Electoral College? And they have Alex Kaser on there and Steve Silberstein. And uh, you were there for that one. Yes, I was. I support so, the Electoral College. You can go to RalphNaderRadioHour.com and check out the latest episode. Yeah, it's, it's great. Everybody should subscribe to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour and uh, go to Ralph Nader Radio Hour and join Congress Club and get letters, suggestions on letters that you should be writing to your Congress person before it's too late. I support the Electoral College. I think if we don't have an Electoral College, uh, presidential candidates will just stay on Martha's Vineyard, collect lots of money, and they won't go out and meet the people. They'll just win the popular vote by hanging out in California, New York, and Illinois, and not traveling through the Rust Belt. The Democrats are already elitists. They're already out of touch with the Midwest, the farmland, and these hyper-educated technocrats should be able to figure out how to win in Wisconsin and Michigan and North Dakota. If you're so smart with your Ivy League education, you should figure out how, how to get the vote in Kansas, but they don't care about the people in Kansas. Get rid of the Electoral College. The elite Ivy Leaguers will be even more out of touch. So that's why I think the Electoral College is uh, a good idea. It's so typical of hyper-educated, pampered elitists. I can't win at this game, so change the rules. That's that's the new thing. Change. Get rid of the Electoral College because we can't figure we can't figure it out. Well, figure it out. How's it in Rochester tonight? Good, good today. Last week we had a couple storms that knocked my internet out. Last Thursday, 
I heard yesterday I had, a, I had a thunderstorm that was shaking my windows in my house. I was like, holy shit. Uh, we're, we're having thunder here. Hey, I, now when is Yom Kippur? Because we're going to, is it this Thursday? Like we have to, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to have to do the show starting later. Because I fast on Yom Kippur. Uh, it begins the evening Wednesday the 15th and ends Thursday the 16th. Is, is This Wednesday? Starts the 15th, ends the 16th, Thursday. Yep. So this Wednesday. So Wednesday. we'll have to start the show at sundown on Thursday. It's around 7.30 or 8. No, I think we'll do a late now, start. Yeah, we're going to have to do a late start because... I just, I fast on Yom Kippur. Um, I don't, that's the one holiday I observe. So, okay. Uh, thank you. Let's take some questions. If you, Stick around. Professor okay. John. Well, Professor John's yes, coming up, I just wanted to bring up from earlier in the show, you were uh, promoting Ortega for Congress dot com. Yes. Donate money to Ortega for Congress, please. Can you hear me, uh, David? Yes, I can, sir. Oh, good. OK. Yes. I just wanted to strenuously object to your support of the Electoral College. I meant I'm against the Electoral College. Did I say oh, I'm for it? Okay. You said you were for it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I said I'm, I'm against it. Are you serious? You're really? No, them? I just don't want to lose an argument. Go ahead. <laughs> well, Go ahead. So your main reason for supporting it um, is, as you said, uh, that you fear that the candidates will will neglect um, the rest of the country and, and just focus on a few areas. Correct. So that's the system. But that's the system we have now. They only focus on the swing states, you know, five or six states, which are predominantly not in the uh, Midwest or, um, you know, in the heartland of the country. Um, so I'm not uh, I think that contradicts your your reasoning for supporting it. And, you know, we do have elites in the country and. Maintaining the Electoral College is not going to change that. Um, getting rid of the Electoral College will encourage candidates to go out to every state uh, because they will have to um, uh, uh, appeal to everyone in the country. Every vote will count exactly the same. And I don't see any legitimate reason to overrepresent people in North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Oklahoma. Uh, that makes no sense. It should be one person, one vote. Whoever gets the most votes becomes the president. That's just the basic uh, fundamental value of democracy. So the, the Electoral College was established uh, during slavery and it was established. No, no, no. The, the Electoral College is part of the Constitution. Yeah. During slavery. Oh, oh I, I thought you meant during the Civil War. You're right. Sorry. Um, and, and one of the reasons it was established was to overrepresent the southern states 
which at the time uh, had a lower population. Um, and therefore, if we simply based uh, representation on population, um, then they would they would fear that the other states would overturn slavery. So it was a way of protecting slavery. Um, and it was established at a time when there were 13 states. We, we've grown to 50 states and, you know, it's an antiquated, outdated, anti-democratic institution that should have been done away with at the Civil War, if not before. Right. Uh, because I think it was a it was a, it helped to cause the Civil War. That was one of many things that did. But it so just can, can it I, so get, putting it into historical perspective. Uh, tells us that it was born uh, illegitimately. There are a lot of things that were born illegitimately, but the other virtue to the Electoral College that I see is it does create a more perfect union because when you admit uh, Wyoming, the Dakotas, uh, the other shithole states, why would they join the union if they were going to be subject to the whims of the out-of-touch coastal elitists? So by giving them uh, two senators and giving them a little power in the Electoral College, uh, it, uh, it keeps them in the union. They don't feel like seceding. Not that I wouldn't. I mean, if we lost Wyoming, uh, but, uh, right. but th that is how you that's how we got the landmass because of the two senators. That's how you expand by saying, no, you won't be overpowered. Uh, I, I mean, it, to say that you get as many votes In as your population merits is seems to be the way to do it um well and, i mean if it were popular okay so if we didn't have an electoral college if wyoming didn't get two senators well well wait now you're mixing up two things so the senate is one thing well the people are also saying get rid of the senate yeah i do that too but let's yeah. st let's stick to uh, so if we got rid of the college. senate and pr and then uh we got rid of the Electoral College. What is to prevent the American people from deciding to fence off Wyoming and just create a uh, a camp? Just use Wyoming to dump all the deplorables in. I mean, I think they've already done that with Wyoming, but uh, based on the voting, I think it, <laughs> they may have. Um, is that fair to the, Wyoming? They, they would. You have to protect these shithole states. Protect them from what? From Democracy? majoritarian rule. Majority, majoritarian rule is democracy. But don't That's you want to protect are. minorities? I mean, our founding fathers. Yes. They were they wanted to protect minorities, and by minorities, I mean rich people, slaveholders. Right. I, I have no interest in. They can defend themselves quite well. 
There's not, we don't need anything explicit in the Constitution that protects rich people because they have the most resources, they have the most power, economic and political. So there, there's no reason to have something explicitly in the Constitution or in our form of government that benefits. Um, if I well. thought, here's my answer to you. If I thought we could get the Electoral College, there is this compact uh, interstate compact where uh, several states adding up to 270. The idea is if you can get states adding up to 270 electoral votes, they all agree to turn their electoral college votes over to the person who got the largest won the popular vote. There's a, currently a movement afoot, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And the idea is you need you need enough states to constitute 270 electoral votes to agree that their electoral votes will go to whomever wins the popular vote. Then you don't need a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. It will just make it irrelevant. And there are only a couple of electoral. There are only a couple of states that you need for this compact to go into effect, right? Yes, uh, I believe there are at about 200 electoral votes. In other words, enough states have agreed that- Well, the danger with that, we're saying that the Republicans now throw that back in our face. And we're, we're saying that the Republicans are saying, well, who says just because a state wins the popular vote, the legislature has to send uh, the electors yeah. who won the popular vote in our state. I mean, it, you, you can use the Constitution and pass laws in red states to ignore the will, the vote of the people to give the electoral votes to Donald Trump. But that's neither here nor there. The my well, concern well, that is what if I may, uh, that is a very important point because the Electoral College, as it is structured, allows for states to engage in all sorts of mischief. Yes. They do not have to recognize the popular vote in their own state. The legislature of the state can decide by whatever floats their boat at the moment to send whichever slate of electors to the Electoral College they choose. And it had, it, yeah, it could have nothing to do with the voting. Now, I don't think there's anyone in the, in the U.S. that would support that. Oh, come on. You have ha uh, almost half the country would support that if it meant getting Donald Trump reelected. Yeah, it would not support it if they were being honest about a functioning uh, system to elect the president. Right. Well, Fairly. He, my my thoughts are thus. And I did say thus. So this means I'm about to say something profound. Of course. OK. I hate the people. And I mean this. I hate the people in control of the Democratic Party. I hate that Barack Obama celebrated his 60th birthday on Martha's Vineyard, and he surrounds himself with these elitists from 
the quote unquote best schools who are so privileged and smart, the Democratic Party is run by these pieces of excrement and they can't win. They can't win in the Rust Belt because those Americans see right through them. And so they want to change the rules because they can't, they're so smart, but they can't figure out how to get the Rust Belt's vote. They're so smart, but they can't play the game. It's like saying, let's play baseball, but I've noticed that we can't uh, hit. So let's change the rules so it's just balls and strikes and you don't have to swing the bat and you get on base by walking. In baseball, though, the, the rules are fair for both teams. The Electoral College, if you applied it to baseball, would be as if you said, well, one team... They we bring get, the fence uh, in when I'm up. We bring the fence that? in 200 feet when exactly. I'm up. Exactly. So changing the rules to make it fair is not a bad idea. <laughs> you know what would make it fair? If all these pieces of shit to graduate from Harvard School of Government, the Kennedy School of Government, cared about Michigan and Flint, and we told presidential candidates to campaign in Michigan and Wisconsin, that would make it fair. I, I agree. I, I, it would make it fair and, and, and a good thing if, say, the uh, Democratic elite in Massachusetts cared uh, as much for, say, Lowell as they do for Martha's Vineyard or, or Boston. Yeah. Or the, the wealthy suburbs of Boston. You know, but I don't I think that's an issue that is separate from the Electoral College. Um, and we shouldn't keep rules that make it impossible for us to institute change, because when we lose the presidency, we also lose the judiciary. You know. Right. The executive nominates all the federal judges, including the Supreme Court. So it's uh, important that that be a fair vote and a fair process. And I think it's one of the reasons why people don't vote is because our system is so arcane, so unclear and difficult to understand and seems unfair and not to reflect the wishes of the American people. All right. Well, if you can get rid of the Electoral College, I I'm all I'm with you. I just think it's to me, it's like Citizens United. It's like we need a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. And I think, really, that's all you have to offer me on Citizens United, a constitutional amendment that will never get passed. Or really, it's the Electoral College that's going to solve you can't come up with not I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying, yeah. can't we come up with something better than getting rid of the Electoral College, something that might work? Oh, I don't know. A Democratic Party that answers to the 99 percent Democratic Party where you don't nominate anybody who's worth more than, you know, if you've got two, we see your tax returns, you got, I don't know, you name it. 
a million dollars in the bank, you don't get the nomination. You know, you got, I don't know, I would lower to uh, being, you know, broke. I think the Democrats should only run people who uh, have no money. I mean that. We might be better off, you know, drawing lots rather than the campaign system that we have today. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you uh, for the most part. It, Did you hear just, the, that? You hear that uh, guy who called trying to get my vote for uh, city councilwoman? <laughs> yes, I did. You gave He's him trying quite to, a hard time, and I would do it again, but I'd be even meaner. She's a she's a lawyer who teaches at Columbia. Oh yeah, that's what that's what New York City needs on the city council. Is a lawyer who teaches at Columbia. And then he told me that she's against rent control and uh, wouldn't overturn what would be uh, for overturning the eviction moratorium. Mm. Yes, yeah. that that's troubling. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, anyway. What else is on your mind? Then we'll wrap it up. All right. Well, I, yeah, I just wanted to make that point because I. I hear you make those arguments and, I'm, well, we just went through it, but uh, I, I agree that the Democratic Party has to be better, has to be less elitist. But at the same time, we do need institutional reform uh, in the country. And the reform should be in the direction of more democracy. We should have national referendums. We should reform the campaign finance system. We should reform lobbying in this country. We should reform uh, the Supreme Court. We should re reform the Electoral College. We should reform or abolish the Senate. Uh, none of these things are easy. But if we really want to have a representative democracy um, that can achieve what the people want, then while protecting minorities, and I'm not including the rich as a minority, <laughs> um, then that, I think that's the direction we should move. So that, that would be my point. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you. I'll see you Thursday, I hope. Yes. For yeah. the professors and Marianne. All right. Dan? Yes, sir. You ready to quiz me? Sure. All right. We started. I didn't eat today. I didn't sleep and I didn't eat today. Uh... That's because you did the news for an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, Cyrus. Yep. Uh, Ortega for Congress, Howie Klein at seven. Yep. David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor okay. Marianne Cummings, Peter B. Collins, then uh, Professor Mike Steinell, then you, then Professor Jonathan Beck. That's it. Did I do it? 100%. Okay. If you would like to attend a virtual taping, virtual taping, a, uh, I have had no sleep. Uh, a To sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website, office hours, every Friday night at 8 p.m., and I will see, is Tom Weber doing uh, anything on Wednesday? Um, he's normally been doing his 
uh, spirituality, spirituality and activism group. I'm assuming it's still continuing. Okay. I want to uh, say another reminder that Thursday's recording is going to start late. We'll start yeah, uh, after sundown. Yep. Yeah. All right. Remember to stay. St- I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. David Feldman show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like The David Feldman Show To get your ears on right Buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way 